everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 374. I'm your host, joined as always by my co-host David Bix and Span and Bix. We got a very interesting show this week, a show with a lot of first-hand information, which is always uh, good on these shows, as uh, have uh, two of the three people on this call uh, attended the big major event we're going to talk about this week. Indeed, and all three of us at one point were regulars in the Death Valley Driver IRC chat as well. <laughs> Many moons ago, yes. <laughs> I was, of course, an OP of that chat room uh, a long time ago. Yep. But, uh, Let that yeah. be the most that we say about said IRC chat. <laughs> yeah, if I have an old computer, I could get some of those old chat logs off no, there. No, you won't. Boy, there'd be a lot of people embarrassed these days, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, there Not are people. Me. No, but there are people at ESPN and places like that. that... Well, there were wrestlers, too, that were well, in there. So, Oh, you mean, actually, I'll save that one for off air now that I think about it. Come off to me and spirit it. Um, but yes, as. Well, actually, before we get into our guest slash uh, patron, we should mention we're not going to do the whole long plug since we haven't actually finished recording it yet as we record this intro but the new patreon show is out and that is part two of two on the 2000 wcw sale drama stuff where we pick up in the middle of the wwf talks and there's a lot of weird back and forth in the trades and the wrestling newsletters about whether or not the wwf actually had a legal right of first refusal on a wcw or matching rights on a wcw sale from the wcw lawsuit settlement and we go from that into Bischoff's mysterious new investors and everything else from there. And like I said, we haven't finished recording it yet, so I won't do the big, long plug. We'll do that at the beginning of next week's show. Or we haven't recorded the whole thing, I should say. But you can check that out, of course, at patreon.com slash between the sheets at the $5 a month level or higher. If you get a year paid up front, it's 16% off. So that's $50.40 for a year of the $5 tier. And, of course, you get all of these six years of monthly deep dives that we've done up to this point. And there's a lot there. And it's why we're generally, at least in terms of those that actually list their numbers, one of the top 20 wrestling-themed Patreons. Need to get a higher on that list. Yes, yes. But, yes, if you subscribe to patreon.com slash between the sheets, you'll definitely be able to hear some extra content about Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. <laughs> well, you finally got the use to drop. So yeah. Um, and yeah, and we got the last three months of the year coming up and you definitely don't want to miss that. Let's just put it that way. You definitely don't want to miss those shows. So patreon.com slash between the sheets, five dollars a month. Get on that and get all the audio that your ears can handle. Yes. Now, Chris, what happens if someone <laughs> wants to give more in a given month? And how does that tie to today's show? Well, I mean, you get your 25, you can send for a segment of the show. 50, you send for well, 25, you get request, request a show. 50 sits in for a segment and 100 for the whole show, which we have this week. And so uh, we are joined by one of our patrons, someone who's been in the wrestling business, you know, off and on for a while now. And, uh, goes back with us a little bit he was uh part of the death valley driver chat room uh, years and years ago that was mentioned and yeah was that this show that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes and the reason why he requested it as we're on the 17th anniversary of this show my god 
crazy to think about. But yes, we are joined by Eric Pavlaka. Eric, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Very excited to be part of it. And Jesus Christ, 17 years, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's almost le- it's almost legal. <laughs> this is barely legal now still. so. But anyway, yeah, 17 years. Good Lord of mercy. And, you know, the funny thing is a lot of people we're going to be talking about um, that worked at Ring of Honor are still actually working. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, looking through the notes, it's like it's kind of amazing how many people from 17 years ago are still working at major levels without really like a drop off. Like, I don't know if you would see that like a little bit earlier, you know, like it's a different time. man. I mean, people now, the way they age is different and their bodies can handle more, I think, now than some of the older generation could. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy that to think about some, you know, some of these talents uh or maybe actually performing as good, if not better now than they were then. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, it's, it's wild to uh, to think about that. But yes, let's flash back to 17 years ago, as we discussed the week that was September 28th through October the 4th, 2005. And yes, we do begin with Ring of Honor and Dave Meltzer. The appearance of Kenna Kobashi this past weekend for Ring of Honor not only was a once-in-a-lifetime thrill for fans that came from all over the United States to see a guy many had been watching as long as 15 years on videotape. Kobashi could have done a few signature moves against Samoa Joe, and everybody would have loved it. Instead, in front of a cell of 750 fans at the New Yorker Hotel in Manhattan on October the 1st, he gave them something closer to a night at the Tokyo Dome or Budokan Hall. We received one response after another from people who had been going to matches for 20 or 30 years, and virtually all of them said it was the greatest live match they had ever seen. Unlike most major stars that go to the Ring of Honor and have a good match, for Kobashi, for whatever reason, this was as big a deal to him as it was to the fans. He studied tapes of Joe and had told people in the days for the match he felt he needed to deliver a perfect match. While the match did not include the insane floor bump spot that is the lasting memory of many of Kobashi's recent matches of the year, he did everything else including a two-minute chop fest that left Joe's chest brutalized. It was the stiffest match in the history of Ring of Honor, and when it was over, the consensus was it was the best. Crowd reaction helped a lot, as there were huge Kobashi chants throughout the match. Crowd already ch- started chanting, this is awesome, the minute he threw the first chop, and it was not without his casualties. When Kobashi took his mouthpiece off after the match, half of a tooth was left inside. He also thought he had- Suffered a busted eardrum, so his ears were ringing from a blow from Joe. Although it turned out that wasn't the case. Besides the chest being his chest being turned into hamburger meat, Joe also suffered an ankle injury. Of course, that didn't stop either of them from doing it again the next night in Philadelphia in a tag match. Kabashi pinned Joe in 22-17 after the same short layer that he's used to win his biggest matches over the past few years. Normal logic would say that a company doesn't have its biggest star lose to a foreign star that's possibly never coming back. And certainly not for another year. The next night, Kabashi and Homicide beat Joe and Loki in 26-22 when Kabashi pinned Loki after the same lariat. Joe and Loki are friends, are enemies, excuse me. And Loki and Homicide are partners in Ring of Honor. Gabe Sapolsky noted that he was bringing Kabashi in to have the best matches possible. If that meant throwing out storylines, that's what it meant. The film from everyone is that Kabashi and selling so much for Joe both nights only made him stronger. For all the, all the talk of him being a monster, the best wrestler he had ever been in the ring with, anyone of Kabashi's aura, and this loss likely made him a bigger star than his 60-minute match with CM Punk or any of his other matches in the three-plus year history of promotion. Virtually all the wrestlers who worked on the car went to the balcony of the hotel and looked down, and they were going crazy every bit as much as the rest of the fans. 
On the second night, fans threw streamers and the partners started T-starting, but fans popped as Joe and Kabashi started out. They broke clean on the road, set the first big chop. They traded sets of 25 chops back and forth. When it was over, Joe got on the mic and talked about Ring of Honor and Noah and thanked Kabashi for coming and said he was honored with his presence. The only negative is while the people who were there thinking it was the ultimate, and New York did sell out with the people standing everywhere, there was open space. The second night, Philadelphia drew about 800 fans, which significantly less than prior shows Ring of Honor had done with Keiji Muto and Jushin Liger, both of whom had media appearances in their prime on WCW television, Drew. All right, I want to stop here for the moment. Right, let's talk about that first. The attendances. You know, going back and doing the notes and seeing this, it was interesting to go back and, re- and see these attendance numbers and see that, yeah, this was not as good as some of the other shows where they had Mudo and Liger on. What do you yeah. attribute that to? For Philly, well, Liger hadn't worked Philly. Mudo worked Philly. Liger yeah. worked uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is North Jersey, which is more New York. Um. So I don't know if I would throw in the Liger comparison. Muda was Philly, though, and Muda oh, might have been the same venue, right? I think it was both National Guard Armory. Um, so that's a better comparison. Um, I mean, something to note. This might as well be the place to mention it, at least in New York. I'm assuming the same one for Philly. They charged regular ticket prices for the, for the show. This was not a price increase like they had later with Masawa. So... I think that shows the difference between the hardcore legend and the, at least in Philly and the TV legend, you know, I don't think it's really much more difficult than that. Like Dave said, what do you think, Eric? Do you agree with Bix on that assessment? Mostly, but I think the other thing is that like, uh, so this was, they were bringing him in for a weekend. You got two shots out of them when they did, uh, when they did Muto, that was Final Battle, I think, and he was just in for a Philly show. Yeah. And then yeah. Liger was, I want to say Braintree, Massachusetts? It, it was it was Boston area, was the other show. Yeah, and then New Jersey. So those are both spread out enough. So this one was two shows that are within a reasonable driving distance. So I think that kind of almost split in half from what it could have been. Yeah, that's a, that's a you know, a factor. That would uh, come into play as well, right? But the I fact, mean, but the fact is, Kabashi had never worked in this country. Yeah, you know but, that. I mean, th- that that would seem like to be a major thing that sh- that that would have been promoted and should have been pushed onto the fans. You know, this you this guy's never worked here before. Yeah, but I mean, if you're a driving fan, you know what fit where they were running in Philly is what ninety minutes from Midtown Manhattan. It's not far. Yeah. So Joe was singles was the bigger match. So, you know, I mean, look, you, this match is considered almost such a, the tag is such an afterthought these days that when I did the article for the 15th uh, anniversary a couple of years ago and I talked to Carrie Silken, Carrie didn't even remember the Philly show. Do you think that they could have ran a bigger venue in New York? So at this point, the New Yorker was the venue. It had been for several months. Um, I'm trying to remember how far in advance the sellout was. I'm not sure. Even though Dave said there was open space, there was a sellout. No, 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 no. He's saying there were people standing everywhere there was any space to stand is what he means. 
Oh, okay. Yes, right. Okay. Um, so they end, you know, they end up in December, you know, moving to Basketball City at Chelsea's Pier, which is, was a disaster that they stopped running after two shows, but held a lot more people. And then they move to, uh, they move back to New Yorker for one show. And then finally, the following September, they moved around the corner to the Manhattan Center. So, I mean, do you, are, I think if this is the first Manhattan Center show or something like that, I think it sells out with, you know, 1,200, 1,300 fans or whatever. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. All right, well, let's go back to uh, the match here. There was a Lakabashi chant in New York before he even came out. Well, okay, I should interject on this, and I'm, I hope Eric remembers this too. The initial Kabashi chant was because after the Komen, which was Homicide and Jack Evans, someone came out and brought stairs to the ring, because Arwitch never had stairs. And all the fans realized, oh, wait, Kabashi's knees are terrible. It's ta- That's the sign that Kabashi's about to come out, and started chanting his name. Well, there, well, there you go. Unfortunately, this is not on the video, which sucks. The first big spot was Joe slapping Kabashi hard in the face, allowing Kabashi to give him the famed Kabashi look. After backing Joe into the ropes, Kabashi let loose with a chop, and they were off. Joe dropkicked Kabashi through the ropes to the floor and followed with elbows to Asita, the move made famous by Kabashi's rival, Mitsuharu Masawa. Joe then put on the stretch plum, the move made famous by Toshiaki Kawada. They traded hard kicks by Joe and hard chops by Kabashi. Joe then delivered hard knees, put Kabashi down, and even gave him the ole ole kick. Kabashi put Joe in a chair and chopped him so hard he flew out of the chair, over the guardrail, and into the front row. Joe's chest was brutalized, and then Kabashi followed the trademark chops to the neck and shoulders, followed by yet another chop exchange. Kabashi used an abdominal stretch, face lock, and more chops. Kabashi went for a spinning back chop, but Joe blocked it, hit an STO and a running senton, and brutalized Kabashi with 15 kicks and chops, followed by a muscle buster for a great near fall. Joe did a powerbomb, turned into an SDF, but Kabashi made the ropes. Kabashi came back with his half Nelson German suplex, got Joe in the corner, delivered 100 chops in a row. Kabashi put on a choke, then took Joe over with a choke suplex. Joe came back, and when he went for the lariat, it was blocked by Kabashi, delivered a hard lariat of his own for the pin. The Philadelphia match is rated four and a quarter stars. Kabashi once again got big reaction. The crowd was hot for everything. The main chance were Burning Hammer for his really big match finisher, like in the 2003 match year with Masao, which he didn't do. And this is awesome. Joe's chest took another beating. And of course, this this one was five stars to New York match. So, um, all right. So, Eric, I'm going to you first. What are your memories of the match? And, um, you know, is that still the greatest match you've ever seen live? It, it definitely has to be up there. I can't I can't think of anything I've seen that was better, I'll say that much. And, yeah, it was just – I had very uh, tempered expectations for what Kobashi was going to put forth. Because, I mean, you know, it's a tenth of what he's – the crowds he's usually working in front of. So I was like, it'll be great to see him. And he went out there and just fully delivered like no one expected, I think. And, I mean, just from the, from the first chop, which was the loudest chop I've ever heard live, it was just, it just never stopped. It was fantastic. Yeah. Bix, uh, memories of, of watching this live? So the thing about Kabashi wanting to have the perfect match 
that had been in the Observer the prior week, too. And I want to say I got my Observer either Friday or early Saturday. So I had read the Observer before I went to the show. So when I was talking to people at the show who were skeptical that it was going to be like a full-scale Kabashi match, I was telling them, like, I don't know. This is what's in the Observer, et cetera, et cetera. And hold on. I have to cough. Vamp for a sec. Well, no, Bix is coughing here. <laughs> um, I don't know what to say while Bix is coughing, but he's coughing somewhere off the uh, off the air here. So, uh, Sorry, I'm getting I mean, a bad cold, so I'm trying my best. Um, and, you know, then it happens, and like Dave said, other than the crazy floor bump, which wasn't needed or really ever, he basically worked it like a Budokan main event. And it absolutely is the greatest match I've ever seen live for me, too. Um, you know, just for every reason possible, but also, like... It, uh, there's one other example I can give, which I'll get to in a second. But for a long time, it was the only only wrestling thing I'd ever been to that felt at all like a, you know, religious experience, so to speak. Just in the way the crowd reacted and the, the feeling in there and it being this, you know unique live experience the only thing i can say that comes close is which is a weird one too because he was people knew he was going to be on one of the shows the next day was tanahashi coming out as a surprise at wrestlecon super show in new orleans where people were like screaming and jumping up and down and hugging strangers and all that um but as a match i mean this is the one the I mean, the only thing that really comes, like, really close at all would be Danielson and Kenta from about a year later. But it just, it, you know, never thought I would get to see anything like a, you know, Hall Japan or Noah-style, you know, Kabashi main event live. And, you know, here we are. I was just able to take the train over. Nice and easy. And I only had to pay $30 to get a third row seat. Well, there you go. I mean, it's a good deal for uh, the Kabashi United States debut, which, again, the guy had been working for, you know, 17 years in the business. It's his first match in the United States, you know, which is crazy. But that's the All Japan thing. I mean, their guys didn't come over here. Well, after... technically a second, because he did have the Wild Wade Chisholm, Chisholm match the uh, week before. Well, we're about, and we're about to talk about that, too. If a tree falls in the fall, <laughs> all that stuff because he did. I mean, it was in Eldon, Missouri, and we'll, we'll talk about that right now. Since you brought it up, matches both nights were taped for both Nippon TV, the broadcast network of Noah, as well as Samurai TV for broadcast later this month. The Kitakabashi Way Chisholm, that's Chisholm, match it from September 24th in Eldon, Missouri, aired on Samurai this past weekend. Kabashi 38 has probably been the best for us in the world over the past 15 years. Wrestle year 96, 2003, and 2004. Most know about the latter two years where his career was considered over after something like a dozen knee surgeries and won the year on the shelf. Even in five matches at one match of the year, dozens of others that placed. When he was voted on Hall of Fame in 2002, he got 98% of the vote. A told that would likely never be surpassed. And until last week, he never wrestled in the United States. To people who have traded tapes, there's no one better. The Ring of Honor Booker Gabe Sapolsky is the highlight of his wrestling career. 
noting that when he started trading tapes in 1991, the, first, the big thing was six-man tag matches from all Japan when Kabashi was getting his first big push. Kabashi and Noah are believed to have gotten $9,000 ring of honor for the appearance on the two shows, which the company was expecting would result in huge DVD sales of the shows, particularly the New York show, and costs were also offset by much of the New York crowd paying $20 for pictures and autographs with Kobashi after the show. So what are your memories of that? I mean, how many people were lining up to uh, get their picture taken with Kobashi? Do you guys remember? I have no recollection of the meet and greet at all. I remember that it happened, but that's it. Yeah, I actually completely forgot about that, too, until I read this. But, I mean, I remember at the time, I was, money was real tight for me, so I wouldn't have had, you know, as sadly as it is, the 20 bucks to meet Kobashi. But I think me and my friends just, were just trying to get out in the mob of people at that point because the – but then you had a very weird layout. Like, you had to go upstairs and, like, around, like, kind of a balcony to get into where the, the ring was. Yeah, yeah. Having that after the show, that and what? What? So, what time did the show end? Do you remember what time the show was over? How long the show went? Um, I don't think it went more than three hours. So probably ten forty-five, eleven o'clock. Do you think that that would have been a better idea? Maybe to do that before the show. I think they wanted to save Kabashi's first appearance for the match for the end. Well, I get, I get that, but you know. Is it there at a certain time where you, I don't know, I, it may not be, I guess, not like that in the city, uh, a certain cutoff time for riding the subway, is there? No. Okay, because I know it's like that Mexico City. Well, the <laughs> over, like the overnight work and schedules, it varies, but it starts at more like 1130-ish, depending on the train, if there's work on it. So there is that. Because, you know, I mean, you kind of want to be able to, if you're on the, if you're riding the subway or taking buses or shit like that, you kind of want get to get back to your home, you know? And uh, if you're standing around waiting in line for uh, Kabashi, then, and yeah, did they do it right after the match or did he go to the back and change and shower? I'm I mean, not sure. That's in, that's an interesting thing to think about is how that was handled. Yeah, because I was going to say, I'm sure Kobashi would have rather done it before the show. I mean, with what they're talking about with him, you know, his various injuries and all that. I'm sure yeah. Done it earlier in the evening when he was still it, fresh. Exactly. I mean, if he's got like a busted eardrum, I'm sure that uh, standing around taking pictures with some dickhead fans weren't uh, wasn't his idea of a good time. <laughs> Man. All right. Well. Anything else on, you know, that match in particular before we move on to the other happenings of Ring of Honor? Eric, go to you first. Uh, the, the one thing I kind of remembered, so, you know, I was saying I didn't, you know, expect much, but I remember some people that, like, were talking around us were expecting way too much. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, maybe he'll do a burning hammer and he'll probably beat him with a moonsault. I was like, he ain't doing no damn moonsault here. <laughs> like, he doesn't have too many of those left in him. <laughs> I mean, Kabashi, this is 2005 Kabashi. You know, I mean, he's not, he's still doing these these big time matches and stuff, but he's not the guy who was working even just two years earlier, you know? Yeah. Right. He wasn't that same guy. I mean, he still could do stuff, but he wasn't the 2003 Kabashi because he was so fucking banged <laughs> up. So, yeah, I mean, you go with those high expectations because what you've seen, but. 
You know, you got sometimes got to be realistic. Bix, any any uh, more thoughts from you? Um, other than just like it's hard to describe like that atmosphere. Um, one piece of trivia I'll just throw in from when I did that fanbite article. Um, ROH is in that era, as people might remember, had a noticeably bouncy ring, and Ken Hirayama from NOLA sees the ring and is immediately like, oh no, that doesn't work for Kabashi's knees. So they had to send people, students, whoever, hotel room by hotel room around the New Yorker to get blankets and comforters to wrap around the flex beams of the ring so it would be more stable for Kabashi's knees. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Yeah, I mean... He needed that. He needed stairs when everyone else could just roll in the ring, and he still had the best match we've ever seen live. Yeah. Pretty wild. Pretty wild. All right. Jim Cornette debuted on October 2nd Philly as the new authority figure. They booked a lot of DQ and screwy endings of late as a storyline explanation for him. The deal was actually to tease it was Paul Bear, expecting people to shit on it. And it had to be Cornette. It started Ricky Reyes destroying Ring of Honor school graduate Eric Dempsey. Bobby Dempsey's brother ran into the ring and teased that Reyes killed his brother and said to call an Undertaker. So they played music similar to the Undertaker's theme and Bear came out and like he was a heel. However, probably because most of the audience realize that real life hasn't dealt Bear a very good hand in the past few years. And it was an appreciative crowd. The people cheered him. Cornette came out and gave a speech about turning wrestling back into sports. And not in sports entertainment, took a shot at W Prada. He said Bear had been lying to the people for 14 years, and he's really Percy Pringle. And he did some Pringle stuff. After that, Cornette told the Rottweilers and Julius Smith nobody would be allowed to ringside to ruin the Kabashi Homicide Joe Lowkey match. And then Cornette said he was shutting up because people came to see wrestling. And we should note that this is just a couple months removed. Well, I guess, what, two and a half months removed from being fired by WWE for slapping Santino? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, did ROH really need an authority figure? No. Because, <laughs> boy, does this all, the, the beginning of this angle sound like what's going on with AEW right now? Mm. Where they're having these screwy DQ or screws. I mean, I'm serious, DQ finishes, but stuff that Tony is talking about, you know, with Paul Turner and this, that, and the other. Do you think that this, that I mean that this is going to lead to AEW having an authority figure? I I don't think so. I think it's going to lead to something with Paul Turner. I don't know if that's a heel ref thing or just oh a, great that's what wrestling needs. Well, that's what I'm saying. Or like a kind of reestablish the rules kind of you know we're going to take no shit now thing. But I don't think it's going to go much further than that. It's just what we need in wrestling: more authority figures. Good lord. <laughs> And Ring of Honor definitely was not the promotion to have an authority figure, but it, I mean, it was Jim Cornette and Erica 2005. Jim Cornette was looked at differently by uh, the fans that would be attending Ring of Honor shows as it would be now. Yeah, it seems absurd now to think of introducing Jim Cornette to Ring of Honor and it being accepted positively, but again, it's a very different perception of him at the time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, in a surprise, Sal Renaro, who's still working, 
especially in my area. And Tony Mamaluke won the tag titles from Jimmy Jacobs and BJ Whitmer on October first in New York in a good match. Then kept him by beating Dunn and Marcos the next night in Philadelphia. Finished with a ladder match was messed up, and they did just pinfall anyway. How about that title change? Did you guys expect that to go down that night in New York? Mm, I definitely did not. <laughs> Fix? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a surprise back then. Definitely. I mean, I liked Sal and Mamaluk as a team, though. Yeah. They worked well together, and it probably was time for a title change, but it was a very... It was a weird move, especially because, like, I feel like there had been a few times now where they tried to use the tag titles to get over makeshift teams, like, kind of suddenly. So I just, it, as a booking move, it was weird. So, I don't know, just, just strange, though, because again, Salad... I mean, Sal, you know, had been there before in Special K sometimes, but he had just, he hadn't been around in a while even, had he? Before recently, at this point, I don't think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The idea of booking both undercars is that Kobashi would guarantee people would be happy, so undercars were designed to expose new people, including Jimmy Yang. You know, he lost to James Gibson and Christopher Daniels, and trying to elevate Matt Seidel, who beat Jimmy Rave in Philadelphia. And, of course, Roderick Strong. Still, there's concern that they are pushing Strong to Ring of Honor title level, while at the same time he's doing TV jobs on Impact. Also in New York, Nigel McGinnis used a foreign object to beat Jay Lethal to keep the pure title. Although they didn't wrestle, they teased both nights a Colt Cabana versus Homicide program. James Gibson got pleased, more please don't go and thank you and MVP chance both nights. He basically picked Strong Person to do a clean job for in a match that went 28-52 in Philadelphia. That's going to be very good. Gibson verbally put over Strong as a future Ring of Honor after the bout. Gibson looked like he was about to cry at the start. Gibson's final appearance at Ring of Honor's greatest wrestling promotion in the world, and the fans of Ring of Honor gave him back his passion for wrestling. And Dave guesses he recognizes he's about to lose it again, but when you got a family, you got to make these decisions. And, I mean, look... I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, like, if you knew you knew, and it wasn't a surprise to see him show out the way he did in his year away from WWE, but I feel like it's forgotten these days that for a year there, Jamie Noble was very clearly one of the very best wrestlers in the world. He definitely uh, took that year to, um, you know, really show out. Because he went on, I mean, whether it was the Indies, New Japan, or whatever, I mean, he... He went out and showed what he could do, what he was capable of. But, like Dave says, got paid the bills when you got a family. And it's basically what everyone assumed ha- would happen and what he was told when he got fired. You can come back in a year. Which <laughs> I should probably t- remind everyone why he got fired, shouldn't I, if we're talking about this? Yeah, I guess. He had gotten an abscess on his butt. Uh, turned into a cyst or maybe vice versa went to the doctor for it told the doctor it was from shooting steroids and then he tried to file a claim with WWE for it being not in the job injury no yeah alright that'll definitely get you fired yeah 
All right, so let's go to the figure four weekly and their rundown of the uh, New York show. So the big show, quick recap. Claudio Castanoli beat Cole Cabana in a good opener. The idea was a homicide in the balcony distracted Cabana leading to the finish, but the balcony was situated such that almost nobody could see this, so there was much confusion live. It'll look fine on the DVD, Brian was sure. So, yeah, well, the... I mean, the balcony, the way it didn't really hang and that it was only on one side, like, yeah, I mean, especially, like, you couldn't see it at all where I was under it, and it was hard for a lot of people to see it, so it was not the best idea to do two finishes in the same period that relied on the balcony. Well, there you go. Now, one thing I do remember about this match, though, and it was a good opener, the perfectionism of, I guess it's Gabe... I don't know if it's Gabe or Sal or Sal at Gabe's Direction or whatever. With editing, the DVDs always bothered me. It's one thing to do some edits if you're in post-production, but the thing I always remember from this match, there's a spot where Cabana's going to do like some kind of run-off-the-ropes lucha arm drag, and he slips. And he immediately covers for it by doing a comedy spot where he's checking his pulse, worried that he's having a heart attack or something. And it was this nice little moment to cover for him slipping, which is the big thing that stuck out for me in that match. It was a good match, but still, that's what stuck out. And then they edited it out on the DVD. (laughs) I feel like they used it as so so much of a crutch that they, they jumped on anything that didn't go right, when I don't think that's the right way to do it. Yeah. Right, Christopher Daniels beat Matt Seidel and Ezreal in a three-way. Weird match for Daniels, working here second from the top in a throwaway match where they didn't even use him to put over a rising star like Seidel. Said it'd be fun, though. And Clancy, which I can't remember. Clancy, what was his last Clancy name? Clancy Kilpatrick. Clancy Kilpatrick called the second best match of the night. I wouldn't go that far, but also, so far with the two matches, holy shit, as far as people who barely age. Well, that's what I was just telling them to bring up the air. How about in this match, the only guy that's lying around no more is Asriel. Asriel still works, <laughs> though, and he's still great. Yeah. yeah, but, I mean, he's not on, like, a you know, major scene or nothing. Well, he'll work, he works occasional GCW and he'll work the JCW shows, though. So he's, he's visible on the right shows. Um, I think it's just that he has a good shoot job and doesn't bother putting himself out there much. Well, Claudio looks younger now than he did back then. We're talking about him well, just then, so... Yeah, but, I mean, look, I mean, Claudio, Cabana, Daniel, Seidel, Azrael, like, all guys who are still quite good in the ring and can move well and don't seem to be too, you know, beat up or anything. Mm-hmm. 17 years yeah. later. Yeah. Sauronaro and Tony Mamalu debuted as a team and won the Ring of Honor tag titles from Whitmer and Jacobs, who were indeed the tag team champions. Said it'd be a good match with a great finish, described as a double team head drop. Mamalu was said to look exactly the same as he always has, meaning after all this time, he hasn't learned a thing about moving past this level. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, Tony Mamalu always looked like the type of guy who just had an extremely fast metabolism and probably couldn't put on much size. That's not what he means, Bix. <laughs> oh, I th- he's talking what, about working. I th- no, he, I thought you said look wise. No, looks exactly the same okay. as he always has. Meaning, all this time he still hasn't learned about a thing about moving past. What does that this mean? Then? Level. Because he was working his technical style, not his 
You think that's what he means? Yeah, I guess. I don't I, know. I think he means look-wise. What would that level be, though, Big? So he, that he mean moving past this level if it's about his physical The energy physical level. To get back on TV. I, that's what I thought he meant. I don't know. But um, I believe the finish was basically like a double-team, one-wing angel, flamingo driver kind of thing. That's I was gonna say it was yeah double team Rubik's cube, yeah, it was it was pretty gross looking. Yeah, Nigel McGinnis has gone total heel and gets a total heel reaction because everyone used to love him. Has now a rage to turn. Beat Jay Lethal to retain the pure title after hitting him with his iron. <laughs> Fun basic match. Yep, Nigel's uh, getting ready to move up that ladder as we go along here. Roderick Strong beat Jimmy Rave. Sorry, this was the match where Jay turned babyface. She tore off her bedsheet to reveal a hot outfit, and everyone went nuts. Brian loved the fact that they dressed her up in a giant sheet, but allowed her to wear lingerie or whatever underneath. Shouldn't she be required to wear a prison jumpsuit or something? So anyway, she's with Strong now. Rave also gets good. He is a heel. After the match, Strong challenged the embassy to a steel cage warfare match at the December New York City show. Which Brian would assume would be a war games match where they don't have to deal with the illegal. Yeah, Jade, uh, Jay Chung, um, turning on the embassy here, Bix, in this deal. I'm trying to remember, did they, like, do any hints that she might be turning soon, or did they just jump into it? I don't remember. I feel like they did some kind of build where, like, you know, she would hesitate to cheat for them and stuff like that. Like, I think there was a little bit of it leading up. But there was but... no the turn is coming imminently kind of thing. Right. But yeah. anytime you anytime you have a hot chick do that type of deal where she's wearing, like, a sheet or something, you know what's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, that is obvious. And this did get over great live. I mean, this, well, I'm sure it did. <laughs> I mean, the turn probably got the biggest non kabashi pop of the show. A lot of horny guys in that crowd, I'm sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure it uh, did get over. Do we think the uh, horny guys in that crowd are now subscribers to her OnlyFans? <laughs> hey, you know, hey, she she still looks good today, so I'm sure they are. So. For sneaker themed OnlyFans. <laughs> Ricky Reyes squashed Billy Primo in a minute. Billy Primo. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> Poor Pelly. <laughs> Billy Primo. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he just loved that at the time. <laughs> Pelly Primo, aka Billy Primo. <laughs> That's hilarious. They must have plans for Reyes if they're flying him out for California to wrestle for one minute, which he did all night too as well. Primo was said to be whiter than American Dragon. That ought to see to believe, Brian said. <laughs> yeah. And we got James Gibson over Jimmy Yang. Loud, please don't go, Chance. No one chanted you sold out, however. Well, that's good. Another good match. Finish was a little wonky, and they may have botched it. Gibson killed him with a Tiger driver. That might have been the plan finish, but Yang kicked out perhaps because he was not batty. And one of those rare occasions where it really happened, kicked out on instinct. So Gibson put him in the trailer hitch submission and Yang tapped. Crouch and MVP and thank you afterwards. Yeah, man. If Yang was knocked out, instincts do, uh, do kick in. That does happen, so, yeah. The big thing I remember from this match is that just in terms of, like, the presentation he was going for at the time and charisma-wise, 
that of the guys on the undercard, that Jimmy Yang actually came off like a bigger star than most people on the show. Well, I mean, he had national TV experience. And had been in all so that, and stuff at this point. Yeah. So. I, I just yeah. remember that. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, yeah, I just remember that he just, he, the whole match was basically him trying to hit the Yang time. And I was like, I know he can do other stuff. So I, I always thought that was a little weird. Like, it just seemed like. His the whole match would be you know Gibson beating him up, goes for the Yang time misses, gets beat up some more, goes for the Yang time again, and that was the whole match. Yeah. All right. Um, Jack Evans beat Homicide at the Coca Bad Distracted Homicide. The last time these two wrestled, Homicide killed poor young Jack. But Brian was told this time around the only time Jack died was when he killed himself, which Brian assumed was something that happened with much frequency. It was okay. And then we got the main event. Joe and Kobashi. Crowd pop for absolutely everything. That includes the ring steps, which I had to bring out for Kobashi, because, perhaps because his knees are so bad he needs assistance getting into the ring before putting on his five-star matches. He's like Ali. The crowd cheer for chops, for lockups, for the Kobashi look, tilt the bang, tra- the trademark, everything. Joe was chopped to the point where he was bruised and bleeding. An Ole chop occurred. Joe singing a chair got chopped, sorry, flew to the first row. These were the greatest chops I've seen, Clancy said. Crowd went ape shit when Joe hit the muscle bus for near fall. Thing is, they were doing this match, and the match night after, there were people, and Brian included, who thought Joe might win this one. So it wasn't the case of everyone going in knowing Joe was going to lose, which Brian sure added significantly to the heat. Kabashi gave him 100 chops in the corner and put a sleeper. He waited 30 seconds for turning the sleeper into a head drop in German, and the fans who had never seen that before pissed themselves. Finish was him killing, and pretty much every single solitary report Brian got, and Brian got a lot of them, the word killing was accentuated. Joe with a lair for the pin. Every fan in the building simultaneously spontaneously combusted at the finish. Seriously, from Ring of Mirrored reports, this one does matches that was pretty much already the stuff of legend. As soon as the bell rang to send him the finish. Thank you to Ring of Honor, Kinokabashi, and Samoa Joe for giving a memory that I will carry for the rest of my life, Clancy said. After this match, I can never say that I hate wrestling again and truly mean it. Pre-order your copy now. All right, so Brian brings us something here that we haven't touched on yet. The finish of this match and the thought going in of who would win. Um, Did you guys think that it was a block that Kabashi was going to win, or was there some doubt that maybe Joe would win this one? I think I thought that it was probably Kabashi, but then as the match started going on, I remember, I think I did definitely bite on the muscle buster. Eric? Yeah, about the same. Like, you know, I assumed it would be Kobashi going in, but then when I saw how the match was playing, I was like, oh, no, this this really could kind of go either way. I guess the reason you would think Kobashi was going to lose is that wrestling logic, so to speak, would say this this guy's not going to be here. He's an outsider coming in, big match. This is one of our top guys. He's going to you know do the favor to get the – you know, get keep that guy over. But as you know, Dave was saying earlier, you got a guy like Kobashi and you have a match like this. A loss to Kobashi got Joe as over over even more than a win would have gotten him over. And I think in hindsight, if Kobashi didn't win the match, I think more fans may have been upset. I think the fans want him to win. Yes. You know? Also, not exaggerating that it seems like a lot of the fans had not been watching Noah and thus had no idea about the sleeper suplex. 
Yeah. Because I remember that crowd just freaking out when that happened. Like, they did not expect that whatsoever. Well, just imagine if he would have had <laughs> had the chance with, you, with those knees. At that time, it would have been tough. He tried to give Joe the diamond head. <laughs> well, he only tried the diamond head once, and it was on Kanemaru, and even that went badly. Yeah. <laughs> and Joe being as big as he was, Kobashi's knees would have collapsed. All right, let's get some... Go ahead, go ahead, real quick. Go ahead, Aaron. Uh, uh, yeah, all the suplexes that Joe took were real nasty because he took two half Nelsons. And I, remember the, I think it was the first one is just horrific, just completely upside down on top of his head. And the sleeper suplex landing is real ugly, too. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, those are always uh, some tough ones. <laughs> That's for sure. All right, we got some torch stuff here. Claudio Castanelli impressed Ring of Honor officials in a live crowd with both his performances last weekend. He will now be a regular in Ring of Honor. And he would. And that worked out well for him. Mm-hmm. Ring of Honor is claiming that both BJ Whitmer and Nigel McGinnis were knocked out and were out on their feet during their match last weekend. McGinnis had a far away look in his eyes after retaining the pure title. Yeah, this ROH Newswire thing bragging about when guys got concussions really doesn't age well. Well, it's thankfully, it's the uh, less head injury Nigel McGinnis will ever get. So. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and Milano Collection 8T is now living in San Antonio with Rudy Boy Gonzalez, so we'll be staying in the U.S. for the foreseeable future. He'll start back regularly in November. And he was gone after a few shows. Kenzo Hiroko Suzuki came up looking for work. Kenzo's way too big and also not good, which makes him basically all wrong for Ring of Honor. If he is used, it would be more likely for an outside-the-ring bodyguard role. And that did not happen. Nope. Could you imagine if that did, though? <laughs> yeah. Chris, do you have any recollection with what the deal with Milano was, though? Um, Because this is him splitting off from Dragon Gate originally, right? Yes. Yeah. But, um, <sighs> there was something. I cannot. It's been years and years, so I can't remember. But there was something going on. Um, he was not happy with, um, with, uh, well, what was going on with the change of power and all that stuff going on in that company, but there was some other things going on too. Uh, there were rumors of, um, some personal heat with some people. Um, I don't remember all of it, so I'm not going to speculate, but uh, I think it was involving Shima. I think that was part of it. Uh, um, was making friends, that guy. So, um, yeah. There was some issues, let's put it that way. And then, what do you remember what happened as far as the U.S. run that it kind of never really got kick-started the way it was supposed to? Uh, no, I just think it was time for him to go. I mean, he could go back, and he went back to Japan. So, yeah, I mean... It's interesting to want to look at that guy's career and, you know, where he was looked at as one of the future stars of the business. And then he leaves and then, you know, he has his little revival in New Japan and then he's hurt and has to retire. So, yeah, he's had quite the uh, career arc, that's for sure. Yeah. So I'm looking real quick at Cage, man. She came to the U.S. in September. His earliest listed uh, U.S. match is at an Anarchy show in Cornelia against Schizo. I remember that. (laughs) Which I guess was coming in with other Rudy Boy guys. 
then he's in the U.S. through, it looks like, March or, no, April, even farther than I thought. So, like, April, uh, I mean, in further, pretty, like, I guess more like halfway, late spring 2006. But uh, the ROH run, for whatever reason, whether it was money or something else, just doesn't get going, and he's gone after a few shows. Yeah. I don't know. All right, now let's go to some total nonstop action. And we go to Brian Alvarez, naturally. The first ever TNA Impact on Spike TV opened with the usual awesome David Sahani video package. My God, they had some awesome moments turned into an awesome, awesome, awesome video. It was one of the greatest new beginnings to a promotion I've ever seen. And when Russo was booking WCW, I think I saw a new one every three weeks or so. Sure enough, they did what SmackDown didn't. That being overhauled the set there in Orlando. Production values were out of this world. It was only an hour of the fill. It was what they were after another. Bam, bam, bam. Which is at the opposite of WWE, which is trademarked. And hopefully this is a trademark they will enforce. The boring 20-minute pro- show opening promo. Yeah, it's about we only have one hour. So it's not a two-hour impact. And on Saturday night, too, at 11. Mm-hmm. It's in the old uh, Velocity spot. So. All right, AJ Styles and Roger Strong was your opening match. Crowd was absolutely out of their minds. Knowing the stakes, you could tell these guys were feeling the pressure. What aired was actually an amalgamation of two matches. They'd gone on first in the opening match on the first ever TNA on Spike. It was a huge disappointment, particularly the finish, which was badly botched. So they're brought out again after the first hour to basically retape it, and both bouts were edited together to make this match right here. Hopefully everyone will relax after week one. Chris Daniels came out to watch. AJ hit Styles, the Styles Clash with a pin. A hell of a way to kick off the show. But boy, I'm glad this was Tate, wasn't they? <laughs> I mean, this is the advantage of taping a television show. You know, you're able to do this type of editing. I mean, live is great. It's always great to have a live show. But if these guys would have went out there and just had botch after botch after botch, I mean, that would have been something that would have you know, been you know, in memory forever for people. Yeah. You know, so it's a good thing for them that this was taped. And I mean, I just, I'm curious if it was nerves, if they knew that this, that they were going to be the first match on spike and we can't screw up, but we screw up anyway. I mean, I wonder if that was actually the part of it. I don't know. I think it makes sense. Yeah. The announcement of the program, Mike Tanay was in a tuxedo. Don West was in a striped shirt. Yay, Don West! <laughs> a great video package aired introducing viewers to Monty Brown, which included footage from his football days. Monty then cut a very wacky promo in which he was Monty Brown. Shane Douglas was perplexed. And then he got word there was commotion in the back. Commotion was an irate raven laying out people left and right with trash can shots. What a madman. Larry Zabisco had him booted out. Oh, yes, this is the days of Shane Douglas, interviewer. <laughs> Interesting time, you know, with uh, him doing that. He was someone that, you know, you wouldn't think would be in that position, but he did it and did okay. Yeah, I thought he was pretty good at it. Yeah. Monty Brown then wrestled unnamed white man. It's a good minute for the man was identified as Lex Lovett, who retired about three months ago and has since obviously unretired. Welcome to wrestling. 
Young Lex Lovett did a great job as a job guy for Monty Brown, who was very scary and killed him with a pounce. God, Eric, you watch Monty Brown in this era of TNA, you think this guy's going to be one of the next big superstars in the business. And uh, he's, he's become a you know an internet legend since then. But, man, what unfulfilled potential there. Yeah, they had so much of that. I mean, they would just always, you know, fall into what they were known for, which is, uh, who got released from WWF recently? Let's push them. And, I mean, so many, I mean, between that, like him and America's Most Wanted and pretty much all the X Division guys, like, they had so many chances to build someone and have their own identity, and they would just never take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he went to WWE and... I mean, who knows what would have happened there, but I mean, look, he left wrestling for the right reasons to take care of his family, so it is what it is. Yeah. Next up is a very good exhibition video package. Brian predicts this show will compel WWE to push Screws Red Division again for, oh, about three weeks. The bad news for them is that even if they do get serious, guess who doesn't have the best roster cruise waste of the world yet again? Yeah, WWE. They'll sleep with the wheel, just like they were in 1995. I mean, Yeah. <laughs> But that just wasn't their business model back then, you know? That wasn't what they wanted. Times have changed. But back then, it wasn't like that. So I get what Brian's saying, but, you know, come on. Next, a three-way dance. Petey Williams against Alex Shelley against Chris Saban. Oh, gee, I wonder who's booking. (laughs) You will never guess what the first spot this match was. I said never. It was, as God is my witness, the Nudo. Yuppers, Alex Shelley tied Chris Saban up in the Nudo, probably for the first time in history on non-Galavision United States television, and it was grand. Big you-all, three-die, die spot. Saban nailed both his shins on the barricade. It'll be hurting in a few years. Well, worse, he's hurting right now. Sadly, they cut to commercial in the middle of the match. Duel, let's go Saban, let's go PD chance. Sucks to be Shelley. Everyone for near fall to near fall. They tease Canadian destroyer, but did not deliver. Listen, I think that a move is early as that move is early absurd, but that's not the sort of move you don't deliver on show one. In a melee, Saban pins Shelly with a cradle shock, and then no sooner should I write the deal about the destroyer than Petey hooks Saban and laid him out with it. Yay, Terry! <laughs> here's the thing with the destroyer, and I think we've learned this as it's become so surprisingly ubiquitous. Even though he's the guy who popularized it, Petey Williams wasn't that good at it. <laughs> I, That's lot, how it works sometimes. Lots of guys since then have done a much better job, sometimes by doing it as like a running start or what, or various other ways. Of, but they do a much better job of making it look like they're head-scissoring the guy. And that clearly makes a difference in terms of making it look decent. Like... The, the, all the destroyers these days would bother me so much more if they looked like Petey Williams destroyers. And, Just, now he's an, and now he's an agent for WWE. Yes, and <laughs> the other two are still on Impact TV. Yes. <laughs> well, after That's long amazing. absences, but well, I mean, let's look. I mean, so we had AJ Styles and Roderick Strong both in WWE. Monty Brown, Lex Lovett. Well, they're out of the business, and then we have these three. So we'll have more to come. Yeah. Backstage, Larry Zbysko pulled Tito Ortiz into his office. There was a big pop for Tito in the building. Shane Douglas was flabbergasted. You think after all these years in the business, nothing would surprise him anymore. <laughs> uh, 
Tito Ortiz and TNA. That was a pretty big deal for him. You got to give him that. That was a, that was a good pull. And it would definitely time. be better of the Tito Ortiz uh, TNA appearances. <laughs> yes. Next, Rhino against Jeff Hardy. The wrestling. Well, this should be something else. During the match, Tanae and Wes are trying to explain the concept of the Monster Balls match next pay-per-view. Monster it's not Balls? Just a... <laughs> Monster's Ball. <laughs> it's not just a wacky hardcore match. No. What happens is all the men get locked in a room for 24 hours. They get no food, no water, no light. And then at 9.30 p.m. or whatever the next day, they're unleashed and thrown into a ring for a wrestling match. I was trying to figure out why any human being would sign a contract that would match with those stipulations, but then it hit me that Jeff Hardy should have a major disadvantage. Major advantage, excuse me, because from looking at him, it appears he's regularly locked inside a room for days at a time with no food, water, or life. <laughs> Jeff and Rhino had your basic raw match, just a way more heat. Today was even putting over the TNA ring ropes. Well, I got to agree with the guy. Cables are much better. Jeff finally had a twist of fate, but Abyss at the ring calls fans sing the Abyss song. Also for the DQ. Bad guys beat on Jeff until the lights went out and Sabu hit the ring. Surprisingly, no one died in the resulting melee. Sabu saving Jeff Hardy. That sounds glorious. <laughs> My goodness. Clips aired of Jared winning the title at the, well, not house show. At least they have something in the can in case they ever start doing house shows. And no, I do not yet think house shows would be a good idea. They haven't even gotten out of Orlando for TV yet. Though with that said, with the way Orlando is these days, I do not recommend them leaving any time in the near future. <clears throat> it was a Border City show, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Speaking of Jarrett, Jarrett and America's Most Wanted came out doing a poor man's evolution gimmick. Jeff was wearing the cheapest $500 shirt I ever saw, and the other two were wearing suit jackets and jeans. Jared also did his best Hunter impersonation with the boring rant we've heard 16 million times in the past three years. I guess it was new for everyone else, though. He said there was one more piece in the puzzle, and that piece was the smartest Canadian in the world, Scott Damore. So much for not writing TV and being on TV at the same time. They were all ranting and raving when Three Live Crew came out. Conan wanted to know where his dogs were at. Then added, Jeff, this is our first show on Spike TV, and you're already boring the people half to death. Jeff there didn't make him shut up. A brawl broke out. Good guys are doing fine until Team Canada hit the ring. Who should come out to even the odds? But Team 3D, as in the former Dudleys now. I guess the Deadlies, or maybe not. Team 3D, Don was screaming. Team 3D, Team 3D, Team 3D. Dudleys hit both AMW with a 3D and went up to Jared, but he grabbed the ropes and bailed. He's back on the ramp when Kevin Nash's music came out and chased him back. Dudley's, who Brian believed was referred to as Devon and Brother Ray, hit the headbutt to the groin spot. Then Nash gave Jared a powerbomb. Huge pop and loud TNA chance. Nash then quit quite the lackluster promo. Said so the preview he was going to win the NBA title for Jared. Devon then grabbed the mic and challenged AMW for the tag titles. Dom was losing his mind, and that was it. Brother Ray Deadly <laughs> and D Brother Devon Deadly. I guess we brothers, need. Or team I guess we. Yeah, I guess we need Don. I guess if we're gonna play a clip on this show, I guess we need Don West when the when the Dudleys showed up. Bix. You mean the Dudleys? The Dudleys. Whatever. Team 3D. Okay, I'm queuing it up. Give me one second with this version that's on Daily Motion. Which, holy Bookeritis with Scott Demore, by the way. 
<laughs> well, he is a Vince Russo protege. I mean, he, he's also a Terry Taylor protege. Oof. <laughs> I hope Bloodstorm Pro shows don't look like this. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Take it off mute. Come on, everybody, and take a good look. For the last four months, I've been told what to do. Well, now the shoe is on the other foot. Everybody in the back. Oh, I guess I can skip ahead a little more than I realized. You don't want to hear the signs of Conan? <laughs> no. Alright, here we go. Oh, oh, the Canadians hit the ring, and now you talk about strength in numbers. Jerry, AMW, and Team Canada taking control. Inserted a TNA chant that clearly didn't happen during the segment. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you. Thanks to you, big guy. One more thing. Bound for glory. Kevin Nash has some unfinished business. It's me and him. NWA World Title. That's coming home to me, buddy. Let's hear from Brother Ray. Let's give the people what they want. Tell us, Steve Vaughn, what do they want? Next week, NWA. Oh, God, love Don West. I like how it becomes very apparent that they badly timed out the show. Well, of course. With how much editing there is going on at the end. Um, yeah. Do it! Do it! <laughs> That's great. God bless Don. Yeah. One thing I'll say, too, you know, the original impacts on Soundstage, when they actually had fairly packed crowd in there. It did look good on TV. And it's a hot crowd. Yeah. I mean, Dudley's debut, I mean, that's a hot, hot-ass crowd. Yes. Also, the Dale Oliver's uh, Power Man 5000 ripoff did not sound great. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's getting interesting. It's for uh, something else, I'll tell you that. Overall, Brian thought this was just about the best first show they could have possibly had. There are definitely people, including Dave Meltzer, who disagreed, citing among other things that it was too rushed. Brian's feeling this. Next week, yes, if they go back, if they go this pace, it'll be too fast. But for week one, the first show on the new network with a product that was going to be seen for the first time by a lot of fans is exactly the show they needed. Excuse me. A bam, bam, bam show with fast action, quick matches, and multiple short and sweet segments. This show is not about building to the pay-per-view. This show is about getting people's attention, holding their attention so that for 60 minutes, the period in which they would get their first taste of TNA, they could not turn the channel. And then they proceed to book every show and format every show like this for the rest of their existence as the original <laughs> TNA. Pretty much. Even if it's two hours. To the back! Brian said, I've been the notoriously shortest inch span, as most of you are aware. It could be a chore for me to sit through a one-hour Ohio Valley, and those old TNA pay-per-views were murderous. I realize it's hardly scientific to judge overall merits of a show by my own personal reaction to it, but I will say this show for what hour held my attention. Had I been a new fan, not once would I have turned the channel, and therefore I would have been exposed to all that TNA has to offer. Young guys like AJ having exciting matches, the hot moves like the wacky Canadian Destroyer, the rising stars like Monty Brown, the recognizable names like Kevin Nash, Team 3D, the six-sided ring, etc. As a point out, us, we're in this issue, one TNA's biggest advantages is their crowd. They got the impact zone. This crowd was so rabid and so irritating, the product really came off as the hot new thing. Watching me after Friday SmackDown probably added to the positive feeling I had when the show was over. I went from a show that came off as being completely stale, with storylines that haven't advanced in seemingly four months, with slow-paced matches and a dead crowd, to this. A show that really came off like a new and in many ways superior alternative. But, yes, like I said, next week things have to slow down. TNA isn't making much money off the show itself, like Raw and SmackDown now. They will make money if they are able to use the television to build the pay-per-views. 
at the show that hooked you viewers with what was great. But now, to keep those viewers and turn them into fan customers, they need to script the show so that every segment has one purpose, and that is to build towards pay-per-views. Week one was a two-hour show packed into 60 minutes. Perhaps things go well, they'll eventually get two hours. But for now, starting next week, the shows need to be one-hour shows packed into 60 minutes. Eric, what was your thoughts on TNA at this time period and uh, you know their roster and all the stuff they got going on here? Uh, definitely just kind of all over the place. Like they had some good things. They had some things that did not work as well. Uh, aren't we now I'm trying to remember if I have the years, right? Aren't we about a month and a half out from Kurt Angle at this point? No, that's 06. Yeah. It can run together. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It's 2006. But I mean, yeah, I mean, this was a, a really good debut for the on Spike. It's just we know what, what happened after this. But Brian's right, though. No matter what you can say about TNA, it looked different than what WWE was doing at that time. Yes. And part of the reason was those crowds. Yes. So. Well, let's go to the ratings from Dave. Hmm. Yes. Day TNA debuted on November, on November, October 1st in the Velocity Time slot with a 0.78 rating, 850,000 viewers. The median age was 35, which is slightly younger than Velocity, where the median age is 41. TNA was strongest with males 25 to 34, with a 0.88. The same demo as UFC. TNA was no doubt helped by having a lead in as a repeat strongest episode of the season of Bulls with Fighter. But the good news is they retained viewership at the end of the show with Jeff Jarrett. The former Dudley's three live crew and Kevin Nash was up about 23%. That figure may be slightly off, but not by much from the other three quarters. Which the point is in that time slot, Velocity usually lost viewers every quarter since it was getting late. And if IW fans were tuned in expecting to see Velocity or a USC fan who hadn't switched the channel were men responsible for that rating, either they were intrigued enough by what they saw to stick with it, or in some form the show was successful in keeping and growing the audience. For TNS, a lot more important than what they're doing a month, even three months from now, than they flew first week. However, the debut was 83% of the audience that watched the first ECW show in 1999 during a time period where wrestling was more popular and it showed they had a better time slot. Of course, Spike today is twice the network TNM was in 1999 as far as overall popularity. And the 0.78 is barely above what the Grand Ole Opry did, 0.7, in TNN's uh, 11 p.m. slot on Saturday nights in 1999. But for TNA, it's about exposure. TNA and its bad time slots on FSN did 200,000 viewers for better than usual rate episode and was averaging about 350,000 viewers per week between a Friday afternoon and Saturday night time slots. The two time slots on Spy did about 1.52 million viewers. They didn't have to quadruple pay revise on October 23rd for this to be a home run, but with all these new viewers, if they aren't up significantly, that's also not good. Right now, TNA should be very happy about Saturday, but also should be disappointed about Monday. Still, no matter what, I mean, my hear how you look at it. I mean, that was a really good rating for TNA that first show. Yeah, you know, a strong start, I think. And uh, be proud of that. Absolutely. So, yeah, we could talk about future weeks, but hey, that first one, that first week. You I mean, yeah, be proud of that. All right, a few comments from Dave on the show. We'll see how it differs from Brian. My main feeling when it was over is TNA needs to produce two TV shows per week. 
the reasons not that the show was not great was so great I want to see it twice. And I would never call it bad or boring, but it was exactly as Dave feared. They tried to cram so much into one hour, and in the end, nothing had meaning. From start to finish, everything felt rushed. It felt like watching the old Matt Rats out of Canada, which was a fun show filled with great moves, but nobody's personality got over and no stories were told. AJ Styles and Roger Strong rushed so fast to their match that you were left with nothing but a few oohs of Styles' uh, more spectacular moves. By the way, interesting note is the match you saw was a combination, which we talked about, but the match is being spliced. Because of that, Mike today was explaining about the six-sided ring during the first match, and then when they picked it up, he was explaining it again. It wasn't as bad as it sounds, though. Dave tried to watch with the mentality of a WWE-WCW fan trying to out the product as opposed to a regular viewer, which granted for Dave was a hell of a stretch. The video packages were great, particularly the first one, which made you feel going in. This was a professional show, but as a fan with that mindset, Dave felt they assumed people knew too much. Dave saw a bunch of guys, but when it was over, he knew nothing about any of them other than the X Division is the signature division. Guys worked their asses off and don't sell any moves, and Monty Brown played in two Super Bowls, and they're trying to push him. Daniel, Saban, Williams, and Shelly were all thrown out there with no context. The three of with Saban, Williams, and Shelly had about three minutes cut out in the middle because the main angle at the end went too long. And Dave's told the match is a lot better live because of it. Dave knows they're pay-per-view on October 23rd, but that has the first 30 minutes free. I forgot about that. And that there's an Iron Man match between two guys Dave don't know and Jarrett's wrestling Nash on it, which no time in history would he ever cared about that. As a TNA fan, he's looking forward to pay-per-view because they usually have great shows. For a first-time fan, they did nothing to make you, make you want to buy the pay-per-view. But he thinks it was interesting enough that they can get the most people, most new people back and in time that they produce good TV can make them fans. A first-time fan with no Jeff Hardy and Rhino. They still gave them no context. Raven was being on guys in the back at a terribly staged looking uh, until a rush segment, and they barely knew why. It may have been said he was screwed out of the title, but that point wasn't driven home. Dave saw Larry Smith go out there, and he seemed to be a commissioner of sorts. Tito Ortiz showed up for a secret meeting. Instead, the announcers pause to tell us a story or discuss what that could be or tell people who aren't USC fans who the hell Tito Ortiz is. They rush to the next thing. The Jared title win, Tate, was spliced too short and didn't have the impact. The last segment was rushed as well, but it was a good segment. Chris Harris and James Storms were not put in the context. They didn't know who they were. It was never explained other than it looked like they were the Tennessee Cowboy Horsemen. Three-left crew came, out of, came off of Stars because Cody could talk and they walked in the ring or danced like they were somebody. Cody's promo was also cut. He did a line which got a big pop live where he said Jer- Jeff Jarrett's interviews had the same effect as sleep aid. Fans popped big for Team 3D and they gave everyone three days too fast so they came across the Major League and are recognizable stars. Devon's in the best shape Dave's ever seen him in and Brother Ray's in better shape than he was in WWE. They came across hungry and not guys who learned WWE style and now pick out a paycheck on a maiden name. The t-shirts with the middle finger saying something like fuck trademarks can be a merchandise seller but nobody acknowledged it or explained it. While Brother Ray looked at the camera and gave a message to Stanford and flipped it off, it was edited off with a nasty jump cut. And not well done because Mike Tanay was screaming, you tell him, Brother Ray, was not edited out. Even though we heard nothing he said. Well, that's why, yeah, notice that? That Mike Tanay was talking about that, but Devon was the one talking? There you go. We were told some of the higher-ups were screamish about the idea of middle fingers on the show. However, the segment was nixed by Spike, and this may be a key story in the long run. Uh-oh. The segment was scripted in advance to make the company like it was edgy, a la ECW. Ooh, edgy. 
Spike at first approved it, and then after the fact, asked it to be edited out because they felt it would come across as Spike TV giving WWE the middle finger and not the dub decent doing so. Fix. <laughs> what is with these TV executives? Well, it seems specifically this network, as we've noticed lately. And talk about more on patreon.com slash between the sheets. Yes. But also it comes across as Spike is already backing away from morning a confrontation. In a normal world, they would be right. But this is not a normal world, and any sign of weakness would be exploited. If it's because they don't want to raise the IRWE, well, if you go into this war for the WWE, you'll constantly be fighting outside of intimidation. Some of the editing was because the show went long live. There were a lot of production snafus at the taping to the point it took two days of extensive work on the debut show before it was ready to air. And even if there was some minor editing gaffes, that snuck through. It's a combination of the existing TNA people and some new people from Spike, and new people from Spike have to learn their way. Spike uh, has given the promotion the okay to use juice, which had been an issue in question until this week. All right, Pixie, any thoughts on Dave's assessment there so far? I think it's all pretty fair. I don't know if there's much I can really add to that. All right, well, we got some more. TNA's position themselves as the underdogs fighting back, and they need publicity stunts to call attention to themselves. Dave actually sees Team 3D and the fact that WWE tried to screw them up and them get over. Because to most people, they come across as sympathetic characters people can relate to if the real story comes out. Nash is Nash. Sort of a star, at least in name, but I don't think people care, Dave said. But he thinks it's probably the right thing to have him show up on the first show. For such a big guy, has been a name for more than a decade. He really didn't seem to show star presence. Maybe because of how he was addressed and didn't feel very impactful. In fact, live crowd in Orlando didn't seem as a big deal, didn't help. This may sound negative, but Dave thinks the product is there, but they need to slow down. If they did the same exact number of matches and angles were spread out over two hours, and most of all explained the context of what was going on, Dave thinks you'd have two very good shows. Dave fears in one hour, it's going to be like this every week. Not to say Paul Heyman's way is the only way or even the best way, but when he had one hour, he on occasion only did one match. Often did two, and rarely did more than three. When the show was over, there were main points, and you did get what they were. Dave thinks the wrestlers here are more crisper and more talented than Joe knows in ECW. With obvious succession both ways. But ECW's TV was fast-paced, but in a good way. This is like gobbling 18 cups of coffee and being off to the races. But not remembering anything you've done or seen, especially with so many people in the introductions and backstories being told. Now, if you're a regular weekly viewer of the show already, Dave thinks from that standpoint it was a little better than usual show, but still too busy. Aaron, what are your thoughts on, on uh, all this stuff that Dave's talking about here and uh, how they presented this show? I, see, what I what I find funny is like, you know, when we were talking about the Ring of Honor, we all had interjections and things to mention. And with TNA, it's like there's there's nothing to say at this point. It just feels so, like, bland somehow. And I can't figure out what they were doing wrong exactly, but it just it doesn't click. And, I mean, I think it's just... You know, with this, where they're trying to squeeze X Division matches into, you know, five, ten minutes. So it kind of, you know, makes it look like just the old Nitro Cruiserweight matches when that's not what they're trying to present it as, I think, was a problem. And then just, like I say, the parade of just, you know, kind of names from the past that come in and just get pushed right into the top ahead of everyone else that's been there. You know, the thing is, is I think it goes down to what Dave's saying, Eric, is that all this stuff is bam, 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 bam. None of the stuff had a chance to breathe and make you say, okay, now let's analyze this. 
Yeah. Like, they yeah. could have been presenting AJ Styles as, you know, being one of the best in the world, but if you watch this match, it's, you know, he's he's Silver King. You know what I mean? It's six six minutes with just move, 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 and we're out. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, ECW, and Dave's right, ECW shows would have just, like, a two, maybe three matches at the most mm-hmm. in their one hour. And there were, but there were plenty of things going on where, I mean, there were TV shows where you wouldn't even get the introduction to the TV show, proper induction, until 20, 30 minutes in the show. Yeah. Because they're showing a video or recaps or stuff like that. So, yeah, there's a way to do it. But TNA just wasn't doing it like that. But anyway. All right, now let's go to the torch. There was no group meeting of any kind before the tapings last week. There was some thought afterwards that might have helped cool everyone's nerves because everyone seemed so tightly wound when they were on camera. I mean, I know this, I know it's a big deal, but you're making it seem like, I mean, these guys have never worked TV before. They have, you know? I get it, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Mike today was on the law this past week. He recapped the disappearance of Sean Waltman, but didn't reveal where he'd been. Brian's thinking no one knows because he sure hasn't heard. He was at the tapings last week, but apparently no plans to even negotiate further with him at this point. Today said he wasn't the most optimistic person around when, it, when the Spike DB deal was signed, but the promotion they've been given by the network so far had changed his mind. Dan Lebransky said it seemed to him that Kevin Nash is at the opposite of the sort of guy TNA should be bringing in. And today pointed out there were plenty of awesome matches signed for the pay-per-view with guys like Chris Daniels, Jushin Liger, Chris Saban, Samoa Joe, AJ Styles, and the like. Nice of today to deflect that question there to that. Mm-hmm. He said there was talk of bringing in Ken Shamrock along with Tito Ortiz. Well, that's not happening this month since Shamrock's probably fighting for pride. <laughs> How about that today, huh? <laughs> Doing the World Olympics there, getting around the, the Kevin Nash deal. Anyway, was another interview took place during our week as it was TNA week. Dave said it seems on between the sheet between the ropes radio. Excuse me, Dixie Carter in her interview with them talked about how she started working with the company in public relations about five months before they got rolling. That's right, she's been there since day one. In fact, she was there long before day one, as she just happened to live in an apartment next door to Jeff and Jerry Jarrett for years. She first met Jeff in Dallas shortly after graduating college. So when the company was about to go out of business three months after they started up, she talked her father, Bob, into buying it and keeping it above water by pumping what she has since said was a million dollars a month into it. Keep that number in mind next time you hear about someone starting a national promotion. Also keep this in mind next time she goes on and on about how everyone said they were going to die in three months. But here they were three years later still going strong. She was asked if they ever considered shutting the company down. There's never been a day I felt that, she said. I and you and all your listeners out there have read our obituary so many times before we started, a month after we started, three months after we started. That's been the most consistent pattern of us. People has been saying we don't have a chance. You lose money when you start a new company. How many major companies immediately make money from the beginning? We've had a wonderful business plan in place that we have met or exceeded along the way. I'm very proud of the business side of our company, and hopefully we'll continue to make decisions of all these moons and stars are aligning with us right now. And all the great things that are happening. Boy, what weird history. She said the plan was to take the pay-per-views on tour starting next year. If she's not sure you do that while in Orlando, so it's a red-hot crowds. 
You're not going to make a ton of money at the gate as it is, and the atmosphere in many ways is half the battle. In the impact zone, those fans are going to feel betrayed, and pissing them off seems to be a very bad idea. CMLLs are in New Mexico at cost sale nearly every single solitary week forever, and they've been around since 1933. Way longer than any other wrestling promotion on planet Earth. Tito Ortiz said he'd been a wrestling fan forever, and when he went to the high school gym for his first ever day of wrestling, he wanted to know where the ring was. He loved JYD, Hogan, and Jim Duggan. It's Tito's interview with Between the Roads Radio. Uh, what a shitty worker he'd be. <laughs> to be fair, he also mentioned Ted DiBiase. He talked about numerous problems with UFC and how Dana lost his mind. Things are talked about here on numerous occasions. There's not any other fighters like myself. Tito Ortiz, he said. What I put in the ring and the gone, the interviews I do, there's no one like me. I may seem conceited, but it's just a lot of hard work. I put in to make the character Tito Ortiz, the Huntington Beach bad boy. I back up my talk when I walk, and I make sure I make it exciting when I do fight. People buy the tickets. People buy the previews. He was getting uppity here. They're making $3.7 million at the gate, and they're having a problem paying me an extra hundred grand for a fight? You show me the problem. I'm not a really great mathematician, but I'm no stupid person. I know they're making a lot more money on pay-per-view. Pay the fighters what they're worth. All the young guys like Diego Sanchez and the guys in the ultra fighter, they're getting $2,500. Training costs 5000 to ten grand per training session for a fight. These guys get paid pennies. Wait, 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 wait. Five to ten grand per training session? That's what he, he said. No, if he actually said that, that's just Tito being Tito because – I think he means a full camp at that level, right? Yeah. Um, may, I maybe. I think he's meaning a training session. That's at the camp. I get that's, that's what he means. But yeah. that's not normally how people would use session. They would use session to mean an actual day at the gym, I would think. But it's Tito. I don't know. It's, it's Tito. Tito. His brain don't work right. All these fighters care about is to be on television and forgetting about what it takes to be a fighter. What's that? Passion. Seems to me that you're willing to train like a madman, get your ass kicked for free. You got some passion. Skip James on the show said he felt the rockabilly gimmick almost killed his career. And if, if he ever found out it was responsible for it, he punched him in the mouth. Then he said, I don't think he's going to look that far. <laughs> it's, it's funny, again, Tito Ortiz saying this stuff in 2005 and this stuff that still goes on today with USC as far as the fighter pay. Yeah. What was it I saw, what was, what was it I saw the other day? Um, who was it that? Who? What was the last major boss fight? Canelo and Triple G. Yeah. And what? The, and what they were getting paid compared to what the USC fighters are get had got As paid percentage for, of uh, revenue. You mean? Yeah, for the whole year so far, <laughs> and it was almost the same exact money. Yeah. The entirety of UFC fighters. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Dave ran an interview with Dick Carter. Starting Purpose Illustrated. Wait, Seriously, is it Dave really? or, I thought it's Brian. Um, I think this is Dave. Okay. Well, it could be Brian. I don't know. Read an interview of Dixie Carter. It's time for Personal Illustrated. Seriously, and it was a real interview. Welcome to the 21st century. She told the story of how she and Jeff first met years back, and the same story she told in the other interview, almost word for word. So she still has much to learn about being a personality in the wrestling business. She was asked why she kept such a low profile, and she said sometimes people like to write things about themselves and make sure the story revolves around them, and she was not that sort of person. Which led to a question about Vince Russo. DC Carter replied, and, and I quote, I think Vince Russo is a creative genius. I adore him as a person. I have sat in rooms with him and just seen creative brilliance. But Vince Russo would have loved to have been behind the scenes and on the air. He was so good on the air that we were insisting he be out there. 
Where is he now, then, if he was so great? <laughs> but this is why they kept bringing him back. She she had this soft spot for Vince Russo. I mean, and here, here she lays it out right here. Creative genius. Yes, Creative he was. Creative brilliance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that turns out to be his sister, bro. <laughs> <laughs> She clearly realizes they have something special with the X Division, something WWE on its best day with his cruiserweights cannot equal, and that's a good thing. She was asked what rating they were looking for on Spike. She said there was no, no specific number. I think we will have success in the very beginning. My gut tells me that. She said the synergy with Universal Studios is awesome. Think about it. When you walk through those doors and you look to your right, there's a huge billboard of ours up there. If you're a wrestling fan or not, you're going to look up there and see this production here called TNA Wrestling. Well, that's good because when Craig, this is yeah, this is Brian. When Craig went to Orlando a year ago or so, there was nothing alerting anyone to TNA's existence. She said the six-sided ring was Jarrett's idea. That makes sense. He's done so much stuff with AAA down Mexico. She basically said the reason Nash was brought in to face Jarrett at the Bound for Glory show is because his last match with Jarrett was so good. Well, it was shockingly great, really. And Brian doesn't have a problem seeing it one more time. But we'll see it if it was talent on part of both men that night or lightning, lightning just struck. She was asked a tough question. Is Jarrett just on top because of his pops? Dixie said, I think if you look at Jeff Jarrett's performances day in and day out, he's at the pinnacle of his career. From his promo work to his in-ring skill, he can take a wrestler who's not that great, and he can make that match shine. He has tremendous capabilities, and I think people are selling him short. Maybe they think it's because this is his company, so that's what's happening. I think just in the position he's in because, honestly, of having some star power from the past, but also from being great in the ring, great on the mic, and having the ability to start, start up big time as a heel. She actually said the biggest problem he had was his inability to want to push himself. <laughs> Swear to God. She also indicated the next two major stars to get pushed, not surprising, were Monty Brown and Samoa Joe. Brian's off for that, particularly the latter. The entire interview, which is a pretty intriguing read, will be on newsstands in late October. Is, in most of that, though, is she really wrong about Jeff? He no. was getting sold short a lot. Yeah. I think it's just overexposure. Yeah. That's the thing. He was, you know, the Triple H of Impact at the time, and it makes you forget about how good he could be. If it wasn't his company, it would have probably been different. It been somewhat different. But the fact that he was involved in, in the power structure adds that extra to it, you know? And that he's also at this point still seen as a face of the dying WCW. Yeah, even then. Yeah. Five years after, well, almost five years later. So. Another article on Dallas Morning News, besides the line about losing a million a month, she also said the company was on track next month to actually break even. Meaning at some point soon, if it all goes well, they've actually become profitable. Okay. <laughs> it may. I mean. <laughs> Jeff's version is that they did start to become profitable for at least a time from the Spike deal, but they weren't. But wait, they weren't getting paid by Spike at the beginning, were they? No. So and maybe there was an ad split or something. I don't know. But you know, the story we had heard in years past was that there was like one quarter, and maybe what was it, oh eight or oh nine, that they were profitable. Jeff disputes that, but this. What Jeff says now goes along with this Dixie thing, so who knows? Yeah. Johnny Fairplay is back. He'll never leave. Dixie Carter still sees him as a huge mainstream star, which suggests to 
I think this is Dave here, that she's been hanging on that Monsters Ballroom for the past two years or so. He's now co-hosting the Syndicate Explosion TV show with Jeremy Borash. That must be a sight to see. Wasn't this as simple as that he had negotiated himself a really weirdly good no-cut contract? Yeah, basically. He, he knew how to, how to play it, so, yeah. Alright, now we go to the torch. Samoa Joe told Russell Talk Radio that he chose TNA of WWE because TNA had a clear set of ideas for his character, which allowed him to do what he does, rather than have it fit to a WWE-created gimmick. Previously, Joe said he also chose not to sign with WWE because he could make more money outside WWE and didn't want to move from his condo in Huntington Beach to Louisville for training in OVW. On their new working relationship between TNA and Ring of Honor, Joe said it benefits the wrestlers because guys are receiving contracts to TNA while establishing the Ring of Honor characters to a wider audience. Now, Joe laid that out simple out there. Well, and there was also that rumor that it was explicitly said in a creative meeting that if WWE signed him, he was going to be signed to be buried specifically to show that he was just some king of the Indies bullshit, whatever. Yeah. I thought the rumor was that always that he was supposed to be Umaga. <laughs> I mean, that was... That's another thing that's been out there. I think it's more that... The Umaga push was allegedly supposed to show him this is what you missed out on, even if that wasn't necessarily the plan. No, I see. Kevin Which Nash signed it anyway, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Nash signed a one year contract, but there are loopholes which could lead to him being a free agent sooner and later. He also has a dreaded creative control rent to his contract. Nash lives just 60 minutes from Universal Studios and his attention set up politics at the tapings. I don't want anyone to think he's reverting to his WCW ways. He arrived at 1 p.m. for the taping. Even when he's not playing politics, he's still playing politics. Gotta love Kevin Nash. Because hmm. it's a political move, being out of the, polit- the politics. <laughs> amazing. Amazing, man. Says one TNA wrestler, whatever respect Scott the more earned from the boys for keeping himself off TV since he got the booking job, he lost when he put himself out there on the first Spike TV show. Here's the booker in the middle of the biggest segment of the show. Gee, how'd that happen? And what was with that stupid fake laugh anyway? <laughs> oh, TNA. Never change. And who's in charge now? Scott Demore. Uh, funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's go to the land of the rising sun now in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Where not only did the uh, Dudleys or Deadlies or Team 3D or whatever debut in TNA, they debuted in all Japan. And that drew 1,900 fans to Corkin Hall, September 30th, where they beat Tomoki Honma and Koei Suwama in 1250 when Devon pinned Honma to the 3D. They were announced as Team 3D. Fans were chanting throughout the match, We want tables! Main event of the show was Kensuke Saki and Katsuko Nakajima over at Keijimuto and Taiji Shimori. In 2015, when Sasaki pinned Nishimori after Northern Lights bomb. So this is post Toriyaman pre Noah for Ishimori. He's bouncing around, yeah, pretty much. All right, results: Masafuchi and Taichi Shikari over Nobutaka Raya and Kikutaro. Chuck Palumbo and Johnny Stamboli over Nobukazu Raya and Ryuji Chikata. Kazuyashi and Space Lone Wolf went to a no contest with Takabichinoku and All Cap Psycho. Jamal beat Shuji Kondo, speaking of Umaga. Uh, Team 3D, no contest with Hum and Suwama. It says no winner, but we had a winner. Interesting different results change here. <laughs> yeah, Wrestling Data has no winner, while the Observer had Devon beat Hama. 
Then we had Taru and Giant Bernard over Satoshi Kojima and Arashi. And Kensuke Sasaki and Kazuko Nakajima over Keiji Muno and Taishi Shimori. Which Nakajima and Ishimori were extremely young at this time, and they're still going. Good good amount of people still going on this show. I mean, uh, Taka is coming up on his 30th anniversary thing. Space uh, Lone yeah. Osawa, he's still around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Japan quite the hodgepodge of people at this time. Yeah, Kikutaro on the GCW Japan shows this week, among other things. Yeah. Um, you know, think anyone else. You know, Hanma's still in New Japan. Sumama's still in All Japan. Uh, Kojima's doing his, I guess, brand ambassador thing, working in other promotions for New Japan. And Nakajima seems to have forgotten that it's a work, but can't win long. <laughs> yeah. Well, he learned, he learned from the best, I guess. Well, and um, he's, I mean, and he's only, what, 32? Now? Wow. Or 34. Uh, 34. Okay. 34. That's insane. Yeah. He was a grizzled ring veteran here at uh, <laughs> 17. <laughs> All right, now let's go to New Japan Pro Wrestling. Reggie Parks and Dave Milliken made a new IWGP belt that would be presented to the winner of the October 8th Brock Lesnar Kazuki Fujita versus Masio Chono match. It'll be a WWE style three way where the person who scores first pinfall in the match becomes the champion. It's a unique belt as Anoki requests the names of every former champion except for one to be put on the belt itself and side plates, with the idea the belt carries a history of the title. Guess whose name was not mentioned? You guessed it. Anoki specifically did not want Hulk Hogan's name on the belt. Hogan was the first IWB champion, winning a tournament. In those days, it was an annual tournament and not a defended championship. Anoki, the second champion, was the first to actually defend it like a world title. The last IWGP belt was retired after Fujita's win over Hiroshi Tenzan as he presented the belt to a photo of his wrestling mentor, the late Shinya Shimoto. Lesnar arrived in Japan on September 29th for Simon Anoki's party the next day to celebrate his becoming president of New Japan. It was a lavish affair with a thousand guests where they presented the new belt that they claimed they spent 20 grand on. Lesnar and Fujita did an angle of the party where Lesnar hit Fujita and Fujita came back on him before people stepped in, in the way. I really liked that uh, IWGP third belt belt, but it uh, did not have the most uh, positive uh, juju around it as the next couple of years went on. Yeah. No. It was a fancy honking belt, though. It was. And then Brock uh, ruined it for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to a show airs a live pay-per-view in Japan. Simon Inoki has now claimed that the show isn't a success, and his position as president would have to be questioned. But it would be, believe me. It was a, it was a failure of, of the, the Dome shows that led to Masakazu Kuzama getting the boot as president. Two more matches have been added to the show. Coach Kanemoto and Wataru Inoue against Tatsuya Takeiwa and Yoshida Sasaki in the New Japan Zero One match. And Ricky Choshu and Tomohiro Ishii versus Tessumi Fujinami and Osama Nishimura. Oh, God, they still believe there's life in Fujinami and Choshu. <laughs> there are rumors of an invasion angle by Big Mouth Promotions. An angle with Akira Maeda and Masakas Funaki involved would at least get some press. And Jushin Liger said he and the CTU group, the Hill Juniors, are uh, taking aim at Chono for his defection. Ah, uh, wacky 2005 New Japan picks. Yeah. When was director Uwe gone by? Oh, he's way gone by now. When was he gone? Oh, three? Yeah, something like that. Okay. 
that's my favorite because he was always referred to, uh, almost always, as director Uwe and not, but his actual name, which was uh, Fumihiko Uwe, I think. Yeah. Yep. All right. Noah, when we he got back from the United States, Kenta Kabashi talked about having a possible Budokan Hall singles match with Bob Sapp. This wasn't announced for November the 5th, but such a match could, at least from a ticket-selling standpoint, save that show. Knowing that would be Kabashi's real test to see if he could carry Sapp to an entertaining, decently match. It would also make sense given Sapp's win over Jun Nakayama on October the 2nd, which we'll talk, talk about in a few minutes. That does not happen, but the... Kabashi match underneath uh, Rikyo and Tawe ends up being Kabashi and Goshizaki versus uh, Sasaki and Nakajima. Bob Sam, I mean, there was talk. I mean, Kabashi kind of wanted to fight this guy. He wanted to wrestle this guy, but it, it just didn't happen. I think he saw it as a challenge. Yeah, and he saw it. it he thought that he he thought that they could have drawn. Yeah, and it probably would have, but. Did happen. Zero one max. They ran a show in Shinky, but first ring on September 29th from 120 fans. This was uh, not a normal type show. One of their special type shows. Takashi Wano defeated Fuyuki Takahashi in your opener. Lingerie Mudo and Toshi Yamatsu defeated Kamikaze and Amazing Kong. Then a no rope karate match. It's the danger. Mitsuru Matsunaga defeated Katsuko Ogosawara. And Shinjiro Tani over Sama Namaguchi in your main event. I think this is during the Stop the Matsunaga storyline. Yes. that That's what I was going to ask, if this was right at the beginning of that, when he's still doing karate. Yeah, this is Stop the Matsunaga. Because wasn't it that like he went back to his karate roots, but then the karate people could no longer control him as he became Mr. Danger again, something like that? <laughs> yes. That's, yeah, it's, I love that angle so much. <laughs> yes. Also... Yes. A zero one pack show where I've seen the three of the three, at least three of the wrestlers live, because I've seen Lingerie Mudo, Amazing Kong, and Otani, and I yeah, saw Lingerie yeah. Mudo doing the Lingerie Mudo gimmick. <clears throat> there you go. Wrestle One, a second example of the latest incarnation of Wrestle One, a K one sponsor pro wrestling group that is based on informational dream matches people go and see in video games, seen be gaining steam. The show on October 2nd at Tokyo Gym drew 8,012 fans, which wasn't good considering the star power, but also aired live on pay-per-view and was said to be a surprisingly good show. When it does, was clear that the tournament for their first world champion came down to a final four, but like a pride tournament. It takes place on, the, on December the 10th at Yokohama Arena, where Great Muta will go against Bob Sapp, and Minoru Suzuki will go against Jamal, and the winners meet later that night. All right, here's our results from this show. Abdul the Butcher, 68 years old, and Kamala, too, beat Dorfun Jr., 64 years old, and Katsuko Nakajima, 17 years old, and 10-16. Bunk and Abby had a legendary feud in the late 70s. Terry Fulton was supposed to be in this match, but by the time he was called two weeks ago, he'd already agreed to appear for Harley Race. Even though this was far more money, he felt obligated to turn it down. Terry Fulton, Terry Funk. Finished off Kamala hit Nakajima with a flying clothesline when Butcher followed with a fall in the elbow, elbow drop. Butcher attacked Nakajima after the match with a fork, then attacked Funk. Johnny Magnum, a Funk student, grabbed Butcher's hand and Funk wrestled the fork away from him. Funk took it and started hitting Butcher with the fork and Butcher juice. You know it reads the same as 1977. Nakajima with all these guys is something else. <laughs> Especially Johnny Magnum. 
Johnny Magnum. Well, we could yeah, get Adam Windsor, or Brent, Brent Cameron <laughs> Dale, or The Claw, or. Well, this is the new flavor. It's the new, new, the new flavor right here, Bix, of Marty Funk. (laughs) That's all I can say about that. Magnum end up doing anything? No, not really. No, I didn't think so. Giant Bernard and the Predator, Sylvester K, beat Sam Greco and Jan Norchi. Of course, the six nine former K one K boss star in twelve twenty, where Bernard bit Norchi after a high kick and a Vader style reverse splash off the ropes. Team 3D beat Chuffalumbo Giant Stamboli in 4 19 The rest of the Voodoo Murders group from All Japan. Uh, Taru. Taru Shur- yeah, Taru. Yeah. Kondo and Yashio interfered against the former Dudleys. Palumbo went for the super kick that missed and st- hit Stamboli. Devon then pinned Palumbo up to a 3D. After the match, they gave Kondo a 3D. They double team powerbomb on Yashi through the table. Well, they buried the th- Voodoo Murders here. <laughs> Yeah, but it is the Dudleys, and they're in their first big spot in Japan, so to speak. So I understand, I guess. In the top tournament corner final, Minoru Suzuki beat Kohei Suwama in seventeen nineteen with a choke. Suwama nails Suzuki with several suplexes. Jamal pinned Don Fry in eight sixteen in the tournament quarter final. Fry hasn't been in Japan for a long time. He's clearly not in any juice, which is a good thing. It looks completely different physically to the point it looks like Fry's head was superimposed on someone else's body. The finish saw Fry catch Jamal on the triangle. Jamal then powerbombed him hard from the position. He then gave him a Samoan driver, which same move as Rikishi driving in WWE. He then used a splash off the top rope for the pin. Totally forgot about Don Fry having this match here against Jamal. But mid-2000s in Japan, you just never know what you were going to get. So there you go. Mr. Amasan Yoshinari beat Akebono and Tuko Scorpio in 14-11. Speaking of which. The big thing here was it was first meeting of Masao and Akebono. During the match, Masao started throwing elbows. Dave thinks Akebono got gunshot and got his hand on the block by accident. Masao was not happy, and Akebono, because Masao was not happy, had to take even harder shots. The finish saw Masao use a running elbow for the pin. Akabono to the match, he's been very fortunate so in his career to have been able to wrestle both Masao and Kejimuto, who he called the two Yokozunas of pro wrestling. Basically, living legends, what Yokozuna meant. Yeah, not the best move on Masawa to, to do that. Nakabono paid the price. <laughs> yeah, and also, this never really hit me till now. The way Masawa started increasingly relying on the running elbow as a finish in this era... Was he not trusting himself to do lifting moves on people safely? Probably. That's not good. No. Yeah, because I think it's next year that he wrestles Joe, and he gives him the Emerald Erosion, but it's like off the second, kind of. Yeah. Without You mean so he Joe is on the in the corner on the buckle, and then Masawa picks him up from there? Exactly. Like kind of leans him forward and then just... So he doesn't know, have like to hot, lift him up. And, right, right, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's that's not good, and I, I feel like it's a thing I've been hearing more about lately, and we're noticing as we saw. I mean, I'll just say with the Athena, Britt Baker, Serena Deep thing, you know, on Dynamite, like don't do stuff you're not sure you can hundred percent protect the other person, and like obviously it's not good that Masawa felt he was this broken down, but he's still being responsible, right? Great Muda pin Kensuke Saki in 13-14 to advance to the tournament. 
Brent, this was a great match. Muda used chair early and Saki juice. Saki made a comeback with a Laird. He went from the nice bomb of Muda Blue Green missing his eyes and pinned him at their shining wizard. And then Bob Sapp pinned Junakayama in 721. They kept it short, but apparently Akayama did a really good job here. Akayama came out with hard knees, elbows, even a chair shot. He used an exploder, guillotine, but Sapp powered out. Sapp came back with a tree slam, choke, spear, and a high and powerful beast bomb and got the three count. Oh, good for him. <laughs> so there's your Russell One show for the week there. All right, let's get to the indie scum, shall we? Yes. Apache Army, October 2nd at Corken Hall in front of 1,051 fans, which with the main event is pretty interesting to look at. All right, Sabora Inamatsu over Nochi Sano in your opener. Scramble Buckhouse Deathmatch, Nosawa Rangai over Shinjuku Same. Onro and Asian Cougar went to a 20-minute draw with Takashi Saki and Hitaro. Tomohiro Ishii over Miyawaki. Jun Kasai over Kikutaro. Takamichinoku and Dick Togo over Tetsuya Kuroda and Mama Sasaki. In your main event, Toshiaki Kawada, the Monkey Homa, and Taichi Shikari over Katara Katamura, Bad Boy Hito, and High 69. Sure. The thing is, you got Kawada working this show and he's still under 1,000 feet to 1 fans. Man. Yeah. Well, at least he's having fun as he's finishing up, I guess. Is it yeah, he's doing different doing things. Yeah. Um, I like that we have like your indie scum all- junior all stars tag match with the twenty minute <laughs> draw. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, Big Japan Pro Wrestling. They ran a show at Harumi Futo Special Hall in Tokyo on October second. Daichi Kakamoto and Kodobushi because of Masa Inoue and Masa Takanashi. A Neo offer match, Bix. Oh. <laughs> yes. Big Japan knows the deal here. They know they know it's gonna bring in the fans. Yoshiko Tamara and Tanny Mouse over Hiroya Muto and Police Woman. So there you go, Bix. Uh just for you. Dakuba Benke and Yuji Taniguchi over Fatoshi Miwa and Yoma. Street Fight, Men's Tail and Daisuke Sakamoto over Shadow WX and Masada, the American one. Man Man Pondo beat Necro Butcher in a street fight. In a fire death match, Ruji Ito and Abdullah Kobayashi defeated Jun Kasai and Chucky Numanzawa, the 045 Junkies, to win the main event. A Neo offer match. You gotta love it. I, I just, I love that all four guys in the main event are still wrestling for Big Japan. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah, it's crazy. Then we have a DDT Muscle House theme show at Cork and Hall on October the 2nd. Gorge Shurumi went to a no contest with Grace Sasuke in your opening match. Sure. And then we had a gauntlet match. Gorgeous Matsuno ran the gauntlet. He went to a two-minute time limit draw with the following men. Hiro Saki, Black Cow Man, Shinigami, Rikia, Toshiki Maria, Yoshihiko, and Norikazu Fujioka. I love that the blow-up doll is just in the middle of a bunch of actual wrestlers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, Yoshihiko was a blow-up doll, yes. Still is. Still is to this day. Well, actually, Mr. a blow-up doll that is stuffed with old t-shirts and the like. Yes. To give it weight. Mr. Magic. And Mr. Magic number two defeated 726 and Noshisana. 
Kazushi Sakai, HG, and Pedro Takaishi defeated Bashoku and Shonchiru. And in a dark match, Musakai defeated Antonio Hunt. <laughs> Kazuyoshi Sakai, hard gay, huh? <laughs> oh my goodness. Then we have Dragon Gate. Fukui-san, City Gym on October 1st, uh, from 2100 fans. We have Nurki Dai and Masato Yoshino over Anthony W. Mori and BB Hulk. The Florida Brothers win a handicap match over Stalker Shikawa, Mako Asa, and Daniel Mishima. Magnitude, Kishiwada, and Don Fuji over Kaness and Kenichiro Arai. Dragon Kid and Yoki Tanazaki over Shingma and Shingo Tatagi. And then a Revolution special match. Daniel Kenichiro, Masaki Mochizuki, and Susumu Yokosuka over Manam Tokyo, Ryo Saito, and Genki Horiguchi in 25 minutes. Fun seeing Tenru with the boys here. Did he come out on a scooter? <laughs> I doubt it. Okay. Well, his scooter would have been one of those rascal type scooters, uh, <laughs> like Mochizuki and Yokosuka. You've been on like one of the Mark carts or something like that, and you go to Walmart and shit. <laughs> but good looking card there for Dragon Gate. Osaka Pro, they ran Osaka Festival Gate on October the 1st for 153 fans. Masamune over Kinshimbo Common. Super Dolphin over Ice Penguin. Miracle Man and Yan Uchida over Billy King Kid and Ebison number two. Black Buffalo and Hideyoshi over Takakofuke and Esushi Kotogi. And Hiskatsu Oya and Tsubasa over Super Dolphin and Tiger's Mask. Well, let's get to the real sleeves, though. World Wing Spirit. Mm-hmm. October 4th for Takuoko Techno Dome in front of 449 fans. Big crowd for World Wing Spirit. We have the Buffalo over Teriyoshi Oshima. Hiroki Kondo and Aya Koyama over Toshiro Tsuyoshi and Mizuki Endo. Masayoshi Motegi and Super Invader 666. Over Hideo Iso and Senor Isasaki. An Underworld Marathon death match. The Wolf defeated Mr. Pogo. It's the Wolf. <laughs> Harvey Keitel. <laughs> <laughs> it is the Underworld death match. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the, you, you know uh, that Marcellus Wallace put this match on at the Wolfson Ball, so come on. And then a thumbtack deathmatch, Jun Kasai with Ricky Fuji. How bad do you think Mashiogi Motegi was in 2005? <laughs> <laughs> Not very good. Oh, Chris, you know who uh, the wolf was? Who was the wolf? Magnitude Kishiwada, of course. How about <laughs> that? How about that? AKA Big Boss Magma and a million other names. All right, JWP, we only have one set of Joshi results, Bix. I know that, that hurts your heart. But they did a double header at Tokyo Cinema Club on October 2nd. The day show drew 165 fan, 185 fans, excuse me. <clears throat> As Toshiyamatsu defeated Kyoko Kimura, Azumi Yuga and Echo defeated Kaman Bolshoi and Kazuki, Tsubasa Kurakagi over Asuko Emoto, Ran Yu over Kyoko Hirayama, and the JWP tag title match. Koryonyama and Tochuki Leon retained over Jaguar Yokota and Gami. Then your nighttime show drew 162 fans. Erika Watanabe's return match. Subasuka Akagi defeated Erika Watanabe. 
Kaban Bolshoi and Mariko Yoshida over Kyoko Kamura and Ayumi Kurahara. Kazuki over Fang Suzuki. Azumi Yuga over Tajuki Leon. And then Tsubasa Kurakagi, Masai Genki. No. And Kari Oniyama. Defeated Amazing Kong, Kyoko Hariyama, and Echo. So let me get this straight. You're running a show with outside talent. <laughs> Mariko Yoshida is in the second match. Mm-hmm. Masai Genki is in the main event. Of course. Okay. You want your best. You want your your your, your best talent in the main event, Bex. Tanny Mouse was booked that day, so Tanny Mouse was already somewhere else. Yes. So yeah, how about that? That's what I'm talking about. And to make this Eurasia, we have one PW. The one PW show. I mean, promotion debuted on October first in Doncaster, England. For about 1,300 fans and a 1,500 seat setup, using a lot of TNA talent. AJ Styles pinned Abyss in a good main event. A lot of fans left before the match started because it was well past 11 p.m. and people had to leave to make the buses and last buses and trains. There See? <laughs> yeah. That's why it was on your mind. Yeah. They had an ECW match with the Sandman when the three way Ravens Rules match over Raven and Tommy Dreamer. Crowd cheered Raven so he could have heel promo to turn them on him. Fans are in Dreamer and stand ovation. Doug Williams pinned Austin Aries in a good Ring of Honor style match. Steve Carino defeated Al Snow to keep the AWA World Heavyweight title. Chris Sabin and Jerry Lynn lost to British High Flyers Jody Flash and Johnny Storm. They also announced a two show tour in January with Styles, Abyss, Samoa Joe, Charlie Haas, Elon Skipper, Chris Daniels, Sabu, Masala Tanaka. And also believed to have Jeff Jarrett, Al Snow, Tracy Smothers, Steve Carino, and Chris Hamrick coming along. At Q&A for the show, and Sandman showed up late and pretty wasted. Shocking. During the three-way, they did a spot where Simply Luscious, who came over as Raven's valet, was knocked out. After Sandman pinned Raven, Sandman apparently started groping on her pretty bad. Even though she was selling being knocked out, she slapped Sandman in the face. And when he was stunned, he stopped. She went back to selling when she was knocked out. Oh, Wow. And the place was so filled with kids that Sandman was having trouble finding people to pour beer on. Well, that took a depressing turn that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Good lord. Uh, well, at least he's sober. Yeah, it is. All right, well, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So it's some great 2005 commercials. We'll uh, get to halftime, and we'll talk about the Patreon show. We'll talk about other things in the Patreon. We'll hit some plugs. And then we'll come back. Eric will be back with us. And we'll go to Lucha as we go to Mexico and talk about AAA. We'll have uh, CMLO running an interesting show to talk about. Feature some in each band talent. And uh, all kinds of other stuff. So we'll be back after the break. Tomorrow, television will never be the same. Give me a hell yeah! Raw returns to USA with an unprecedented three hours of live action. Shawn Michaels battles Kurt Angle. The champ John Cena takes on Eric Bischoff in a battle for the WWE Championship. Edge and Matt Hardy take their epic struggle to new heights, plus more WWE legends under one roof than any other time in Raw history. Raw, a live three-hour event, tomorrow at 8, only on USA. All right, listen up. We're moving. Carlitos back. That's cool. 
Ah, uh, Mr. Flair, I see you have your belongings. Woo! Triple H, that's all you've got. That's all I need. Ladies. Swallow my cell phone. Um, sounds like he's on hold. The wait time is 46 minutes. <laughs> it's peak hours. Ooh, daytime charges. And you could be roaming. Is your wireless company charging you a fortune? I'm going in. Come to T-Mobile and talk whenever nationwide. Whenever. Now T-Mobile introduces the most whenever minutes ever. 3,000 for just $49.99. T-Mobile. Get more minutes. He's a computer science professor from Iowa. He's slightly distracted. And this is Take On Orbit, the game that pits other travel services against Orbits.com. Today's contestants need a hotel in Hawaii for under $100 with a golf course. Ready to go. Hotel reservation. Yes. Orbitz makes it easy to find the right hotel at a great price. Log on to OrbitsGames.com for your chance to be a daily winner of free travel. Visit OrbitsGames.com today. Steven! I, I was just hungry. Well, is dinner not good enough for you? Sorry. Oh, you're darn right you're sorry. Everyone wants the new fresh toasted chicken parmesan sandwich, zesty marinara, melted cheese, only at Subway restaurants. I'm Dale Hart Jr. Welcome to a new generation of Wranglers. New fits. New comfort. New styles. Wrangler Jeans Company. A new generation of Wrangler. New fits. New comfort. New styles. Ever feel like your entertainment choices are a little empty? Start filling that entertainment void with Stars from Dish Network. When you order Stars, you get eight movie channels featuring over 350 different movies each month. Which means no matter what mood you're in, no matter what time it is, you'll always find a great movie on Stars. Let's say you're in the mood for an action flick. Or maybe somebody at your house loves a romance. Or it's time to keep the kids entertained. If you have stars, everybody's happy. There's always something good on stars. We're talking all-time favorites, as well as box office hits that are only available on stars. Movies like The Aviator, Hitch, The Incredible, National Treasure, and The Pacifier. So get rid of that empty feeling. Order stars and complete your entertainment experience. Call 888-DISH-130 or visit dishnetwork.com to order stars with over 350 different movies each month on eight channels. WWE champ John Cena likes cars. He really, really likes cars. He likes them fast and he likes them furious. Join him as he hosts Fast and Furious Night on USA. The Fast and the Furious at 4. Followed by Too Fast, Too Furious at 6. Tomorrow night, only on USA. 
All right, we're back. I hope you enjoyed those great 2005 commercials. That's a pivot to the halftime seven to show. Where we'll begin talking about our new Patreon. Yes, patreon.com slash Trinity Sheets. A new episode has dropped. And as we talked about at the beginning of the show, part two of our look at the 2000 negotiations for the purchase of World Championship Wrestling by various suitors. And uh, we, we picked up where we left off on part one. And, uh, you know, we, we floated into more about the Eric Bischoff uh, investor group that's unnamed, which in the end becomes uh, fu- fusiant right at the end of our show, basically. Um, we talk about Lanita Erickson, which is uh, really good stuff, and her involvement behind the scenes. And we played the, the promo that she uh, was involved in on television with Bob Sapp. Which is not on the award-winning WWE Network, by the way, either. Yeah, and her only appearance. So we'll talk about that. We have um, all sorts of stuff in the trades. We dig more into the Brad Siegel, Stuart Schneider uh, hypothesis. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we take stuff for the Nitro book. We, we go over that. Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff on this show. We, I mean, we get more involved with the WWF and their uh, their plan to get it. Viacom screwing all that up. Um, alternate universes of what could have happened if they had bought it. And there's a lot that we get into on um, on this episode here. So very interesting look at this as a uh, precursor to last year's show. It's a prequel, I guess, to last year's shows about the, the Fusion. You know, uh, negotiations in 2001. So, uh, really interesting stuff. All, you know, mainly business stuff, of course, on these shows. There's not nothing about in ring. So, if you're looking for that, you ain't gonna get that here. So, a lot, a lot of, um, look at the business side of things and, uh, and wrestling. So, uh, $5 a month gets you access to that and all the other, uh, shows that we've done. And our now six full years of the Patreon as we're about to start year seven. And we're going to start year seven with a bang, folks. As as announced on the Patreon show, at, first announced at the end of the show, we will be spending the end of 2022, the last three months, looking at Montreal. That's right, 25 years of Montreal. So we'll have uh, three shows on Bret Hart. And his exit from the World Wrestling Federation from uh, the beginning of it, which was not that long before Survivor Series. And then we'll get into Survivor Series, the aftermath of Survivor Series, and then we'll uh, even delve into Wrestling with Shadows. So three full months of um, Bret Hart drama in the World Wrestling Federation, which, um, you know, there's a lot of people that's... uh, full Bret Hart fans these days. So it's of interest to them and the people that don't like Bret Hart, they can listen to it and uh, laugh at what happened or whatever. So, um, yeah, it should be quite the shows, Bix, uh, as uh, we have the uh, year winding down. Yep. And also, now that Patreon's rolled it out to everyone, we've changed the Patreon over to what is called subscription billing, meaning no more first-of-the-month BS if you're signing up fresh. Yes, so a totally different way that we're doing that to go with our normal uh, 
you know, subscriptions and stuff like that. So you don't have to uh, renew at the beginning of every month. Right. So also, if you don't want to get double charged, you don't have to wait until you don't have to wait it out until the first at this point. Now you subscribe. If you do month to month, you'll be charged again at the same time the next month. If you do annual, you'll be charged again at the same time a year from that point on the exact same day. So, yeah, good stuff there from Patreon. Yes. So. Um, oh, I did want to add, by the way, this was only affecting a few people, um, but I'm in the process of fixing the thing that was causing some patrons to not see uh, some of the older Patreon shows. Apparently, it was a weird glitch having to do with people who had custom pledges, which is why it only affected a few people. And somehow, when Patreon changed some stuff around, it made it that those people were not in a tier. But it it mm -hmm. let them see newer shows, but I just have to go through and edit each show individually to change the permissions. So it, it shouldn't take too long, but that for if you had been going through that and had not reached out or anything, or if I hadn't gotten back to you since I found out what the issue was, that's the score there. So that is, that is fixed. But like I said, it was only affecting a few people and couldn't figure out why it was only affecting a few people. But yes, they all had custom pledges. All right. So there you go. Now we do have our tiers. So let's get into that. All right. Um, Dollar month gets you access to the Discord Thanks Nest segment, which we're doing in just a minute. Five dollars a month gets you access, of course, to all the audio and and all that stuff. Twenty five dollars allows you to pick a show for the week. Now I have two shows in mind, just in case we're not able to do the show that you want to do, and uh, for various reasons, whether it be somebody's got that we picked on a calendar, or something we have, we may have done in the past, or whatever. So uh, have have those. Sh uh, have a backup plan just in case. And, um, you know, if there's any questions regarding that, follow the protocol on the Patreon website or let us know. And we get that resolved. And, and uh, also let us know why you want to pick the show. Always do that. Uh, tenure rules in effect Wednesday to Tuesday on the timeline. Uh, get that information in before 30 days of your show. And, of course, we're closing out 2022. So 2023 is in mind as well. So uh, yeah, do all that, and you you should be able to do your show. And fifty dollars lets you sit in for a segment of the show, and a hundred for the whole show, like Eric is doing with this week with us, if you choose at Patreon.com/slash Between the Sheets. All right, Bix, who do I think this week is our new and/or returning patrons? All right, we would like to thank Damian A. Thorne. Thank you, Damian. Any relation to John? I don't know. No idea. Bobby Martin. Thanks, Bobby. And with an upfront year subscription, which remember those are 16% off, so $50.40 for the $5 tier, Lucas Wolf. Thanks, Lucas. So we thank you, new patrons, your patrons, patrons that have come along the way. We thank all of you for your support. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, IWTV Bix, what's going on with them this week? Bunch of stuff, including some pretty interesting shows, including From Friends. Uh, besides Wrestling Open, of course, every Thursday, they start Friday night, 7.30 Eastern, with Limitless, well, excuse me, Blitzkrieg versus Limitless 2, night 1. 
battle of uh, two New England promotions. Is that Blitzkrieg, the, the luchador against Keith Lee? No. If only. No. Um, but it's, yeah, it's taking place in Enfield, Connecticut, so I think that's the Blitzkrieg, uh, pro, Blitzkrieg Pro home, home base. And they've got a lineup that includes, uh, among other matches, main event looks quite good. Alec Price versus Hot Sauce Tracy Williams, who I don't know why he was mostly not wrestling for so long since the ROH stuff almost a year ago, but it so- sounds like he's finally starting to take up a more active schedule again, so that's good to see. Then, also Friday night, Action Wrestling! With a mm-hmm. title, Action! Exclamation point! <laughs> to the point. Simple and to the point. Yes, and that, of course, is uh, at the beautiful... Uh, what are we? Are we calling it Action Arena still, or is it just Roger Spencer uh, Community Center or whatever it is? I guess either or don't matter. So yes, that show includes Adam Priest defending the Action Title against Anthony Henry, AC Mack defending the IWTV Championship against Shaz McKenzie, uh, Fly Def versus Culture Inc. in an IWTV Tag Title Tournament match, Action Star Rob Martyr, Kevin Koo versus I think the returning Allen Angels. Uh, and Airbnb versus uh, Jaden Newman and Noah Hoffman. So, very fun and stacked-looking show there from our dear friend Matt Griffin. We need to have back on soon too. Yeah, find uh, find some way to get him get him on. Yes. In the future. Yes. Uh, then Saturday there will also be night two of Blitzkrieg versus Limitless. No lineup on the IWTV site right now, but that'll be uh, Saturday at seven Eastern. Then, uh, as you'll also hear about again at the end of the show during Eric's plug, Bloodstorm Pro on Saturday night at 8 Eastern. From the That's H- his promotion. Yes, from the H2O Wrestling Center in beautiful Williamstown, New Jersey. Uh, Isaiah Broner versus the Lord Crew. Satu Jin versus Lola Flui Ramos. Fans bring the weapons. Uh, other deathmatch stuff on there, but also Gary J. Gary J in a actually in action because I the match that's listed here I know is not happening anymore. Uh, the ref versus our dear friends violence is forever. Who's got an interesting weekend then, doesn't he? Yeah, he'll be busy. Yeah. Uh, Smiley from House of Glory and others in action, so that should be fun. And sorry, I pressed the wrong button. Uh, West Coast Pro has a show, too, their four-year anniversary show on Saturday night, so that'll be at 10 Eastern because of the time difference, and that includes, uh, for their title, Jacob Fatu versus Titus Alexander, uh, Jungle Kiona continuing her American tour against Sandra Moon, uh, and, oh, Vinny Massaro versus Eric Stevens, two friends of the show, Alan Angel, Starboy Charlie, uh, Mio Momono versus Queen Aminata, uh, and more. So, uh, yeah, pretty fun-looking show there from uh, West Coast Pro. I'm assuming this one is back at their home base, unlike the Santa Cruz show. And finally, for this weekend, what's an IWTV weekend without ICW No Holds Barred? Basically, these days, yeah. Well, not, not last week, but this week. And the uh, main event on that one is Eric Ryan versus Sadika, which should be interesting. And, uh, of course, much more of the usual deathmatch action in the chains at ICW No Holds Barred. So, yeah, if you are not already an IWTV subscriber, 
use code BTSPOD at sign up and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So it's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. Today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider storing your browsing data, many times even selling it. But private internet access can help. Private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with seven servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest damn VPN in the world by PC Mac. And if you sign up with private internet access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's go over those plans that we offer you. We have three of them. We have a regular monthly plan of $11.95. We have a yearly plan of $3.33 a month for seven or $39.95 per year. And the main one we offer, the big one, three years, four free months along with that. $1.98 a month, $79 for three years, 83% off the best deal that you can get from uh, private internet access and us. So take advantage of that, folks. Great deal there. Great, great deal. Why? Because it's so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you can take advantage of their 30-day risk-free challenge. Try for 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just turn for a full refund. So how do you get that, you might ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets. And try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1988, where we'll be discussing a lot of different things. We'll have uh, NWA, a lot of uh, chaos behind the scenes back there as uh, the sale to turn, uh, you know, Turner Broadcasting is still up in the air in a way. Don't know what's going to happen there. So there's uncertainty with that. Who's coming in? Who's leaving? We got uh, the Road Warriors turning heel on Sting. We'll talk about that. And we got all kinds of other stuff going on during our week. War Wrestling Federation. We'll be talking about uh, a lot of stuff there going on, of course, uh, as we got some interesting house shows to talk about. We got... Um, What's we got going on here? As I pull the notes up, um, let's see here. I'm trying to get that down there to that. Um, yeah, we got the TV taping. Oh, of course, I can forget this. Dynamite Kid and Jot Rougeau. Jot Rougeau gets his revenge on a Dynamite Kid, and a very famous story during our week. We'll also have news on Eric Embry beginning his babyface turn and world class. Um, the Eddie Gilbert leaving Continental and how they're uh, changing with that. All kind of stuff from uh, Japan. And the big thing for our week is the big UAWF convention. So, yes, all the uh, United Association of Wrestling fans, John Gallagher's group, and a lot of the uh, famous wrestling fans of the era were in uh, Memphis, Tennessee for that. Yes, including Paul Heyman and Thomas Edward Gilbert. (laughs) 
and Dave Melser and a bunch of other ones. And we will be joined by one of the luminaries of that. That's John McAdam will be joining us next week. And he has some stories to tell of that thing. So it uh, should be quite the show next week on Between the Sheets. should be fun. So there you go. All right. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, anything going on in your world this week? Uh, more on that maybe next week. Uh, and then as far as the... I need to probably put up something else today that I didn't yet, but uh, more on the new Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Bix Archive. What else did I add? I also put up uh, the payoffs from the two uh, National Wrestling Council Vegas Ultimate Warrior shows. Um, D- uh, Dino Bravo. Well, excuse me. No, it's a WWF talent itinerary from August 1990 that I got from Dino Bravo's immigration file. But it... Uh, it has lays out basically like all of the three tours for most of August 1990. So there's that as well, and probably put up another thing or two in the next day or so, plus more to come. Uh, so people check that out. Patreon.com slash Archive, $5 a month. All right. Well, that's it for this segment. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right. Eric's back with us, and we got quite an interesting segment here because... There's not a whole lot going on in the U.S. indie scene other than what we've talked about. So we're going to do a section of just other North America. So we'll start with Mexico. AAA did a TV taping in Tijuana with Vampiro, Shocker, and La Parca versus Conan and the Samoans in the main event and only drew 2,500 fans. Perhaps ringside tickets being 40 bucks has something to do with it. Shocker Journal Vampiro in the main event as they continue their gimmick of a guy having to turn 10 to 12 times before it becomes official. Vampiro came off a low balcony and put Shocker to a table. But let's talk about the Samoans. The Samoans are supposed to be Tonga Kid and Black Pearl, who are the two brothers of Rikishi. Tonga Kid was there at 425 pounds. He was a junior heavyweight when he had Lanny Mischie against Roddy Piper in 1984. Black Pearl didn't show up. So WPW promoter Martin Marin came in to play a Samoan. The wrestling commission refused to let him wrestle because he's not Samoan. So they instead put a guy named Paranoia, who also is a Samoan, to be the third guy. <laughs> okay. Results. Mozambala, Mozambique, and Tigre Leon over Spark, Spider-Boy, and Super Rhino. Inio de Are, Arimboy, and Luminoso over Aliens, Davantina, and King Azteca. Billy Boy and Estrellita beat Grand Apache and Tiffany. Do you know what's going on here? Anil Negro Jr., Animaniac, and Espiacino over Hysteria, Nautilus, and Oriental. Abismo Negro, Charlie Manson, and Psychosis over Octagon, Triple A, and El Zorro. And La Parca, Shocker, and Vampiro over Conan, Nico Zuna, Tarkin, and Paranoia by disqualification. And real quick, Black Pearl is not a Fatu brother. No, he's not. He's in, he's uh, Reno on Hawaii. Yes. The son of one of Afa's sisters, I think. Sisters, yes. He's a cousin. Yeah. Antonio Pena. Yeah. I was just going to say, the thing that always throws me off is that people who you wouldn't think are in the same generation of the Samoan family as each other. Yeah. 
Like, well, there's a whole Samoan family tree out there that people can look at. No, to, I know, uh, but that's what I'm saying. You get know, all their relations. Like, you wouldn't necessarily think that generationally, Black Pearl, Yokozuna, Rosie, Roman Reigns, Tonga Kid, Umaga, Riki- and Rikishi are all the same generation. Because there's a wide age variance there. Yeah. But anyway. Antonio Peña was at the tapings in Tijuana on the 30th and in Mexicali on the this October 1st. He was not in good health. He's lost a ton of weight. He's moving very slowly. He can only speak at a whisper. Yeah, he's uh, his health's going down pretty fast. Yeah. In Mexicali, which was still about 5,000 fans, but Conan was going wild as a rudo he, up and down the show. The show ended with uh, Abiso Negro brawling with Conan to the back. Sibernico was off the two shows as punishment for his attempted power play to make Conan disappear. <laughs> With Shocker turning, he and Conan will be a regular team. On the shows, they use a local undercard trio called Los Diamantes, or the next generation of Tijuana High Flyers. And they did some great stuff, and Peña is considering bringing them in. They're also doing a real-life angle, as Billy Boy is involved with Fabio Apache, and in real-life, the two are engaged. Their wedding may be done in the ring on television. Right now, they're doing a storyline where Billy Boy likes her, but her dad, Grand Apache, doesn't want his daughter marrying a wrestler and is doing the overprotective dad Hulk Hogan role. Looks like they're going to come together as Conan, Spirit Apache, and Billy Boy came to his aid, although he was laid out with a powerbomb. Uh, the start of not the last great long-term Triple uh, A storyline. <laughs> or at least yes. Antonio Pena's last great one. Yeah. All right, the results of this taping. Iron Boy, Ino de Ar, and Luminoso over Anjo Negro Jr., Anamaniac, and Espiacino. Billy Boy and Estrellita went to a draw with Grand Apache and Tiffany. Diamantia, King Azteca, and Psicosis over Hysteria, Nautilus, and Oriental. Optigon, Triple and Zoro over Elians, Charlie Manson, and Conan. And La Parca, Shocker, and Vampiro. Over Bismo Negro Jr., Bismo Negro, not Jr., the real, the real one, Nico Zuna and Paranoia were shocker. Again, turned on his partners. All right, Bix. Aliens. Who was the aliens here? Oh, aliens, or whatever we want to call them. Aliens, yes. Uh, you do remember, and you're asking me to guess. Yes, I know who it is. I'm not looking at Lucha oh, Wiki. Aliens. Is he someone who was notable before this or only after? Um, he's more notable after, let's just say that. In AAA or elsewhere? In AAA. Okay. I don't think I know this one. Monster Clown. Uh, okay, yeah, I didn't. I don't think I knew that. Or if I did, it, uh, it lost to me for a long time. Nautilus. I, Nautilus, I have no idea. That would be Black Abyss. Okay. The evil Abyss Negro. So there you go. That's the two on, on these shows that... Uh, oh, a triple R. Well, Mascara uh, Divina. Yeah. Who was yeah. Mascara Sagrada before then? Who was also Televisa Deportes? Yeah. So, there you go. All right. CMLL. They had quite the interesting night on September 30th in Mexico for 10,500 fans. The main event saw Atlantis' first match as a Rudo team with Ultimo Guerrero and Tarzan Boy against Io Dos Santo, Mystico, and Dato Banda Jr., which was reported as a strong Grudo crowd, and that being, after being booed out of the place for months, Atlantis was cheered after his turn. And Ultimo Guerrero was really cheered. 
It was known that even the little kids were cheering Atlantis, and the heavy emphasis on cheering Rudos usually doesn't extend to the children. The crowd turned heavily on Wagner, Sato, and Mystico, who win their comebacks. Mystico, who is younger and has never been through this one, was said to have really gotten under his skin. The Rudos were DQ'd in the first fall. Second fall saw Santo left in with Atlantis, and Santo went for a camel clutch, but Atlantis reversed into a torture rack and got a submission. However, Santo was not the captain. Wagner then gave Guerrero a low blow and pinned him. The Tedicos were getting booed against super popular Rudos. So he had the faces do a low blow finish. That will turn the crowd. It was also known that Atlantis as a Rudo wrestled total Tedico style. The fans were destroyed tonight as the media reports noted that for weeks they've hated Atlantis and cheered Wagner. And Super Luchas wrote, Who can understand the new fans? Semi was called phenomenal by Super Luchas, given four stars. And Mako was a four star, not a five star scale that they use. Oh, 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 Dave, you're saying it is a five star scale? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> With Hiroshi Tanahashi and Shinsuke Nakamura on their last night in Mexico, keeping the IWGP tag titles of a Ribocanero and Olimpico. When Tanahashi pinned Bucanero after a dragon suplex in the third fall. The big surprise was to everyone but observer readers was that Mr. Aguila debuted and joined with Los Peros de Mall. Universal Desmil, Mascara Aguila Desmil, and Pedro were facing Pedro Aguilar Jr., Damian Cesar, and Halloween when Aguila helped them out, causing a DQ. In the third fall, Mexican National Trios champions Sangre Azteca, Dr. X, and Nitro lost to Maximo Sagrado and Ida de Tejano, which sets up a title match the next week. All right, results of this show. Tigre Blanco, Tigre Metallico, Antonio Rivera beat Atirero, Flecha, and Supercomando. Maximo, Sagrado, Yodejano over Dr. X, Nitro, and Sangre Azteca. Moscow, Hanyar Dosmil, Universal Dosmil, and Perov. Won by DQ over Damian Cesar, Pedro Guerrero Jr., and Halloween. Tanahashi and Nakamura retained the IWGP tag titles over Limico and Herbacadero. And Wagner, Santo, and Mystico beat Atlantis, Tarzan Boy, and Ultimo Guerrero. Ah, uh, Los Carreros de Atlantida. Yeah, and it is always funny in wrestling, Eric, to watch when you have a guy who's been a babyface for years who kind of starts getting backlash because people are getting tired of him and stuff. And then they turn him heel and the fans of me love him again. Yeah, I mean, that's, and it is, you know, rare, like a little bit more rare to see that in Mexico. But I mean, they, this was they, a different time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is this is when the Rudo crowds were starting to become prevalent in Rio Mexico. Yeah, because I think at this time, like you know, Bix might remember. I think this is when like we were kind of the Gala Vision block would like disappear for like two or three weeks. It was funky. Time. It was a funky time. And but I mean, I remember like the the Rudo side of like all the companies were just super stacked back then. Because this is like when like GDI was like really catching on, and I mean, all you really had on the other side was like Mystico was like just really starting to hit. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the second year of him, and like Dave said, I mean, he's been the hottest guy in the company, and now he's getting booed, and his ego couldn't handle it. Bix, he's not the only one to go through this in wrestling. Nope. Nope. I mean. In a way, we just saw it with Punk a few weeks ago, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> Not that he wasn't but... used to it happening in the past, but it clearly got to him. Um, but yeah, it's like if, if you're not used to it and you're not used to that being a thing for Mexican fans, then yeah, I mean, it's nothing personal, though. 
Especially since it's not like Mystico's really overexposed at this point. Yeah. And it's, you got Santo and Wagner in there, who Wagner was using the guy everybody loved at the Rudo side. So, yep. Interesting stuff going on. And Tanahashi Nakamura here. You know, for their big, big excursion. Well, this wasn't yeah, like their excursion excursion. This was just more of a trip, I think. Yeah, but they never had excursions, really. So, this is them doing actually doing that. Able yeah. to venture out. And they enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, and then Nakamura, of course, went, what was it, 2011, where he goes on the Mexico trip, and he found his, he found the gimmick that made him one of the most popular wrestlers in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a hell of a tag match on paper. Oh, it was pretty stout. All right, uh, October 2nd, Rene Coliseo, Explosivo and Zeta over Povara and Vaquero. Danger! Tigre Blanco and Tigre Metallica over Gura de Futuro, Eke and Mesala. Barroso Oro, Metro, and Safari over Ulegan, Masada, and Mr. Mexico. El Bronco, Felino, and Satanico over Io de Connect, Io de Peroff, and Emilio Chavez Jr. And Evi Metal, Negro Casas, and Mystico beat Everno, Mephisto, and Peragor Jr. by disqualification. October 3rd, Arena Puebla, Falcon Man, Iron, and King Jaguar over Black Master, Fuerza Tiger, and Mercia Lago. Black Tiger, the Pueblo version, Blue Center and Tigre Rojo over Espirito Maligno for the Chicana and Mr. Ravaga by disqualification. Brazo de Oro, Listat and Sigma over Blade, Sique Sama Jr. and Toro Bill Sr. La Mascara retained a Mexican National Waterway title, beating Misterioso 2. And Dos Caras Jr., Alberto de Rio, Metal and Mexico defeated Everno Paraguay Jr. and Ultimo Guerrero in the main event. And then Rina Costa on the fourth. Bracito de Oro and Mini Fantasy team with Pequeño Olimpico to be Fire, Sombrita, and Troll. <laughs> Apocalypsis, a.k.a. Ranstein, over Kronos, Sombra de Plata, and Valiente. Io de Connect, Io de Peroff, and Shige Okamura over Safari, Satanico, and Virus. Black Warrior, Black Brazo de Plata, and Evi Metal over Mascar, Año de Smil, Universal de Smil, and Peroff by disqualification. And then our main event, and what a main event this is. Io de Lismar defeated El Terrible by disqualification. Lots yeah. of great hair in that. De Lismarck was still around? Yeah, lots of great hair in that match. Some long, long, luxurious hair. Yeah. In a dressing room at some point over the past week, there was a legit fight between Hector Garza and Black Warrior, where Warrior ended up with a broken nose from being punched. Notice whose name was not mentioned on any of these booking sheets. <laughs> Hector Garza. <laughs> so... There you go, a little punishment. IWRG, they had their two shows for the week. Thursday at Arena Nakapan. Frisbee over Forastero 2. Antares and Patrita over Carta. Went against Carta. No results here. It's just the lineups. Against Carta Brava and Super Colt. Boca Rivera, Sexy Man. And Starboy went against Calif, Nemesis, and Parata Morgan Jr. Fantasma Jr., Matrix, and Miki Segura Suicida went against Dr. Cerebro, Enterador, and Veneno. And then Io de Lismarck, L.A. Park, and Mascara Sagrada went up against headhunter number one, Io de Ciencaras, and Scorpio Jr. Sure. <laughs> that is quite a team. <laughs> and then October 2nd, we have results. Tiger Kid over Ray Estruendo. Frisbee and Paterita over Supercult and Vampiro Metallico. Moco Rivera, Sexy Man and Starter Boy, along with an unknown partner, defeated Cartaparava Jr., Cerebro Negro, Fantasma de la Opera, and Macho Number Dos. 
Dr. Cerebro, Scorpio Jr., and Veneno over Shigeo Kamura, Shinsuke Nakamura, Hiroshi Tanahashi. I see Dr. Cerebro mix it up with those boys. And then our main event, what a doozy. <laughs> For the WWE Heavyweight title, Uncle Ryo, Radulisco Jr., retained over Headhunter 1. <laughs> sure. Hey, I'm definitely curious to see uh, Dr. Cerebro mix it up with the super rookie, though. <laughs> That main event, boy, that sounds like one for the ages right there. Next, we go to Monterrey, where we have uh, two shows on the Sunday. Arena Costa de Monterrey on October 2nd. Astro Negro and Johnny Rubio beat Guerrero Griego and Ray Venom. Aris and Medico over Astro Negro Jr. and Mongol Chino Jr. Guaravos, Correa and Oz over Alan, Desnes, and Laredo Kid. Mongol Chino, Mahinegro Jr., and Sergio Romo Jr., Fakero Romo, over El Brazo, Incognito, and Sangre Chicana. For the UWA light heavyweight title, Zorro retained over Hator, and Anti 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 Faz, Del Norte, Australia Dorado Jr., and La Parca, defeated Abismo Negro, Chessman, and Tenebles Jr. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> then Arena Solidaridad. That same day, we have Coco Viper and Mercurio over Arcamontes and Mercurio. Black Soul, Corazon Adicto and Titanic over Mimo Valles, Norteño and Orquieda. Aurora, Dark Angel, Sarah Stock, and Vikingo over La Chacala, La Barada, and Polistar. Gato Volador, Gato Volador, La Sombra, Monterey version, and Silver Star over Los Cafanes Raqueros and Mimo Valles. And Los Diluvios Negros and Petoff Jr. defeated Corazon de Barrio, Io de Solitario, and Mascara Sagrada. Addicted Heart might be my new favorite luchador name. <laughs> <laughs> He's got an addictive heart, Pix. Oh no, Heart of the Streets. Corazon de Barrio is always a good one. Get the Heart of the Streets. And well, we did also have Fantasma de la Opera. Oh yeah, yeah but it's La Secta Negra, him and Cotta Brava Jr., absolutely. They were all they were all around for quite a while there as a team. Alright, I put this in here because it was a pretty interesting looking deal here. Autorio Miguel Barigan de San Luis Potosi, it's a little spot show. We have Brazo de Plata, Io de Lismark, and Lismark beat Io de Ciencaras, Mascar and Io de Smil and Universal Smil. Io de Santo, LA Park and Mystico as a team. Defeated Blue Damon Jr., Paraguayo Jr. and Ultimo Guerrero. Mm-hmm. In her main event, Atlantis retained the NWA heavyweight title, beating Dr. Wagner Jr. Those uh, shows that they would have at Autorio uh, Miguel Baragan and San Luis Fitosi, they, they would have some stacked shows and do some really good business with uh, CMLR guys on those shows. And with no known promoter name and such a stacked lineup, I'm guessing there was a lot of laundry being done at this show. Um, That would be Promociones Munoz. They were the normal promoter there. Um, so this would be one of their shows. Okay. But you, this would be I would I would I would find their stuff in the uh, mainly in the local newspaper. And they would always be uh, good for putting their stuff out there. So. Okay. I mean that's it is. Yeah. It, it's. Well, I'm not saying you're not wrong. Yeah. Uh, believe okay. me. Because <laughs> how often do you see an indie lineup that that's that's that loaded? But anyway. Yeah. All right. Uh, Santo and Blue Demon Jr. arrivals in the ring and together opened up an upscale clothes and jewelry store in Mexico City. Yo, the Santo formally signed a licensing agreement with the Cartoon Network in the U.S., which gives him rights to merchandise the Santo name in the U.S. 
Yes, I remember when Santo and Demon was uh, together in their business. Didn't last very long. Mm. But it gives me it gave me a flashback to that pic of their of the dads from the uh, Santo movie and their their awesome uh, suits <laughs> wearing their mask. Mm. You know the one was the Santo with the turtleneck or something like that yes, and yes, the blades. Yes. Oh, so so awesome. All right, Puerto Rico. We got a show here from IWA Puerto Rico on October 1st in Guillermo Angulo Coliseum in Carolina. Jeff Jeffrey. Is that Jeff Jarrett under his own name? Over Magnificent Chris. What a great name. Noriega over Bone Crusher. Not the rapper. He was never Alex, scared. Yeah, he, he never scared. And Noriega. Uh, 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 uh. So we got a super thug here. Uh, Alex Montalvo. And Golden Boy over Montana and Neo, not Keanu Reeves, or the ladies wrestling promotion. If only it was. Uh, <laughs> Draco, Draco Lee over Diabolico. Savio Vega over Bison. That's got to be Bison Smith, right, Vic, you would think? I would think so, yes. Hannibal, not from the shooting interviews. And Mr. No, Big I think over... it is. I think that is Devin Nicholson. It is Devin Nicholson? I'm pretty sure. I thought it was a Puerto Rico. Puerto I'm pretty Rico, sure yeah. Hannibal in Puerto Rico is Devin Nicholson. I'm not sure. I'm fairly sure he worked Puerto Rico. I mean, I'm sure he did, but I don't know if this is him. I don't know. It could be. I mean, Mr. Big is also match, not. But you tell me it's probably you tell me not to trust it anyway. Well, I don't know. And Mr. Big is not Jerry Blackwell or the uh, Rock Group. Yeah, I'm pretty uh, sure. It is. I mean, it says it's Devin Nicholson. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. Uh. Mr. Rating, Ray Gonzalez over just Cruz. Could be Art, Joe, Gorilla, Jose. Shadito. <laughs> Shadito, Motley. Um, IWA Puerto Rico Junior Heavyweight title. Sensational Carlito defeated Tom Diablo to win the title. Wasn't it Carlitos? I think it was. And then IWA Puerto Rico Heavyweight title in the four-way match. Chicano. Defeated Apollo, Ricky Banderas, and Slash Venom to become the new champion. Hmm. Yeah. I forget, is Victor so still your... alive at this time? Victor um, Quinones. He, he's still alive. Oh, he doesn't die until 2006. <laughs> Aw. He didn't die until 2006. Okay. Because him and Pena died in the same year. Because Victor, see, Victor died April the 2nd. Inya died on October the 5th. Hmm. Six months apart. Yep. NWA Anarchy as we go to the U.S. They had a show on October 1st at the NWA Arena in Cornelia, Georgia. Jay Fury over Hayden Young. Four touchdowns in one game, Crew Jones and Ken Westbrooks over Andrew Alexander in Strict Nine. Kirby Mack and Dexter Point Dexter, always love that name, over Seth DeLay and Patrick Bentley. Onyx over Todd Sexton. Azrael went to a no contest with uh, Trustbuster Slim J. And that's, uh, of course, this Azrael. Not- Lost Boys Azrael. Yeah. Yeah. Adam Roberts and TC Connors defeated Sweet Dreams and the Wolfman. Jeff Lewis, who's now a fake Koloff, defeated Vordell Walker. Nick Halen won a steel cage match over Skeeter Frost. And Michael Adrian, the current Michael Judas, defeated Nemesis in the main event. So there's your NWA Anarchy crew. Pro Wrestling Gorilla 
They ran the After School Special October 1st at Los Feliz Hollywood JCC in Los Angeles for 200 fans, Bix. Hmm. Well, this will be an interesting who's still working test. <laughs> and, and Bix, tell everyone what the JCC is. Jewish Community Center. Do I really need to explain that one? <laughs> well, maybe you do. I don't know. So, anyway. All right, so uh, we have a PWG tag title match. Davey Richards and Super Dragon defeated El Generico and Human Tornado to win the titles in your opener. Alex Shelley defeated TJ Perkins. Disco Machine, Ronan, and Excalibur defeated Hook Bomberry, Top Gun Tawar, and Quicksilver. Joey Ryan defeated Chris Hero in 25 minutes. Well, this is a different Joey Ryan at this time, Bix. Yeah, and he wasn't good then either. No. The other half, the the Lost Boys, Scott Lost defeated Scorpio Sky. And then for the PWG Heavyweight title, Kevin Steen retained by beating Chris Bosch, not the basketball player, by disqualification. Your match times on this show, 2318, 2310, 934, 2512, 1826, and 2533. Mm. <laughs> All, right. All right, so go ahead. Okay, so Davy Richards returned to wrestling on the indie level, is seemingly living his best life, and a better version of Davy Richards in the ring. Super Dragon is presumably just promoting VWG these days. El Generico is either a pro wrestler or running an orphanage in Mexico, depending on who you believe. <laughs> Human Tornado is still taking some indie bookings, right? Hey, El Generico was mentioned on WWE pro, pro, uh, television recently. So yeah, actually, there. wait a second. In WWE canon, I guess El Generico is Sammy now. <laughs> it's an honorary use. Yeah. Um, Alex Shelley is in TNA and in Indies. TJ Perkins mm-hmm. is unfortunately in New Japan. Um, I don't think anyone other than Excalibur is really doing anything at all in the trios match these days. Disco Machine uh, is still around, not wrestling, but still around uh, in the podcast world. And Top Gun Tower is on Twitter. Yes. Uh, Chris Hero is doing whatever the hell Chris Hero is doing with high spots. and He's being a wrestling savant. Yes. Yes. And I honestly don't care what Joey Ryan's doing. Uh, Scorpio Sky. <laughs> we don't TV shows. <laughs> what, what was that, Eric? He said sneaking on uh, the TV shows because he was on uh, what was it, Chicago Fire or something? Yeah, or like one of those nine one one shows. Oh no, it was nine one one. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Scorpio Sky, of course, is in AEW, although he's been off TV for however long. Scott Lost vanished from wrestling, as did Chris Bosch, and of course, Kevin Steen is on Raw most weeks. So there you go. And it's, I mean, just like watching those matches back, it's amazing some of those guys are walking, let alone still wrestling 17 years later. Yeah. Yeah, those guys worked hard, man. So, I mean, Kevin Steen, I mean, good Lord, all this stuff that he's done over his career. Yeah. And still going strong. God love him. I mean, he's in the best shape of his life, it seems like, these days. Like, yeah. He moves well, but he it, he seems to be doing quite well for himself. Yeah. All right, uh, we'll close out with this sec- and in this section. Scott Bam Bam Bigelow, age 44, was involved in a serious motorcycle accident on October 2nd in Brooksville, Florida, in the Tampa area. At press time, Bigelow was hospitalized in the Tampa area and in critical condition, but his injuries were said to be not life-threatening. He had a companion on the bike named Janice Rzimiswicz, 41, in Newport Ritchie, who was in extremely critical condition. If she dies, there could be a homicide charge against Bigelow. 
The accident took place at 4.30 p.m. when Bigelow tried to change lanes and crash. Neither Bigelow nor Remesistowitz were wearing helmets. Bigelow had moved from the northeast to Florida at some point this year after the deli he opened in Pennsylvania went under. He had wrestled for about a year. After several times telling different promoters he was retiring due to back injuries from a 19-year career where he was mostly a headliner. Fix, I don't, I don't even remember this story. I vaguely remember it. I don't remember if anything like comes of it. Like if she, I don't think she died. Let's put it that way. Nah. I remember the name. Seeing it here, I'm gonna look real quick. Um, but yeah, he just kind of faded out, and then he dies. What two years later? Uh, 2007, oh. January. Yeah, so, so yeah. less than a year and a half later. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at an article from there. There's an article in November in the Tampa Bay Times wrestling with Bam Bam. Uh, yeah, okay, so I guess she recovers. Yeah, they're helping each other recover from the motorcycle crash that left her in critical condition. So she does end up being okay. Okay, hmm. Bam Bam, me had a hard time that end of his life, man. Sucks. What a talent. He was at his peak. All right, let's close out with World Wrestling Entertainment. What a week it was for them. The end result of the most important weekend for television in this industry in more than four years told a few things about a few companies. As it turned out, the biggest story of the weekend was not the ratings, but the game behind them. One of the key elements of the Monday Night Wars going back and forth was dirty tricks, and both sides did everything they could legally and on occasion bordering on illegally to one of the other. The only dirty trick that actually happened was Spike buying time in many markets, most notably New York and Chicago, during the live Raw, plugging the Ultimate Fight Night special going on at the same time. USA or WWE also bought time locally in some cable systems, including some in New York, during Spike's Ultimate Fighter show to tune in the Raw. However, that paled in comparison to the one that Vince McMahon nearly pulled off. McMahon underwent secret negotiations with Mike Goldberg, the voice of USC, to start as a lead announcer on Raw on October the 3rd. Thus, with virtually no lead time or warning, the plan was for him to no-show the live UFC event, and UFC would have to scramble to get an unprepared announcer both for the Spike special and their pay-per-view show on October the 7th. The shocking part of it was McMahon offered Goldberg the Jim Ross job, and had Goldberg accepted, Ross would have been taken off Raw immediately, and Goldberg would have been the host of the first USA Network show. Ross, who had been the lead man on Raw for most of the past eight years and is the most familiar wrestling voice in the world, is apparently going to be moved to doing website play-by-play for Raw if Goldberg accepts the job, as the offer is still on the table for him, but he has yet to finalize the deal. It's an amazing decision. It's the ultimate example that WWE finds it more important to send a strong message to his competitors and get the paranoid mind games advantage and award that respect the importance of the job of the lead announcer in the company. Well, it is Jim Ross. Ross was the best person in the company at calling matches and even more at selling the excitement of wrestling and wrestlers to the public. Ross's look on television has been an issue for years, and his accent has been one even dating back to the 80s in WCW. But even his biggest attractors at this point have to admit that nobody doesn't watch Raw because of Jim Ross's accent or look, as he broadcasted during the most popular period and on the biggest shows any company has ever put on or put on in business history. Or had or put on in business history. Over the past seven years, there's been one movement after another among people within the company removed Ross, and at one time, largely due to Vince Russo, the job was handed to Michael Cole. 
who fans hated at that time in the position and experiment was deemed a failure. Jonathan Coachman has been groomed for years for the position, even though he never showed any aptitude whatsoever for it. And every Coachman short-term experiment was a failure. Goldberg, whose background is an NHL announcer and sports talk host in Minneapolis, is far more professional than Cole or Coachman behind the mic. As we've seen with Coachman, even more so Todd Grisham, having no product knowledge, even when it's embarrassing, it's not considered a major drawback with the current television mindset where you only want good-looking young people on the screen. If the past attempts are any example, most of the fans do know the difference, and Goldberg, with no experience calling wrestling and not being a fan, being put on cold on live television is putting him in a horrible position. It would be bad if he was just put on live television in this situation. Worse, he's replacing a popular legend who fans are comfortable with. Most likely, Goldberg, even if he progresses at a record rate, is going to take incredible heat both from the wrestlers, who are used to Ross's instincts and putting over and selling the business, and matches, and the fans, who are simply comfortable with Ross on Mondays and have turned on everyone chosen in the past to take his place. Ross is not the first victim of this, as there's likely no better ring announcer in the business than Howard Finkel. But he was phased out years ago. And in his raw appearance on Monday, Finkel was placed in the ring when the legends of business passed, exemplifying the obvious that his time has gone. The only reason this didn't go down as planned by my man on Monday was because Goldberg was professional enough to refuse to no show to UFC. He did the show and be working their pay-per-view commitment with them this coming week. The pay-per-view is from the Mohegan Sun Casino, not far from WWE offices. So if he chooses to make the move and they can work it out, it would make it convenient for him to sign on the same trip. When in Las Vegas, just for the live show, Goldberg told Dana White about the offer, which also resulted in a major eye-opening from USC, as those in the company had largely it was bulletproof from a man's direct business attacks because of the difference of the product. USC is not likely to make him a competitive counteroffer, as it's not financially feasible. For any maybe 10 to 12 live events per year to pay the six figures that a lead voice on Raw earns, he's believed Jerry Lawler has been earning about $250,000 per year for announcing. And Ross's salary will almost surely exceed that, although it's doubtful Goldberg would start at anywhere near Ross's numbers. I remember that when this went on, this was like a, I mean, when this broke, this was a big fucking deal. Because, I mean, UFC is just now really starting to gain a foothold and starting to, you know, enhance her relationship with Spike, running head to head with WWE that night in particular. And, I mean, this is classic Vince. I mean, if you're, it don't matter if you're professional wrestling or not. If you're competing against him head to head and the fact that you're on their former network, he's going to try his best to fuck you up. That's what he does. And that's simply what this was here, Biggs. I mean, he was trying to fuck USC over in the worst way. And to continue a theme from earlier and also on the Patreon show. We should also remind everyone what happened on Raw the previous week. Yes. Every time, for what was it, the first hour, hour and a half of the show, something like that? Every time they tried to plug the move to USA, which theoretically you would think had been agreed upon, Spike was dumping them out and at one point went to a uh, uh, please stand by screen. And yet another another thing in Viacom's, you know, insecurity that we're fi- that we're just pointing out a lot in just this one week that we've recorded shows. Yes, and I don't know if it's management changes or whatever. To their credit, 
they end up realizing this was the wrong way to do things, which is why TNA got so much extra time on the network after they were canceled until they made the deal with Destination America. But, I mean, it seems like Vince dealt in good faith with them, so you can certainly see why he's pissed. You know? Oh, absolutely. So, still, it's like, what, what, what point does this actually serve? Especially I mean, since, yeah. I mean, especially since Mike Goldberg, look, he hasn't fallen off yet, but he's still kind of an empty suit. But, I mean, he, he, he's not a wrestling guy. He's not a wrestling fan. Well, that's my point, though. You're really not, especially since UFC hasn't completely blown up yet, it's not like you're blowing up the super-established announcing team anyway. But, but, this idea was obviously in Vince's mind because what does he do not too long after this? He hires Mike Adamley. Oh, as far so as it's changing things up. Oh, yeah, getting rid of Ross. Yeah. And he had nobody in the company at that time that he felt could be that guy. Yes, although it's also weird thinking about how long ago, 17 years ago, was that Mike Goldberg was thought of as a, a more polished and professional announcer than Michael Cole. <laughs> Well, Michael Cole had, a, had, had still had the bad rep even back then. You know, I mean, well, his rep even got worse as time went along. But back then, he even had a, you know a rep. But I mean, it hasn't happened yet. But we're not that far away from the Michael Jordan of jujitsu is Travis Luter, Joe. <laughs> but still, like I said, Eric, I mean, this is this is Vince wanting to fuck over his competition. And it's in UFC Spike. They're they're together in this. They're mm. they're part the parcel and all this. Yeah, and it's classic Vince because it won't even benefit his show because Goldberg and Lawler would be just an awful pairing on commentary. So it'd be nothing but spite, not even to help his own product. And see here, and the uh, thing is, it's like this isn't like going against another rest promotion because you can't steal talent. I mean, you could, but I mean, what, what, what would that do in UFC, a UFC guy going through you like that and on an instant, it wouldn't work. So what's the best way to do it? Well, let's take their play by play announcer. I mean, they, you know? they seem to, to think it would work and we end up with Cain Velasquez matches, but <laughs> yeah. And it also shows, I mean, it's not as much of a thing as I think it would become in the next couple of years once the UFC blows up more. But it also shows a lack of understanding of the UFC and MMA because as a result, mainly of Rogan, although there are others who serve similar roles, in MMA, the analyst was the one that would usually do actual play-by-play. The analyst was more, is more important than the play-by-play, man. Yes, the play-by-play guy was not play-by-play necessarily so much as just the lead in MMA. You know, you need your expert type, whether it's Joe Rogan or Paul Felder or Michael Bisping or Daniel Cormier or whoever, to... I mean, it's different now that you have more informed play-by-play guys like a John Anik, but still, you especially back then, you need your so-called color commentator or color analyst to actually do the play-by-play. So outside of hitting time cues and sponsor plugs, 
especially in this era, your lead announcer from MMA is not going to transition well to pro wrestling. You know, would you argue? Yeah, well, would you argue argue that Bruce Beck was better at play by play on USC than Mike Goldberg? Yes, Bruce. See, that's what I'm saying. As much as Mike Goldberg seemed to be a bigger fan, Bruce Beck seemed to take more of a learned approach to learning MMA to call it properly. He, because he was a, he did the more of a traditional play by play job than Mike Goldberg did. Yes, yes. And and Bruce Beck and Jeff Blatnick was a really good team together on that too. Yes. So and Don Wilson when he was there briefly too was a yes yeah yeah yeah. But yeah. I mean yeah, this is just class events. That's all it is. But also, what I was gonna say too is like there's a reason that even under Vince that Jimmy Smith was able to make a pretty smooth transition. Yeah, but Jimmy Smith's also a, fan, a wrestling fan. Uh, he hadn't been keeping up in a long time, but yes. Yeah, but still, he was a wrestling fan. He's enough of a wrestling fan that he gets wrestling, but also, and I don't, didn't really expect this coming in, they've kind of just let him be Jimmy Smith the whole time. Yes, he's basically the guy from Bellator, you know, everything. He's, he's, he's Jimmy Smith. This is different from when, you know, they tried Adnan Burke. Which that was Nick Khan. That was Nick Khan, you know, trying to, you know, make an impact from the jump in his, you know, in his run there, you know, bringing in his guy. But that didn't work, as we, as we saw. You're saying Burke didn't work? Yeah, and you just can't bring anybody in to uh, to do that job. So. But I mean, it's also, and you know, it's just, it's Ross. It's the stigma of Jim Ross. They were always trying to find a way to replace him. And they never could do it. They tried, but it always ended up coming back to Jim Ross. All right, well, let's go to Raw Homecoming now. The, or as Dave called it, the Night of a Thousand Stars in Dallas. Your legitimate sellout of 14,387 to the American Airlines Arena. Wait, the Night of a Thousand Stars in Dallas? Does that mean also, it's also perhaps wrestling Star Wars in a way? <laughs> well, there is a connection that we'll get into in just a little bit. The show started with Piper's Pit when Mick Foley came out first to introduce Roddy Piper. They were having a love fest with Piper saying Foley was nuts and he enjoys being thrown in thumbtacks. He also put over Foley's book Scooter, which Foley himself didn't plug. It's really good, by the way, particularly if you're into learning about late 60s, early 70s New York or into baseball in that time period. Real quick, why did Dave put thumbtacks in quotes? Because I guess they – how often were they doing thumbtacks in WWE? Maybe. I mean, he'd only, he'd, done he'd, he'd, he'd only done it a couple of times. Yes, but anyway. I don't know. I don't know. The Ortons came out. Foley brought up how the Undertaker is going to do them in the pay-per-view, which is very nice to mention since the hype of the, that show has been terrible. Randy Orton said he wanted to talk with Piper. Basically, said in the old days, his father took lots of beatings to save Piper, and Piper because this giant superstar, and his father ended up with tons of injuries and a life in pain. He shoved Piper, who decked Orton. Foley and Bob pulled the other apart until Bob sucker punched Foley, and Randy gave Foley and Piper both RKOs and left him laying. Dave guessed they gave in. As a month ago, the big argument was because of the guys coming back. None were scheduled to interact with current stars, and some on the writing team thought that was a waste. I mean, when you got a situation like this, I mean, this is a a good angle to play because of the Piper Orton thing from years ago. 
and Randy can say, and Randy can say, look, my dad had a cast on his arm for all those years protecting you. <laughs> it's and your the fault. Fo- and the Foley Orton stuff from the year before, too. Yeah, so you have you have that you can work with. So no problem with, with, with having something like that. Teddy Long, who didn't block me on Twitter, and Eric Bischoff, who has blocked me on Twitter, argue. <laughs> so I'm I'm pro Teddy Long. Uh, Bischoff threatened to go to SmackDown, so we'll be having cross pollination over the next two months, which isn't the worst idea right now. <laughs> oh man! And props to Teddy Long. You know, Teddy Long's Twitter was hacked and supposedly blocked a whole bunch of people, and he's turned that into selling a T-shirt. On ProWrestlingTees.com saying, you got blocked, player. <laughs> God bless him. But did he block The Undertaker? <laughs> oh, man. And Eric Bischoff has blocked me for reasons I don't know. So Vince Russo has blocked me for reasons I'm 100% clear on. <laughs> Bischoff blocked me, too, but I genuinely don't know what it is with him, either. Like... Well, when no, because when he blocked me, I had not interacted with him in a long time, and the only things I had said about him on Twitter were positive. Yeah, I don't know. All right, that's, before the TV went on the air, we had a match of Shelton Benjamin beating Tyson Tomko. Oh, speaking so of people were... who are still wrestling, yeah, <laughs> well, Shelton when he's healthy, yes. All right, uh, Raw. The first match on Raw was Shawn Michaels and Kurt Angle going to a draw in a thirty-minute Iron Man match, and it with two two score. They wise up and did this for either the NFL UFC starting because Iron Man matches don't do historically do well in holding viewers. That is true. This was so not in the league with the AJ Styles Christopher Daniels Iron Man match earlier this year. Angle took a crazy bump over the top rope when he ran at Michaels, who back dropped him over and he over rotated. Still, when Michaels went out, Angle got right up and gave him the Angle slam on the floor and powerbombed him into the turnbuckles for a near fall. Angle ended up taking the first fall with the Angle slam off the middle ropes in eight ten. Michaels won the second fall in 1447. He counted an ankle lock into a front row on the cradle. Angle took the third in 1843 with an ankle lock. Michaels hit an elbow off the top rope and sweet chin music to even up at 2514. With time running out, Michaels did the race Stevens slip to the turnbuckles. Angle used angle slam for a near fall. He tried another one, but Michaels reversed it to a swinging DT for a near fall. Michaels tried the moonsault block, but angle rolled with it and ended up with the ankle lock. Michaels straggled, refused a tap, eventually broke it. Michaels hit Sweet Chin Music right into Bell. It was a draw. Michaels didn't challenge Angle to continue. It's sudden death style, but Angle walked off and refused. The match wasn't close to the level of their two prior big matches. TV commercial breaks didn't help, nor did a flat finish. Unless they're going to rematch the two before Taboo Tuesday, it makes no sense for Angle not to win since he's getting the next title shot. Three and a quarter stars. Yeah, Eric, I mean, it was a good match, but it wasn't on par with that WrestleMania match, that's for sure. No, and as far as TV Iron Man matches, it wasn't up to Angle and Lesnar. I liked it better than Angle and Lesnar, but I don't think it was as good as uh, Benoit and Triple H. I forgot that one. That's another one, yeah. I mean, this was half the length of those two. Yes. It's tough to do these matches on television, as AEW found out earlier this year when they you know, had their Iron Man match and the ratings dropped. I mean, it's it's t- it's tough to do that. Wait, they didn't I mean, have an Iron Man this year, did they? Wasn't the only Iron yeah, Man? Yeah, they did. Which one? Oh. 
Which one was it that was on this year? That it was fairly recently. In, they did Omega and Pack very early in the run of Dynamite. But I don't remember no, what this the year. hours were on that. It was this year, I thought. Well, there was a there was Danielson and Omega did like the hour draw, I think, right? Well, Danielson and Omega did the half hour draw. Danielson and Page did the hour draw. I think okay. the hour draw did well in the ratings, though. But there was one that that went down. Was it Moxley and Danielson? Mm, that was an Iron Man, and they didn't. They definitely didn't have an Iron Man. Uh, I'm googling. I could have swore. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm only seeing Kenny Pack. Well, there was one match. It may have been an Iron Man match. There was one match that was that went long, and the ratings dropped because it was so fucking long. That's things. It's long, having long, long TV matches, you know, it, as, it, as lately has, has dropped the ratings in, in ways. It's not been, it's not been, you know, it's not, it's not hold, held ratings strong, so to speak. Anything that's over like 20 minutes. Well, the Iron dro- Man match thing specifically is people who don't want to watch the whole match they know it's not going to end till whenever they know they won't miss the ending so if they're liable to tune out they're going to tune out yeah exactly that's the hook with that in particular all right well they shook him von eric who got a huge pop reports we got where he got a bigger reaction on steve austin or john cena he also looked younger than just about every wrestler in the main roster well it's not hd yet <laughs> just for nostalgia dave was over an in-ring a with michael hayes but it was not to be. After all, we couldn't take time away from Mae Young running around stripping. More than that in a minute. Um, okay, wait. So are we playing this or are we just playing the later Kevin thing? Yeah, we're playing the later Kevin thing. That's okay. one that really matters. You know? Okay, I pulled up the quarters for the 60-minute draw at least. Okay, do you want me to start with 2 plus or 1849? Well, I mean, I don't know. Whatever. Okay, so 2 plus, it went from... Uh, I mean, it technically went in five. It actually went across five quarters with the intros and everything. So, um, yeah, it it went from nine hundred forty-seven thousand to nine sixty-three to nine forty-three to back-to-back quarter hours one thousand of excuse me one million thirty-five thousand. And in eighteen forty-nine, it went from four hundred one to four eleven, three ninety-six to four twenty-eight to four eighteen. So in two plus, it pretty much held up and then gained. In eighteen to forty nine, it ebbed and flowed a little bit, but overall gained. Yeah. So I don't know what you're thinking about. I'm th- it was, there was a match on AEW this year, Bix. I'm not talking about that match. It was a, a match this year that was a long match. I mean, the longest was, match on TV I can think of this year is the rematch, which went like what thirty five. Yeah, something did not. It did, I remember that. Yeah, it was a thing about the quarters that it dropped. It doesn't matter. It doesn't oh, matter. Okay. All right. Vince and Eric were backstage. Eric won the DQ match, but Vince refused. Eric told Vince, eventually told Vince he was sick, and he thinks he, the only reason he was hired was so Vince could humiliate him every week. Hey, did he know that going in? <laughs> Vince didn't have himself turn heel when Lillian Garcia ran in, ring introduction, introducing the man who was solely responsible for Monday Night Raw. Stone Cold Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan, and The Rock, strong, handsome, and well endowed. <laughs> ben showed a clip from the February 8th, 1998 Raw where he beat up Austin. 
And this led to Austin coming out. It's showing clips of him humiliating Vince. This was getting dangerous because they were portraying this old stuff as the day's Raw was good as opposed to now. This went way too long. But it's nostalgia night, and Vince and Austin are great performers, so that was okay. Austin laid Vince out with a stunner. Shane McMahon came in, confronted Austin. He got a stunner. It was going downhill fast. Stephanie McMahon came in. She's bleached her hair. Austin T, she was coming on to him. She slapped him. Austin gave her a stunner. And then Linda McMahon came out. And Dave said, I'm sure the ratings stay good because for whatever reason, Linda McMahon segments do good ratings. <laughs> but she was so far out of it here. The segment with the hell. Then it kept going. Linda has no- noticeably lost weight to the point she was looking frail. She went to Austin apologize after calling her family all pieces of trash, so he did. Then Austin started hitting on her. Every bit of the coolness of Stone Cold was flying out the window as he hit on a 56-year-old woman who can't act or react well in the situation, let alone someone who's been portrayed as above this and Vince McMahon's wife. This was just so wrong. Well, let's play this, and you can pretty much guess what the ending's going to be. So let's go to the clip. Lady, you like beer, don't you? I love beer. I love vodka, tequila, whiskey, wine. Hell, I love any damn thing you can throw at me, so uh, here's to you. Randy McMahon. Don't stop here, I got plenty of beer. Come on, keep drinking. <laughs> Give me some more beer. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. There you go. I've had a champ. All this while the other mans are still laid out. Dead. That, ladies and gentlemen, CEO of World Wrestling Entertainment, a classy woman, Linda McMahon. You just got a beer bag. Yeah, classy woman. And I forgot to say, thank you. Mark Eaton really does have excellent aim. I mean, Mark Eaton, I mean, good Lord. Not only was he a great bell ringer, but he could damn, uh, he could damn throw that beer. Mark Eaton, great at Eaton beers. (laughs) (laughs) But in the end, they say also went to drink beer with her poor beard on her clothes. It's like we were supposed to have the illusion of Linda in a wet t-shirt setting. This is even more wrong. Then he gave her the stunner. Yes, a stunner for all ages, because this is the single worst stunner in the history of wrestling. This went 24 minutes, and it felt like one of those early two-hour teenage pay-per-views in the first year when Russo was booking, or Thunder in the Dying Days that lasted 31 hours in torture time, even though the more time Austin was in with the McMahons, the better the rating grows. This caused everything for the rest of the show to be cut back on time because it got so out of control timing-wise. Wow. I mean... 
that starter was uh, was bad, very very bad. Um, we were talking about this off the air, Eric. Uh, you know, talk about this is the worst starter of all time. Uh, it, Pat McAfee and Vince has now taken over that mantle. But as far as Austin goes, I, yeah, this is the worst Austin stunner ever. It's it's pretty bad. I, she somehow ends up on her back before Austin hits the mat. It's <laughs> I can't figure out how that happened timing wise. And boy, I mean, what do you think about Dave's assessment of Linda here and how how she was looking, you know, being frail, Bix, and all that stuff? Eh, no comment. <laughs> do you think that? Uh, that there was some Linda Vince issues going on at this time period that may have been a, a part of that. Oh, late 2005? What makes you say that? <laughs> uh, she was always, yeah. you know, very lean and everything. Like, I, I don't know that she really looked any thinner to me personally, but. And here's the thing Dave is right. For some strange reason, Linda McMahon drew ratings. I guess because they made it rare enough that it was always a big deal. I mean, I guess, but it was just odd. I don't know. Backstage after this, Vince said that somebody's getting fired. Has anyone recently gotten pregnant or married in the last month? (laughs) (laughs) Dave guessed this could be the swan song for Ross, saying he's going to hurt Austin by firing his best friend. But if he does it that way, that would only make the reaction even more strongly negative for the decision and put even more heat on whoever's in, in, put in the spot. Uh, Dave is talking about how the last round of cuts included both pregnant Dawn Marie and uh, the married couple of Jackie Gata and Charlie Haas. Mm-hmm. With the latter two then being interviewed by WWE.com about being laid off together. Yes. So weird. All right, next match, Edge beat Matt Hardy in a loser leave Raw ladder match at 13.45. They had about nine minutes cut out of their match. Thanks, Vince. Edge suplexed Hardy on the ladder. At one point, both climbed the ladders and knocked each other off, and each caught, each caught their throats on the top rope. Matt used the ladder to spear Edge over the barricade and then did a planche off the ladder into the stands on him. Hardy with the powerbomb lead it through a table, but Edge hit him from behind with a kendo stick. Edge later speared Hardy off the apron through a table. Later, when both were climbing different ladders, Hardy gave Edge a twist of fate from off the, near the top of the ladder. Hardy grabbed the briefcase, but Lita pushed the ladder away, and Hardy was stuck up there. Edge threw him off and tied Hardy in the ropes. Lita held him there, and Edge climbed up to win. Good match before a program that started out with so much emotion. It was shocking how little people really cared about who won here. Three and a half stars. And also another forgotten ladder match that these guys punched their bump card in way too much. Yeah, and, you know, we've we've done a few 2005 shows in this, this summer. And this has come up in every show, this angle. And here's basically the blow-off right here. And, yeah, how all that stuff was going in the beginning and... Between the the wedding and the return and all that stuff, this kind of went out in a whimper, so to speak, Eric. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's kind of, the thing that stuck out to me was that, so they originally had over 20 minutes for this match also. So they're going to do an Iron Man match and a 20-minute long ladder match on one show, which is very unusual for this time. Like when, you know, a lot of the matches were still sub 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was, 
interesting that they were going to have long matches on this show when they don't normally have long matches. And so. it's a two-hour show, too, not a three-hour show. Yes, yeah, right. Next, we go to Ashley, Massaro, and Trish Stratus backstage, and Mae Young joins the fun. So let's go to the clip. Can you get this yeah, for me? Sure. Uh -oh. you know, thanks a lot, Trish, for helping me on this week. Oh, honey, someone had to come back and take care of business, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, explain this to me. I'm off with an injury, and, and suddenly they think they're the number one divas on the Raw? I don't think so. I know. Oh, and then, and then Tori, Candice, and Victoria, they want to have a bra and panties match? <laughs> Hello. I, I can't believe it. <laughs> no problem. I mean, <laughs> we got this, right, Trish? Honey. We got this. Right, right. I mean, oh my yeah, the woman's champion. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and, you know, just in case things don't go, like, so smoothly. And, like, you're, you're covered, right? Yeah. Like, you're all... I, I'm all set. I think, you know, do, do you just want to... Yeah, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll check it for you. Okay, you know, just... Whoa, whoa. Good? It's okay? <laughs> yeah, it's good. Okay, cool. Like, the bra is good. Right, right. right. I mean, you should see the panties. <laughs> no, no, because that means... Somebody say bra and panties. All right, pause. All right, so we have here we have Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Superfly Jimmy Snuka, and Ted DiBiase. And uh, May is, uh, has uh, found them and she is uh, showing her bra. What do you do? Uh, May, I'll give you a thousand dollars. Put your shirt back on. Just put your shirt back on. I oh, know, man. You know, come, come on, man. Come on. What are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? You embarrassing me every time I take you out, you drunk or naked. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'll pay you back. Sister May! Wait, wait, Jimmy. Sister May! Jimmy! Sister May! Oh, 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 oh. oh no! No! Oh, oh, oh. Not Jimmy! Ladies! <laughs> what an interesting use of Mississippi welfare funds. <laughs> I almost tripped over it, but I saved it. Oh my god. And the lovely Maria, of course, playing up her. <laughs> Ditsy gimmick is uh, wearing a homecoming dress. She's the homecoming queen. Dave said that uh, <laughs> Snooker saw Young in her bra, grabbed him up from DiBiase like he was all turned on and was going to make May his hooker for the night. <laughs> bad memories, brother. <laughs> oh, bad memories. I tell you, DiBiase and Duggan together again. <laughs> what a situation. <laughs> Oh my God! You know when when she comes over, and you know Duggan drops his two by four. I'm really surprised Lawler didn't go for a joke about Duggan losing his wood when he saw. Oh uh, yeah, mm. yeah. Lawler missed his opportunity. Should we see what the lovely Maria has to say? Well, she's got Ric Flair coming out here too for a promo. So, oh boy. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure at this time to introduce the one. The only, the 16-time world heavyweight champion, <laughs> the nature boy, Rick Flair. Let me just say to you, baby, that later on tonight we will talk about our homecoming. But right now, it's about <laughs> the return 
of the game. And let me be very honest telling you that Ric Flair would not be standing here tonight if it were not for Triple H. I came back to the WWE four years ago, a broken man. That's right, I'm saying it. My spirit broken, my heart broken, my career broken. But today, I walked that aisle right here, woo, in Dallas, Texas, the Intercontinental Champion. That makes me... He almost had Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion of the World, didn't he? Uh, he's Randy Savage's stick. <laughs> right back where I was, a player, a man, an individual with a drive. And tonight, I walked in this ring, Carlitos Cologne, Master be honored. You should remember this day the rest of your life. You're climbing into the ring with the Nation of Ric Flair, Triple H, the game, the greatest wrestler alive today. The game and the nature boy, side by side. Woo! Dallas, Texas, here we come. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, it will be a tag team slobber knocker next. The incomparable game, the cerebral assassin and the nature boy against Carlito and the masterpiece. They'll get it on live next. This is a return from what, an injury, an impregnation vacation, what? I think both. Okay. <laughs> so, well, uh, that on TV taking a bump, though. She can't be pregnant. Yeah, well, I mean, she's done had the kid. Um, so, Flair and Triple H beat Carlito and Chris Masters in 955. Triple H got a bigger reaction than Dave even expected, given the negative reaction his name got last week when Flair was putting him over. There was even a chant for him. He looked to be about 285 pounds. It's way too big for his frame. He looked downright rusty in there. When you did the Harley race high knees, he could barely get off the ground. Yes, he was humongous. Carlito did some flare spots that couldn't get slammed off the top. Flair saved the place from a sledgehammer shot by clipping Master's knees. Triple H pinned Carlito at their pedigree. Triple H and Flair hugged. And, yeah, you guessed it. Until Flair had his back turned, Triple H nailed him in the face with a sledgehammer shot. Flair juiced like crazy. Triple H beat him up, including the second sledgehammer shot to the head, and Flair. They came back, and Triple H was beating on Flair backstage. Uh, Flair was practically in tears while Triple H acted as if Flair had somehow defied him. He challenged anyone to break it up. Triple H decked two referees and also decked Michael Hayes and Dallas. While he threw a bloody Flair into the back of a limo, smashed the window with the limo with a sledgehammer, ordered the driver to drive Flair off. Match was only a setup for the angle, but it wasn't much. The angle is very graphic, particularly Flair selling star and three quarter. You'll go ahead and play some while we're watching this big here, here, Ross. Nah, I was more curious to see if just how big Triple H was after. He's huge. He's gigantic. And he is how old here? He is. He's I, he's still only uh, thirty four. Yeah, but he's got both knees bandaged. Well, no, not 34th. It's because it's uh, 17 years ago, so he's 36. Sorry. Well, or, I mean, not that much different. Or maybe, 30, yeah, 36, but still. I mean, he's big. I guess, had he been that much smaller before he left, though? I mean, I don't say that much smaller, but he's humongous. Also, this is an era where we still have no drug testing. At all. Yeah, and Flair's just bleeding to the bejesus out here. Yeah. 
Uh, they don't want to go back in time, Chris. <laughs> but all right, well, let's go to the let's go to the continues to tackle Ric Flair thing. Let's watch that one. Okay. Yeah. WWE.com exclusive. As you say, the carnage really continued backstage. Well, we never got we never got anybody out to try to get these two apart. They went all the way back, as you say, backstage, and I think you're going to see here someone at least try to stop it. Come on, Hunter, stop! I love that we're close, so we get Triple H's little pew pew noises when he punches. <laughs> They're totally defenseless. And now we are back. Oh, oh, not, not I can't believe oh, it's still going. Going. Where's the security? Call the police. judges in. Nobody. You understand me? You're going to try to stop me? Huh? Are you going to try? I'm behind you. Believe Nobody's got the balls to stop me. He's crazy. Uh, I'm off, uh, What do you think? I'm just going to let it go, huh? Uh, you think I was just going to let it slide? You know who the hell I am? You better than anybody should know it. Come on! the referee. You better than anybody, Rick. God. Those poor production people, whoever, all their stuff's getting turned over. <laughs> Weird camera work here too. Come on, Coach. You said earlier. I mean, what did Ric Flair do to deserve this? I don't get it. Come on, Flair. Homecoming, huh? It's homecoming. You think I was gonna let this go, huh? Huh? You look at me, nature boy, and you remember, I am the game. Do you understand me? I am Triple H. I do what I say. What I want. I'm the king of kings. There's nothing you can do for oh. it. Getting his blood on that white limousine. You're mine. Suffered the shit out of it. What is he doing? riding, jet flying. Piece of crap. Throws him in the limo. This is amazing. I don't. How convenient was a sledgehammer being there, huh? Piece of crap out of my building. No! Oh! Oh! <laughs> the debauchery, the vileness, and why? I forget what what was the reason for that. I don't know. <laughs> God, we're right home. Man. Yeah, oh, I forgot what the what the reason why he did that was. I love that he's all like, "Oh, I am the game, and I do what I want." Hey, Tommy, want to come back and work with your wife again? <laughs> well, he he actually did. So, <laughs> well, no one's getting releases. <laughs> Yeah, I can't see if there's any type of explanation given. Like on Wikipedia or something? Well, I'm looking into the, the Raw the next week. It's seeing, 
Oh, Flair wrestled on the next week's show. Oh, no, I'm looking at the wrong month. I'm looking at September. All right, so October. October 2005. October the 10th, 2005. All right, let's see here. All right. Uh, all right, Stephanie does a promo. Talk about Austin stunning her. Uh, Triple H runs into Sean in the back. Um, Cena's lost all respect for Triple H. Cena should watch his place. I mean, Wikipedia I, doesn't say why he turned. All right, he says he asked the people thinking he went too far because no one, no one was a bigger Flair mark than him. That's why I was so excited when Flair came in 2001. Flair became a shell of himself. Then Triple H let Flair sit at his right hand, and Flair appeared to be great again. Triple H spent some time at home, though, and he saw Flair getting spat on, with the apple hanging off his face. Then the people cheered when Flair fought back on the icy title when Flair revealed his newfound, reveled in his newfound mediocrity. That's what Triple H knew what he, what he had to do. He took the horse behind the barn and pulled the trigger. The fans want Flair, but Triple H tells Flair not to listen to that. They just drive him further to the ground because without Triple H, Flair is nothing. He's not the dirtiest player in the game because he's not in the game anymore. For Flair, the game is over. Blah, 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 blah. So that's what it is, I guess. <laughs> he turned baby face. He let Carlito spit, spit in his face. That's what it comes down to, I guess. So Triple so. H really doesn't like people who don't want to be cool. <laughs> Obviously. All right, so next we get the legends. So all the special legends were in the ring. Uh, Dave said the only person he saw at ringside in the guest row who wasn't in the ring for some reason was Red Bastine. All right, we're going to name up the list of guys here, and then we'll play the clip. Among those in the ring were Kevin Von Erich, Dusty Rose, Hillbilly Jim, Jimmy Hart, which eventually ended his TNA tenure over $750 payoff. All the race, Greg Valentine, Superstar Billy Graham, Coco Beware, Castle Jim Duggan, Ted DiBiase, Jimmy Snuka, Arn Anderson, Chief J. Strombo, Hillbilly Jim, Dave's got Jim twice, Nikolai Volkoff, Mula, May Young, Ricky Steamboat, Steve Kern, Malenko, Pat Patterson, Sarno Slaughter, Tony Gurria, Howard Finkel, and Dr. Def Steve Williams. Is this the one where Coco Ware has the stuffed Frankie? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. So we're going to go to the clip, and we're going to see what's going on here. As Dusty Rhodes is the official spokesman of the group. Thank God. Live here tonight. Many of our legends uh, have gathered in the ring with the American Dream Dusty Rhodes holding court. Great men and women. <laughs> that Frankie looks stuff. What a great honor oh, wait, it is. It. All right, there it is. Yeah, that is there not is. a genuine bird. <laughs> or maybe it was at one point. Yeah, it doesn't move. What a great honor it is to be back in Dallas, Texas. Own row, own USA, homecoming! What an honor it is to be in this row ring. The memories serve me well. I and Anderson will be beating on my noggin, beating on your noggin most of the time. You know what I'm talking about? Superstar Billy Graham, not wondering if he's gonna put the bear hug on you or the full Nelson. Moolah had no equal. Jimmy Hart, manager sure. of Immortal Men. Immortal Men. Jeff DiBiase, all of us here. And it brings to mind when I want to talk about somebody really cool. What? 
Harley Race. Harley Race, buddy. Speaking of Harley Race. What the hell is this? Are you, are you being horrified by the bird? I can't. Uh, no, it's the music. Oh, yeah. I've heard this music in years. Yes. <laughs> well, he's the con man, and he does it the con way. And he's got his fake Randy Newman theme. Oh, I love it. Uh oh. <laughs> this is <laughs> absurd. It's Rob Conway. Don't you, don't you know Please. who it is? Yeah. Is that also Derry? Am I at WWE Homecoming? Or am I at a nursing home? <laughs> this is pathetic. What's that smell? You smell that? Did one of you forget to change your depends? I think so. You should change those things. But this is supposed to be a homecoming and not a funeral. And each and every one of you looks like you're about half dead. Oh, man, that's wrong. So what you so-called legends need to do right now is get your asses back on your bus, go back to your old Holt home, and make room for the old, next generation. Old Holt home? <laughs> Let's hear that again. Talk about disrespect. What you so-called <laughs> legends need to do right now is get your asses back on your bus, go back to your old Holt home, Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> sure. The next generation. Talk about disrespectful. Hey, hey, easy. You need to make room. Whoa, 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 whoa. How dare you crack whip with the American dream? How dare you crack whip with Iron Anderson? How dare you crack whip with any of these legends? Let me tell you something. The table you eat enough of, the table that you eat enough of right now was built by these legends right here. What the? Without that table, you wouldn't have any food. Now I'm going to go back to what I was talking about. Mr. Harley Race, the champ. Uh, Harley Race? You talking about the five-time, nine-time, ten-time world champion? You talking about him? Setting the table? Because it looks like you haven't passed up any buffet tables. No! Oh! 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 Oh!
Cowboy better know and next even, time even, before he gets into that ring. Howard Finkel's in there. I know it. Well, I'll tell you what. This is going to be great. Right. Trish Stratus teaming with it. That was a great segment. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and Kevin, Kevin, who hasn't done anything like that in God, you know, 15 years, basically. Being out there in Dallas doing that, and that crowd just fucking exploded on that, man. That was awesome. Yep. That was awesome. I mean, that segment was exactly what it should have been. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> That's classic shit. And it's funny watching all the guys in there that you knew were agents because of what they were wearing. Yeah. <laughs> Except Arn. Arn's out there in his polo shirt. But, you know, Steamboat is out there with his tie, shirt and tie on. Malenko, Steve Kern had his blazer on. Dusty was in his coat and tie. He was Virgil Runnels. And... <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. And then Conway would go on to honor them in the coming years by becoming NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Yes, he sure did. <laughs> All right, next, Tor- Trish Strash and Ashley beat Victoria, Candice, Michelle, and Tori Wilson in a bra and panties handicap match at 338. It's stupid to judge this as wrestling because it's a stripper match. The heels were all stripped and it fulfilled its purpose. But why they kept Stratus out so much and more allow Ashley to work with Michelle and Tori is a question. There was some really horribly timed stuff in here, and there's just no way Ashley should be in the ring with Candice Michelle because it's worse than amateur hour. <sighs> But that's what they wanted at the time. This is their, this is what this is the mindset, and we've come so far. We absolutely have, and uh, since then, with the with the women and that company, it's amazing. Let's get a SmackDown special, or do we? Rey Mysterio, Chris Benoit, Batista, what was going to go up against JBL, Eddie Guerrero, and Christian? We got their ring entrances. And then Eric Bischoff turned off the power off in the building, and the SmackDown guys were humiliated. <laughs> wow, was part of the angle. So, but yeah, that 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 was something. Gene Oakland interviewed Hulk Hogan. Got because got hey, notice Hogan wasn't in the ring with the rest of the legends. He had his own segment. Uh, Hogan was terribly rushed because it was so late by this time. It's still the main event. The crowd seemed burned out because he did not get anywhere near the pop he usually gets. And people weren't that hot for his promo. He did say he wrestled Shawn Michaels again. Shawn, run for your life. He talked about how he beat the Rock at WrestleMania. Dave could have swore that result was different. <laughs> Fans chanted for Austin when he brought him to the match, so he cut the promo for Mania. He hadn't even got on a roll when his music started playing, signifying him being cut off. <laughs> wow. And we never got Austin Hogan at Mania. I wonder if we ever would have got that, how that would have been, Eric. Uh, I mean, if, if it happened by this point, it, oh, I, I don't think it would. I mean, it would have been, I guess, kind of like the rock thing where the crowd would have carried it, but it would have been, I think, a much rougher in-ring thing. Well, that would have been the biggest story is how how would the crowd have reacted to that, to that type of match, you know? Yeah. It, it would have been pretty crazy. All right, John Cena pinned Eric Bischoff to keep the WWE title at 244. This was the main event. Again, they were badly rushed. In fact, they were already past the scheduled ending time before this match even started. Cena got a bigger pop than Hogan, so that kind of rain, it's rains here, just being so late in the show reason. Um, Bischoff, who looked out of shape, came in out in black gi to hide his gut. 
It was made though DQ, even though Vince ordered not to be, so, since Vince had left the building. Kurt Angle interfered, but Cena got him up for the FU. Bischoff used a low blow for near fall, but no pop for the kick out. Angle went to hit Cena with a chair, but missed. Chair at the ropes, bounced back, knocked Angle out. That's one still in the greatest spots in the world, the first 499 times you've seen it. Cena used the FU and got the pin. Tanya Long came out, so they're doing it gangster style. And sent the entire SmackDown crew, meaning the guys who have been on the show, plus Mr. Kennedy, to attack Cena and Angle. The Raw underneath guys ran in. Show went off the air with a brawl. Fans should the Raw guys. Even when Big Show faced off with Batista, Raw guys clean house at the end of the show. Dud. So there's Raw Homecoming, which did a good 4.39 rating with 5.6 million viewers. 1.3 viewers per home, Bix. How about that stat here? Hmm. 1.3? 1.43 million oh, viewers per three. home. Okay. That's, a, that's yeah. a little bit closer to what you'd expect. With tons more hype and advertising in Raw history, it still did not beat out the June 27th show as top-rated Raw of the year. That one did a 4.42 and 5.9 million viewers for a show where they teased the secret partner for Sean and Cena and a six-man, which turned out to be Hogan. But the rating was drawn because an awful lot of people expected it would be Rock since they were in Los Angeles. Of course, with Monday Night Football and UFC, not to mention some strong network first-run programming, the competition was a lot tougher than usual. Even with all the advertisements for the show, the first hour being not your usual wrestling hour hurt the overall rating. Yeah, this was a three-hour show. That's the usual why not- they had like a yeah. like nostalgia like clip show first hour, right? No. Because look at the time of your Raw here, Bix, on network. Two hours, 25 minutes run time. Oh, okay. So what was the first hour then? What well, we talked about. Oh, so it was a three-hour show. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, but there were matches and they in the still, first and, hour. And they though. still so went is, long. No, but what I'm trying to say is there were matches in the first hour. So what is he talking about as far as it not being your usual? That's what I was trying to understand. It still went long. So, oh. But anyway. Um, and then real, real quick. All right. So um, I think that does Dave had the ultimate fight. No, he doesn't. All right. So ultimate fighter uh, did 1.6 uh, did a 1.6 uh, rating. 1.4 million homes, uh, 2.1 in, in the 18 to 49, 2.6 in 18 to 34. Total viewers, P2, reached 1.9 million. It was 15% more 18 to 34 than the year earlier. That was from Spike's press release for that. Um, just to give you a hint on the network ratings in that time period, mm-hmm. um, Let's see if I can find it here. All right. Um, King of Queens did a 7.0. And 25 to 54, they did a 4.2. 18 to 49, 3.5. Um, let's see. Uh, How I Met Your Mother did a 6.9. Two and a Half Men did a... It's got all these different... Four, two and a Half Men did a, did a uh, 14.21 million. Uh, Monday Night Football did a 4.8, 11 million. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of big ratings on the Monday night this time period. So, yeah, a different world. Uh, yeah, it was. I right, in the uh, usual 9 to 11, 13 p.m. slot, the show averaged 4.7, 6.0 million viewers, are peaking at a 5.0 for the return of Austin and several other McMahon's. Based just two hours in record time slot, it was the best raw number in the usual slot since April 22nd, 2002, 
when a show had done by Steve Austin and Big Show against Scott Hall and X-Pod did a 4.75 and 6.03 million viewers, way up from the terrible rating of 3.19 the prior week and 4.02 million viewers. Shows a missed bag with some parts disappointing and dragging, but overall it was smart because it was expected to do the biggest rating of the year, and they made sure in front of that audience to shoot several major angles, including the first tease for the planned Hulk Hogan Steve Austin match at WrestleMania. Hmm. They also started the Raw SmackDown angle that would cultivate Survivor Series. Culminate Survivor Series. Tendly with Taylor. Culminate. Tendly with Taylor versus Eric Bischoff in a singles match, as well as Raw SmackDown Survivor Series elimination match. With Team SmackDown as the heels, kept by JBL, and as a Raw team of faces, kept by Shawn Michaels. In addition, they shot the Flair Triple H for Taboo Tuesday in Survivor Series. It won't be until week three when we see how much, if any, the switch from Spot USA Network really means. Cultimate is the non-dairy creamer <laughs> that the Dark Order sells. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, I mean, it's still interesting to look back at those ratings, you know, um, and see how strong TV was even in that era, you know? Yeah. Not that long ago. It's crazy to think about. Yep. Alright, SmackDown. Let's go to Brian Alvarez. They made a big deal to point out the show was taking place right there on the Mexican-American border. You know, every year thousands of damn Mexicans illegally entered the country. You know, sort of like how the English in this country 600 years ago killed all the natives and took over. Goddamn white people. Bradshaw was wearing an inner tube and a poncho and was clutching a huge sombrero and tequila bottle. He cut an anti-Mexican, anti-Rey Mysterio promo, which caused everyone in the crowd, even his fellow white people, to chant very mean things to him in Spanish. Oh, God, I almost forgot. Accompanying him to the ring was a Mexican in a burrow. In a burrow. Yes, a real life, honest-to-God burrow. Long story short, JBL said all the people reminded him of the burrow's ass. I should know that for whatever reason, hopefully because they forgot. Mole Girl was not present this week. Jillian Hall. He then called out his tag team partner for the evening, Mr. Kennedy. Ray came out with his own weird-ass partner, Bob Holly. It took forever to get this match to actually get started. Speaking of stuff you couldn't do today, right here was what's on this TV. Oh. Or how about that ass? <laughs> the ass here has a JBL uh, style uh, blanket over it. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, uh, John Bradshaw Layfield is definitely going for the heat here, isn't he, Bix? He would never do such a thing. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness! So when we get Ray and Bob Holly against. Kennedy and JBL. Wait, oh, yeah. He has to get rid of all that stuff to get in the ring, well, I would think. Oh, yes. Is he, is he going to try to get in with the inner tube on, though? Let's see. He's trying. Whoa. <laughs> he ain't in all the way in yet. There he goes. Jesus. All right, so uh, Brian don't know if the phrase was banned by the network or what, but he had to listen to Cole and Taz bombard us with the words Friday Night Smackdown about 16 times in the first 10 seconds of this match. 
And if Brian hears Cole say Friday Night Smackdown's TV that's changing Friday nights one more time, he will attempt to put his fist through the TV through into his face. Bad guys got the heat on Ray. JBL beat him and put him in bear hugs and choked him with the flag of Mexico. Bob got the hot tag around Wild. It's strangely fun watching Bob and JBL together. No sooner should Brian speak than Bob drop kicked him right in the face. Broke down into a missed time for a win. Bob walked in the clothesline from hell for the pin. But what exactly did that accomplish? Ray and Bradshaw, or having a match at the pay-per-view, and when we were for the big angle was that Bradshaw pinned Bob Holly in a tag match. Back from commercial, Cole once again reminded us that thousands have crossed the border into the U.S. here in Laredo every year. This is a brilliant plan to bring back those Latino viewers that stopped watching after the Ray-Eddie feud ended. <laughs> well, they're really leaning in tonight on this one, aren't they? <laughs> All right, so we got... Well, there's yeah, more. Fixed. Let's go to Eddie Guerrero. Let's watch this, shall we? Okay. Mm. Put a look on his face. Actually, wait, do we have it? Yeah, we do have a chapter mark for this. Okay. Orale, Holmes, it's got everything, right, man? Oh, yeah, it's all there. <laughs> the relleno. Okay, man, the frijolitos, the arroz, carne asada, taquitos. Look at Eddie's arms. Orale, Holmes, all right, man. That's good. Hey, 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 my, 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 my tortillas. Oh, Thank you. Look at the veins sticking Vamos. out of his arms. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Hey. I'm... Hey, Dave, Hello. what's up, Holmes? You're not speaking of it. <laughs> By the way, I just wanted to apologize for last week, man. Even though I still beat him with a frog splash, I feel I let you down, you know what I mean, Holmes? And I, and I just want you to know, man, that that's never, ever going to happen again. I promise you. Okay. You know, because out of this, man, we're not only going to become great friends, I say. And you're not only going to be the world heavyweight champion, but get this, let's see. I promise you, tonight, you and me, we're going to be the WWE Tag Team Champions. Orale, vato. Can you feel that, Holmes? Right here in Laredo, let's see. Con mi raza, vato. Orale, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mexican food. Yeah, it looks Thai good, man. You sure you should be eating that? Why not? I don't think so, man. I mean, you had that stomach thing last week. I don't know if it's... Yeah, let me take this. I'll eat this. But, 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 no, but, 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 no, no, no. I'm looking no, out for no, you. No. You had the stomach it's... thing last week, and you're still looking kind of pale and, and frail. You shouldn't be eating this stuff. Let me let me eat this for you. Okay. He's going to use Eddie's fork, too, to eat it with. Oh, I'll see you in the ring. Hmm. Oh, Ruff, those are gross. Eddie does look very frail here. That's it. <laughs> That's what I'm missing. All right. I'll see you in the ring. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. It is, of course, sarcasm because he's gigantic. <laughs> so Brian said, nine days away, and this is the latest twist in the Big 80 Batiste storyline. Big Dave ate his food. Well, I mean, that's very important. I, it, it, You know, Eric, I mean... Good Mexican food that can uh, if you take somebody's food away, I mean, good lord, I mean that can, that can really start some problems. I mean, he got off pretty easy considering the next shot's Molina. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> to, to, you know, someone got more than their food taken on that one. <laughs> Eddie's arms, yeah, like I was saying, the veins are just popping out of his arms. Yeah. Oof. 
right, so a pre-taped deal aired where Melina was outside on her cell phone and Christy Hemme showed up. And yes, we got to watch this. So what time is that audition? Yeah, not, don't bother me with the rest of that stuff. That's what my agent is for. Yeah. Dinah Wide Glide, Harley Davidson. A motorcycle. Okay. Yeah, excuse you. You almost ran me over back there. You know what? You better watch yourself. Please don't touch me, Melina. We don't need to get pushy around here, okay? Whatever. I'm just ride my bike. Oh, my nail! Oh my god. Oh, oh. my gosh. No, you didn't. Melina, oh. it's just a nail. Oh. Come on, I'm just riding my bike. You're gonna pay for this, Christy. The All right. So Brian Alvarez <laughs> told about how Melina was mad she couldn't hear herself and while Chrissy was running around on her bike. They got into a catty, bitchy argument, and Melina broke a nail. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Amazing acting. I thought Christy was okay. Well, then we get a match. Melina and Christy against each other. Christy was still wearing the same clothes she'd been wearing while riding the motorcycle. They had a terrible match, but compared to the skit, this was five stars. Melina worked over arm with various holds. Are they going 15 minutes, Vince? Brian's buddy Vince asked. Well, perhaps they are. This sucks, he added. Christy made the stiffest comeback ever. Stiffer than even the comeback that involved Bob Holly and JBL. And Brian has to admit the babes got fire. Johnny Nitro then tripped her running the ropes, and Maria got the pin. Yes, she was pinned after being tripped. It says Maria. He means Maria. Maria. (laughs) Maria. He's got Maria on the brain, I guess. Yeah. Eminem went to get her afterwards, but LOD 5000 made the save. That's right. Eminem versus LOD 5000 must continue. Speaking of, guess what? On the fuse continuing. Cowboy Bob came out. He said he won the match with the Undertaker and assured him that his son, Randall K, was not going to let get involved. Taker came out. The announcers know the next pay-per-view, which takes place in nine days, mind you, will feature an Undertaker versus Randy and Bob handicap casket match. So not only are we getting more of the same shit that we've been watching for about the last nine months, but they're going to further bury Randy six feet under. Brian wondered what he did to piss them off. Well, I got to go a few things. (laughs) So so anyway, Undertaker had a match with Bob Orton. It's about a minute. The ref took a bump. You think I'm kidding? Randy came out and they double-teamed Taker. Michael Cole said this was... This was what just showed you the Orton's were be able to do together pay-per-view. They beat on him for about 20 minutes. Brian guessed the ref was dead. So they beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him. And in the end, the Undertaker just jumped up and tried to slam Cowboy Bob and won. Yeah, we sure did see what those Orton's were going to do to take it to pay-per-view. That segment right there was worth about negative 25,000 buys. <laughs> because anyone who wanted to buy the pay-per-view to see this match cannot have any desire to do so after this. Because the Undertaker took everything the two of them had, no sold it, and one clean. UPN, please cancel this show for the sake of my sanity. <laughs> See, I knew what I was doing. I wasn't watching SmackDown. I was. Re- I didn't have to deal with all this shit. Next, 
a video package aired of Eddie and Batista, which consisted of clips of them hugging and shaking hands and shit. <laughs> wow. Ah, uh, yes, when Eddie was trying to join the bloodline. <laughs> Next, we get Blaster Lashley against Russell Simpson. If things weren't bad enough for this show, Russell Simpson got heat on Blaster Lashley. I cannot believe what I'm watching. This is the worst show I ever saw. Lashley finally made a big comeback in one. Lashley tipped for the absolute fucking idiots in charge of this show. And Brian put it in simple English with as few words as letters as possible. Less selling, more amateur, and killing. So then who came out to confront him? Simon Dean! The same Simon Dean that was beaten unmercifully in this last week, last week. Yes, they're having another match. And this time we have to pay thirty four ninety five for it. Blaster stomped on a shake and press slammed Simon over the top to the floor. That looked uncomfortable. Yes, he was still Blaster Lashley at this point in time. Well, I don't know if they ever called him Blaster on SmackDown, but this is this. I guess he was. Debut. No, I think he had the match. No, he had the Simon D match the week before. I think this is his second match. Okay. And Russell Simpson would be Psycho Simpson, Psycho the Death, etc. Yeah. And, uh, Actually, perhaps best known for his Sunday Night Heat appearance as one half of the team of CM Punk. <laughs> God knows. Imagine two of them. Oof. At the commercial, Christian was in the ring doing a peep show. He said he was appalled to see that there was no U.S. title match left for pay-per-view yet. Presumably he's watched the previous hour and 20 minutes of this program. He was ranting and raving about he deserved a title shot against Ben Juan when Booker and Charmel came out. Charmel, as usual, did all the talking. She said her man deserved the shot. She said Christian may have pinned Ben Juan recently, but Booker pinned Christian last week. Wow, the first storyline this entire show that makes any sense whatsoever. No sooner should Brian speak than Orlando Jordan came out and in a statement defying all logic said he deserved the shot. His argument, which Brian is not making up, was that since he didn't tap out in 30 seconds last week, he should be the number one contender. Teddy Long came, finally came out and said he was going to let Chris Benoit decide who got the shot. And to give Benoit another look at the competitors, he was signing a triple threat match. All three guys looked upset. Yeah, it sucks when you're a wrestler wearing your wrestling gear on a wrestling show and someone actually asked you to have a wrestling match. <laughs> Leading to Christian versus Booker versus Orlando Jordan. Had a real quick three-way in which they threw in as many death-defying high spots as possible, including a stacked-up superplex, which was cool the first time, but now hardly gets anything more than a momentary pop. And speaking of Orlando, Penn Booker, after a schmoz in the air, went completely out of the building. Benoit came out, and to make a long story short, he said he won the four-way view with all three guys. What's he, Tommy Dreamer? I'm hardcore. I'll take them both. I'll take them all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That's what it was doing, wasn't it? I mean, come on. Backstage, Mr. McMahon met with Teddy Long and the network guy. That's Palmer Cannon, right, Bix? Yeah, Would it be Palmer so. Cannon? He wanted to know what Teddy was offering Raw for the homecoming show. The SmackDown's for Raw. Teddy said there were so many great guys on the Raw, so he wasn't sure yet. This one no more. So Long said JBL, Eddie, Ray, Benoit, Christian, Big Dave were going to be there. This one know what the match was. He hadn't decided. Well, let's see. Six guys, three baby faces, three heels. Hmm. And we all know what happened there. And next we get the main event. 
LOD 5000 versus Big Dave and Eddie for the tag titles. Eddie got the heat with a low blow on John Heinrich behind the rest back. Oh, wait, no. He had a low blow that was so devastating that Heinrich immediately tagged Animal in. And then five seconds after that, Heinrich tagged back in and wasn't selling a thing. Brian, guess what happened is LOD got heat on Eddie and not vice versa because next thing you know, Big Dave got the hot tag around Wild. Yes, of all four guys in the ring, the one guy who's actually supposed to be a heel, Eddie, played babyface in peril. <laughs> this was Thunder at his peak. Dave hit the demon bomb on Heiner right, but Animal broke it up. Eminem hit, the ring. Oh. Eminem hit the ring for the DQ, and Eddie tried to whack Joey Mercury with a chair, but Mercury moved, and Eddie accidentally hit Dave. And suddenly there was a moment that saved this from being the worst SmackDown of all time. All right, so we got to go to the finish. Yes. Even though you're watching, I had Palmer it, I Cannon. thought I had it on mute. I wanted to make sure. Yes, that is Palmer Cannon. It's Palmer Cannon. Yeah, I forgot how much he looks like giant Rob Naylor. Looks <laughs> like giant Ian Riccoboni. Actually, that's a better fit. Yes. All right, well, he's looking to the... particularly Jack these days too. So, well, he's, yeah, but he's not giant size. No, he's not as tall. Um... All right, so here we go. Okay, yeah, we got like two minutes left. So this oh, yeah. tag team titles. Thumbs up, thumbs down. And Heinrich, he's about to go up. And he might. Oh, fuck you. Batista Bob connecting the cover. And Road Warrior Animal saving the matchup. I wonder who's in my ear right now. For his team. Saving the thumb. What the hell is this? That's Nitro and Mercury and Molina. touch-up from Stanford at the end there, too. So, Brian said what happened was, Eddie turned to Mercury and screamed, why did you move? And Mercury replied, you were trying to hit me! 
So Eddie threw the chair at him, played dead. So then when Dave turned around, he thought Mercury was responsible. He did. So he whacked him in the chair. Taz wanted to know what was going to happen when Dave found out it was Eddie who hit him. Well, if he's a rational human being, he shouldn't be mad at all since it was, you know, a real accident. And then they show ended. The storyline twist being the final bill for this week towards the big Eddie Dave match. Zero star SmackDown. <laughs> so how about that? Eric, the, the, the show that got Brian's ire this week was SmackDown. More than it, Impact. Yeah, I mean, this this does look like a rough one on paper. Oof. Yes. Once again, I was not watching that show at that time. Ooh, looks like I didn't miss anything. Oof. I kind of checked out WWE around the the summer this year. Somewhere, somewhere around the Jericho leaving thing, I was like, you know what? I think I'm good here for a little while. <laughs> Goodness gracious. All right, here we go. All right, so let's go to the Pro Wrestling Torch. Now, Dave Meltzer devoted almost an entire issue of a newsletter. He did a double issue for this week, devoted to the Ultimate Warriors DVD. And uh, Ultimate Warrior um, had some statements to make about this. And Wade Keller did a more concise version of all this. So I went with Wade's version. So here we go. The Ultimate Warrior turned down a W invitation to speak his mind on W.com's Bite This talk show. Instead, he lashed out WE in the vitriolic rant on his website, UltimateWarrior.com. Regarding the invite, he said, of course, I do not accept this brainless, disgraceful invitation. Fuck no, I do not. You can rescue yourself, Vince. Do your own damage control. I have no ear for your begging anymore. Only if you were on fire would I help you. It'd just be too hard to resist pissing on you. Ty Grisham, Matt Stryker, and Draws host an Ultimate Warrior edition of Bite This on September 28th, with the attention of allowing Warrior to respond to the WWE Self-Destruction Ultimate Warrior DVD. Warrior refused to comment on DVD, and through a message on his website, made it clear he did not want to appear on the show. In the message, all right, folks, get ready for this. Warrior described Grisham as the queer, quote-unquote, and draws as the cripple, quote-unquote, Taking offense, Grisham and Draws fired back against Warrior before Matt Stryker appeared in Warrior costume. During the parody segment, Grisham asked Warrior how he grew so large. Warrior fired back. It's the steroids. The steroids. This portion of the segment was edited up by this one day after WWE.com posted a statement questioning whether the parody went too far. Last time about this, what was intended to be a lighthearted parody on the Ultimate Warrior's official statement regarding his refusal to appear on the show may have gone a little overboard, wrote WWE.com. Todd Grisham and Matt Stryker went into a direction that was not the original intent of the producers of Bite This or the WWE. <laughs> In other words, we already know that we violated the non-disparagement terms of our last settlement. <laughs> but they might have gone a little too far. Just a little bit, Bex. Just a little bit. But do you blame him? I mean, do you blame Todd Grisham and Draws for being upset at what he was calling them? You know? No, they have every right to be pissed off at him. Yes. Especially they didn't do anything to him personally. No! (laughs) I'm sorry, I like... like... Actually, I was going to say, isn't it something, by the way, how everyone's insults for Todd Grisham in this era are homophobic? It is something, isn't it? 
the queer, that cocksucker. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is something, isn't it? Eh, some things have gotten better in 17 years, I guess. In response to WWE claims on the self-destruction Ultimate Warrior DVD that he held WWE up for money before SummerSlam 91, Warrior gave his side of the dispute. This is a doozy, folks. About holding you up for money, you got that wrong, too, he wrote that for his website. Of course, it's a fantasy you've created, so it makes it true in your twisted mind. There was an issue about a WrestleMania 7 payoff, but the strong arming being done was by you and your conniving financial thug at the time, Doug Sages, not me. Instead of being straightforward with me about what the payoff was going to be, you kept dragging out avoiding any discussion about it, while Sages unethically concocted a counterfeit loan to me, which I knew nothing about, till much later, say around SummerSlam time. How coincidental. When I called you on it, you duplicitously scribbled down and rushed me a letter praising me for my contributions to the company, my one-of-a-kind work ethic, and that you were proud to have me not just as talent, but know me as a friend. And then, surprise! You pulled a 180 on me and courageously suspended me after SummerSlam 91 by handing me a tough, condescending letter. You expected me to drop to my knees right then and lick one of the three balls you claimed you had, begging to take you, begging you to take me back right there in the MSG locker room, right there in front of your adulterous ball licker at the time, Mrs. Emily Feinberg, so you could show her, I guess, how big of a man you were. But I told you that Emily was the one good at it, and you would be seeing me for quite some time. I didn't lie. I got my bath with Arizona and moved to New Mexico and left you ill with worry about where I was. Where's my warrior, you boohoo for months? It's a flat-out Wizard of Oz fantasy that I ever held you or WF up for some money. Okay. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, the Emily Fiverr thing is, uh, is, uh, is something else, isn't it? Your adulterous ball licker at the time. <laughs> wow. Interesting, too, that he put, that he phrases it that way when the part of her testimony where Linda started crying in the trial was when she starts talking about uh, how you use HCG to keep your balls from shrinking. Uh, so, okay, where do you want me to start with this? Start wherever you want to start. I, I guess. mean, Warriors, <laughs> Warriors' version of this is closer to the truth than the one on the DVD, for sure. Well, yeah. So you know, this story's better known now. I think coming out of the like they and E documentary and stuff. But what happened was, was that after the thing where the son of a station manager claimed he had asked Warrior for an autograph, and that Warrior was very rude and blowing him off. Warrior, despite it being his reputation, Warrior swore he didn't do it. How much you want to read into that, I have no idea, because it was well within his character to do something like that. Maybe it happened and it was said he made a specific comment he didn't, I don't know. But that led to the recording of the apology video that you see in the A&E thing. And even though Vince is, you know, now that we've seen the video, stressing to him the whole time, it's a work. It's a fucking work. You know, this is not me not trusting you. This is me trying to cool off the situation. Warrior gets fed up and writes him that letter where he's like, you need to pay me the same exact as Hogan on everything. And we know that you underpaid me for WrestleMania. 
so we will consider forgiving me my loan towards my house, which I think was 550 grand. Um, we'll consider that my WrestleMania payoff. And he said he was not basically not going to show up until Vince agreed, did no show a few shows, Vince agreed, and then at SummerSlam, after Warrior got out of the ring, Vince was like, here you go, pal, and gave him the letter suspending him, where he dresses him down. So, I mean, the Warrior version here is basically true. Yeah. Emily Feinberg. Yeah, I forgot that she was allegedly right there, at least according to Warrior. That's Vince's, it was Vince's mistress. Yes, his personal assistant, who had originally been, I think it was Renee DuBose's personal assistant, until Vince saw her and found out she had been a play-by-play mate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Warrior got his digs in there, and uh, Doug Wages, Doug Sage, excuse me. Yeah, that's a name that we haven't uh, really talked about. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, that Warrior seems to think that Vince had nothing to do with whatever the predatory loan was, too. Yeah. Um, because we only know about, like, one or two specific cases, but I gotta think there are more, right? Yeah. Because there was also the whole thing of trying to get guys to buy houses so they'd be more dependent on WWF. Yeah. But, uh... (laughs) Yeah, that was a doozy there, by old warrior. <laughs> We're not done, so no. we have more to go. Regarding Vince McMahon saying in DVD he couldn't wait to fire him, Warrior cited that McMahon called him in 1998 and the of the heated Monday Night War offered him huge contract to return to the roster. Instead, Warrior signed with WCW. Nothing has changed. You still don't have any class. All the success, wealth, and power brought you none. And no amount of all this that you have, you do have, will ever be enough for you to own O W N all caps me. But I, Vince O W N all caps, a little piece of you, don't I, Vince? The DVD admits it to the world, alone, looking in the mirror to your dying day. The passionate, intense, and intelligent man who came, created, and drove the legend of the Ultimate Warrior deep into the hearts and souls of millions of fans, and then walked away from it all on his O W N all caps terms will forever own a piece of your psyche. And Vince, you will never forget that I am that man. Self-centered? Yes. Wrong? I don't know. I don't think he's wrong, Eric, because, I mean, look, he, Vince brings him back in, in 96. He wants to bring him back in 98. Didn't happen. And then eventually he does bring him back, you know, later on, you know, for the Hall of Fame and all that stuff. And we got, you know, a sad situation there at the end, but Vince obviously had some type of soft spot for the warrior. Yeah. And I mean, I, I wonder how much of it was that weird connection Linda had with him. Also, I like, a role in it. You know, cause I, I, sometimes I've wondered if it's like something that like, you know, when Vince messed up, he kind of went back to warrior to get back in Linda's good graces. But you know, that's because yes, remember everyone, there got to be a point where Linda would sign her written communications to Warrior as mom. <laughs> Warrior was the son Vince always wanted, I guess, huh? <laughs> this reminds me of uh, the, when he 
when he wished Triple H the birthday on happy birthday on Twitter with like the long like oh, a glowing example of a man, and then like a few weeks later, happy birthday Shane McMahon. <laughs> Speaking of Triple H, yes, Warrior called Warrior called Triple H Puffy Man, which was never more true than his return on Raw this week, and accused him of emulating his style. You tried to replicate everything about me, he wrote. It was the ultimate warrior intensity and look you strove for. That I would not agree with. Yeah. No, but he was puffy as shit. Yes. Most controversial of all maybe his comments about Bobby Heenan, who was as harsh towards warriors as anyone on DVD. Warrior wrote, as for you, Bobby Heenan, it's just too difficult to keep a straight face talking about the pure two-faced bag of shit you have, you have always been. What would you also actually wearing one as a piece of body jewelry, you were dying disease on the inside, and no more time is left to get back into the integrity that matters the most on death's bed. Imagine what it'd be like lying there, taking in your last breaths, knowing you hoarded yourself out for your whole life and had to, in your final years, be faced with emptying your own personal shit bag, affirming to you the true value of what you achieved in your life. Not even Vince could come up with a better finish than this. Karma is just a beautiful thing to behold. <laughs> and Heenan's one of the people who clearly had legit beefs with him in the DVD because he was hurting him and stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. Mm. Warrior closed by saying he might produce a, a rough rebuttal DVD to WWE's claims and offer it through his website. I don't think that Never ended happened. up happening. I do think he worked on it, but I don't think it ever came out. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, the warrior. It was something else. Stand with a torch. Jose Caseco sources to tell Pro's torch is not the slender being taught with regarding WrestleMania next year. If only that he would have been. Also, stealing a torch. Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin, Vince McMahon, and Linda McMahon were all on CNBC's The Big Idea with Donnie Deutsch, or <laughs> the way you had this spell here, Donnie Douche. <laughs> well, close, but yes. <laughs> on September 28th, for the full hour, when Deutsch described, I mean, when Deutsch reviewed the show, he called Hogan the greatest WWE star of all time and merely described Austin as a six time champion. <laughs> Hogan was clearly given top billing and most publicity for the homecoming show. During the interview, Vincent Mann said that the Muhammad Hassan character failed because the person who played the role, Mark Capani, wasn't a good fit. When asked by Deutsch about the controversy surrounding the Muhammad Hassan character and storyline, McMahon shifted the blame from the promotion to Capani, saying that Capani did not perform as expected. This followed last week's burial of Hassan by Sean Devari, the former manager. Of Hassan. Davari opened the that Hassan dropped the ball backstage and in the ring. Huh. So Davari <laughs> went out and buried him too, huh? Wow. Well, I mean, we talked about this the whole Muhammad Hassan deal on the show, you know, a couple times and stuff. I mean, I don't blame Mark Apani for not wanting to be that character anymore. Oh. Absolutely not. So, you know, the t- you know, it, it is what it is. And on top of everything else, he's an Italian dude in brown face. <laughs> yeah. All right, stand with a torch. 
informed backstage sources since Triple H had wanted to take time off earlier this year or even late last year because he felt his character had grown stale. As a man, though, dis- disagreed and felt the timing was not right for Hunter to remove himself as a centerpiece of Raw. But then he got his time off anyway, so. But yeah, Triple H's character being stale at that time? Come on now. You don't say. He's just been doing the same damn gimmick for four years, basically. You know? Yeah. That's why it was kind of a relief when he turned babyface and DX again, because he was cutting loose again. Yeah. He wasn't in the game anymore. In the game. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Candice Michelle's Playboy shoot later this year is scheduled to feature her with the women's title wrapped around her waist. So expect a title change sometime between now and then. And she got the title. On USA Network's message board for Raw, there was a discussion of TNA becoming a national competitor. It was not being moderated by usual WWE standards. Evidence because a fan wrote, three hours? They could really put together two hours as it is. At least now we have a cure for insomnia. (laughs) Oh, if that fan only knew what was coming, huh? (laughs) Well, he wasn't watching anymore by then. Yeah. And regarding the three annual preemptions, a fan wrote, and now you can see what USA really thinks of their wrestling fans. Says McMahon, abhors censorship. There's surely no chance these threads and posts will be altered or deleted. Hmm. Now, wait a second. So they did not get the preemptions taken out in this return to USA? It was the next contract? Yes. So that was, what, 2010? Mm-hmm. Something like that, yeah. Huh. That's Dave. Jamie Noble's been told he's going to be using a comedy team based on David and Goliath with Jack Bull. Bull's a big, untalented guy in deep South wrestling. Well, that didn't happen. So, plans change. And this week's version of Todd Grisham's cluelessness was on the Raw website coverage when Grisham saw a sign in Japanese in the crowd, and Grisham said, some Chinese are here to cheer on the Japanese buzzsaw. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good week for Todd Grisham. <laughs> no. I mean, feel free to call him an idiot, just not the other stuff. But we're not done yet. How'd you guys get to Japan? <laughs> <laughs> Ohio Valley Wrestling. The best TV show Dave saw all weekend by far was the October 1st OVW television show. It was a better written show than probably any they've done. But the crowd was red hot as it was at the prior taping. Vix, you want to uh, tell everyone who the writer for OVW is at this time? Paul Heyman. They opened with a press conference with Matt Capitelli still with a crutch. They claimed it was at the WB Studios. They just showed Capitelli and had the wrestlers there but didn't shoot them. And they were cheering big time to make him look like a star. Maria is, all, is also ten times more effective here than on Raw. He announced his return for a title shot at Johnny Jeter in October. And before you give him a date, Jeter showed up and hit him with the title belt. They never shot Capitelli taking a bump on the ground. It was really smart use of what Dave's guessing was fake blood, as Jeter had blood drops all over his shirt and his hand to give the illusion that Capitelli was bleeding a ton. Mr. Kennedy then did his reannounce been announcing Jeter as the winner and still WWE champion after the first ever press conference podium match. Aaron Stevens pinned Seth Skyfire on a net breaker. They didn't know what they what they see in Shelly Martinez. It's a nasty girl, but he just doesn't see it. 
Stevens told Alexis Lurie that she could stay with Chris Cage or come, but he didn't mean it with that spelling, with the three of us. And they spelled it C-O-M-E when he meant C-U-M. It's an old ECW Nancy Sullivan line from 10 years ago, which must have been memorable because they knew the line way before Stevens got there. Skyfire did an awesome plancha. Fans love Skyfire, even though he's been buried since Cornette left, since he's a non-contract guy. Post-match, Stevens will still be on Skyfire when Cage ran in. Beth Phoenix and Shelly gave him a double low blow. Lorene ran with a neck brace on. Phoenix and Shelly picked her up for the suplex spot. Short skirt falling victim to gravity. Major panty shot. But she reversed into a DDT on both while Cage cleaned house on Stevens. Then they went back to the studio where Kennedy and Jeter were still being on Capitale. When Robert Briscoe, that's B-R-I-S-K-O, told them to leave and Kennedy slapped him. Then they did a great segment with Bowling Services consisting of Dean, Warrior, Visk, and Ken Doan. The, the show from the start was built around the Bern Albright Ken Doan 3 match like it was Edward Morales and Marco Antonio Pereira. And Dave notes that Paul Heyman has been paying lots of attention to boxing MMA of late, and it shows in the booking. The storyline is even if, even though Lashley wasn't getting long, Bowling noted that Bolin noted that Lashley is bringing in the cash with his getting over on SmackDown, and they're using it to upgrade the first class and for limos taken from Don King booking by Tyson, and told Visk and Don to get along with him because he's bringing in the money. List came in and Viz screamed in his warrior voice, Bobby is my friend! <laughs> Everyone was about to leave to go in the ring with Dome, but Dome with the Lashley and said, I'm a WrestleMania moment waiting to happen, and you're going to go down in history as Ken Dome's bitch. Well, that's funny looking in hindsight, isn't it? <laughs> Dome versus Albright for the TV title was a good match, not quite as good as two weeks ago. Some of that was due to a less hot crowd. Viz tried to interfere. But at first, Doan told him not to, and he could handle it on his own. Then Albright on the floor was attacked by Bolin, put Bolin in the crowbar, and visited a number on Albright. Doan at this point was happy for the interference. Doan did two German suplexes and pinned Albright in his own crowbar, Fujiwara armbar finisher. Albright managed to escape and use four German suplexes to put the crowbar on. The bell rang, so to find a 20-minute draw. Dave had it at 17.25, but they did have a commercial break that figured into it. And then Doan tapped. Both guys agree for five more minutes. This time, Albright delivered six German suplexes, but Doan hit a desperation RKO. The bell rang with Doan about to pin Albright, and Doan demanded another five minutes on the beating Albright. In the last minute, both were on their knees, trading punches when none of them dropping, and the bell rang. Albright said the people deserve a winner or loser and asked for a sudden death finish. Doan said he, was, he wasn't even tired while at the dead, but Albright had three chances and couldn't get it done. Doan said he gave a top shot right then and there to anyone but Albright. Out comes Lashley. Lashley, he's not out to fight Doan, but he wants Doan to fight Albright to a finish because if Doan, won't, if Doan doesn't, he'll look like er, er, to everyone like a pussy. He did say Doan won't fight Albright. He'll fight Doan. Ended up with him squaring off and Visk attacking Lashley. Doan hit the RKO, but Lashley got up from it. Visk then brought the TV title trophy on Lashley and pounded on him. And they also beat Owen Albright with the broken trophy until the show went off the air. And if anyone's listening to that this and wondering why the recently debuted CM Punk is not on this in any form, that's because in his OVW debut a week or so earlier, he got badly injured by Danny Inferno, who broke his nose and ruptured his eardrum. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So. Which, I mean, Punk doesn't actually miss that much time. He's only out 10 days, 11 days, but... 
always wondered if that was intentional because I don't think Danny Inferno had a rep for hurting people. But oh. I don't know. But anyway, maybe a message. It was weird. And then, of course, Punk ends up becoming buddies with Heyman and sitting in with him when he edits the TV. But yeah, Dave loves this uh, Heyman OVW TV. It's definitely different from what it had been. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, you know, this was like, I guess, the last great OVW run, you would say. So, yeah, but interesting to look back at, you know, Bobby Lashley, who uh, still looks the same today as he did back here in this time period, basically. Well, he's a little smaller. He was, he's gigantic here, but yeah. I mean, gigantic even by his standards. You know what I mean? Um, There was something else I had to add here. What was it? Um, It's weird to think that Capitelli presumably already has brain cancer at this time and only has a few months left in his career. That's why they're not doing the heavy stuff with him. They're making it look that way, right? Mm, No, this is separate. No, because he wrestles through December. It's the... um, It's that he gets a concussion from a chair to the head, a legit concussion from a chair to the head in a post-match angle, I believe, and then when he's at the hospital getting the concussion checked out, they find the tumor. Yeah. Which also, I mean, shows that as far as I know, he didn't have any symptoms yet. So if Johnny Jeter doesn't crack him with that chair shot, he probably does not get the years of life that he had after that. Yeah. Sometimes good things can come in strange ways. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Eric, we definitely appreciate you uh, being on with us and requesting to the show. So now it's plug time for you, my man. So plug away with what you, uh, what you got going on. Uh, definitely want to plug uh, Bloodstorm Pros, the company I'm the uh, Kermit of the Muppet Show on. Um, <laughs> So please uh, follow us social media, uh, Twitter's Bloodstorm Pro One. Everything else is just Bloodstorm Pro. Our next show is October eighth. Got some cool stuff. We got the rep against friends of the show. Violence is forever. I uh, got a three way death match main event, and uh, it's, a, it's a heavy metal party. That's the goal. So come check it out. Awesome, awesome. And anything else you want to plug plug on? And or is that it? Or and my, and my personal Twitter is just exister. Uh, I post on there sometimes and post stupid memes about the Hit Squad. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, next week on Between the Sheets, we had a 2005 show this week. Two weeks we got a 2004 show. That's another Patreon requested show. I think it's two weeks. Remember, no, three weeks away. So we got 2,000 shows here, so we got to get a buffer. So we're going back to the 80s. 1988 next week on Between the Sheets, where what a show this is. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about NWA. We got chaos running through the NWA as um, we're in that time where nobody knows when the deal's going to get done with Turner. And it's just a holding pattern. But the Road Warriors turn heel. So we'll have news on that as they turn heel in Richmond on the TV taping on Sting. So we'll have that. Plus news on comings and goings and everything else going on. So we'll have a a lot of uncertainty in the NWA. 
we got uh, international stuff to talk about. And each fan runs a couple of interesting shows at Cork and Hall. We got uh, a big title change in Stampede to talk about. In the U.S., we got uh, Continental undergoing a booking change as Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. has flown the coop. So we'll talk about that. We got news on the possible purchase of World Class by Jerry Jarrett. Eric Embry begins his babyface turn in Dallas. So we'll talk about that. And in the World Wrestling Federation, we got uh, Paris, France. They run their their big show in Paris, France. We'll talk about that. Other house shows going on. Um, Terry Taylor on the Brother Love Show. Vicks will love that. But the two big stories of our week, one's in the WF. As Fort Wayne, Indiana, Jacques Rougeau gets his revenge on a Dynamite Kid. And the United Association of Wrestling Fans convention takes place during our week, which means Dave Meltzer is in Memphis, Tennessee. So we'll have uh, Dave's thoughts of uh, attending the studio show that week with clips and attending the Mid-South Coliseum show that Monday night. So when I was doing the notes for this show, I figured we got to have somebody on this show that would be perfect for this theme and this motif. Well, so why not find why why Bix? Okay. Why not find some why not find somebody that was there? So next week on between the Chiefs making his return to the show will be John McAdam. Hey. And he has a lot to say. <laughs> so uh he, he has stories that were not in the observer and all kinds of other things. So John will be with us next week on Between the Sheets. And it ties into one of the other main stories. Because at the UAWF convention are Paul Heyman and Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr., professionally known as Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. <laughs> yeah, well, so we'll have that. So it uh, should be quite the show next week on Between the Sheets. All right, Eric. Thank you again for requesting the show and being on with us. Probably appreciate that. Bex, thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets episode, Between the Sheets Patreon special edition episode number 72. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host David Bix and Span and Bix. It's time to get back into the late 2000 groove here with WCW and their uh, prospects of being for sale. And you know, part one, we ended at an interesting spot, and we're going to pick up here at part two, and... Uh, Looks like the trades are going to be uh, heavily involved in this one again, so it should be quite the show. I mean, yeah, of course they are. But (laughs) yeah, we were, what, a week or two into the WWF part of the story, I guess? Yeah. Something like that. So I think we should just dive in, right? Yes. So let's do that. All right, well, Wade's got something to talk about here in the torch that's... uh, Maybe the big sticking point in all this to WCW and WF. Viacom steps forward strong resistance to the WF turn negotiations by Wade Keller of ProWrestlingTorch.com. Just weeks after gaining rights to WF programs and the biggest TV money deal in pro wrestling history, a key source tells ProWrestlingTorch.com that Viacom has stepped forward in opposition to the WF negotiations with Turner to buy WCW. As part of Viacom's price tag for WF programming, they bought exclusive rights to WFE wrestling programs on cable. Viacom, a key source, says came out strongly against WFE and Vincent Mann signing a deal with Turner, a fierce rival of Viacom. Viacom was TNN to become a major competitor to TNT, TBS, and USA. And McMahon turned his resources towards rehabbing a competing station's top-rated yet struggling program. That would hurt TNN, Viacom apparently believes. Sources say WFE officials had hoped Viacom wouldn't be upset with WFE acquiring WCW and providing programming for Turner. Instead, they hope Viacom will see the value in gaining access to all WCW's wrestlers and a potential ratings bonanza for all wrestling programs as they built toward eventual interpromotional matches and big-name jumps between promotions. Negotiations have soured a bit in general between WF and WCW, so the Viacom move is said to be the biggest but not only roadblock to consummate a deal. Alone, Viacom's resistance might end up being enough to nix a deal. But as it is now... It's just one on a list of other struggles during the finer points of negotiations and tension between key personalities. Deal's not that, though. And WF Source says negotiations are definitely continuing this week. Viacom can be persuaded that sharing WFE-owned programming would benefit them. The details that are sticking points now could be worked out, and personality clashes could be set aside in order to get a deal done that's attracted to all sides. However, the odds of WF owning WCW apparently are lower than the middle of last week, where it appeared to seem to be around 60-40 bet in favor of getting the deal done. And as we continue away, as search from WCW's ownership, future remains unresolved. Negotiations, though, had soured a bit in general between WF and WCW. It's the Viacom move. It said it'd be the biggest, but only robot. Oh, I just read that. Uh, so let's find the part that I didn't read. I thought I did. Uh, that. Sorry. Uh, word circulated in the last week that McMahon was acting too brash and authoritarian during negotiations with Turner executives. Huh, shocking. McMahon was dictating what he would and wouldn't accept as part of a deal. Among McMahon's demands were channel and day changes for various programs. The story going around is that Turner executives weren't thrilled with the proposals, but even less thrilled with how they were presented. Well, wait, 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 wait. He's absolutely in the right to ask for Nitro to be moved. For starters. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely he's right. And and that's the thing I was going to bring up with Viacom. I mean, I got to think and believe that Vince McMahon would not try to have shows competing against each other on the same night. Which... That would be stupid. 
look, we see by the time WCW's gone that it didn't really help with ratings to have just Raw, or at least without a WCW existing. But on paper, of course you could you sh should be able to try to sell it to Viacom as, look, now we're not going to have another wrestling show opposite us anymore. Exactly! Whereas if it's sold to anyone else, we will. Yes. At this point in time, that's the thing. Because whoever would have bought WCW would have had the Turner programming. So basically, you're still in Viacom. Listen, we have to buy this to to keep our to get our deal good. We're protecting our deal with you. <laughs> it's just like so. Some of these damn people in charge have their heads so far stuck up their ass with their own little rivalries that they. They're too deep in the four-seated trees. Now, look, they are absolutely in the right to ask Vince to buy out the exclusivity. They are. But the issue becomes that they end up raising the price so much after they, you know, at least according to Vince, from the initial price they quoted him to buy out the exclusivity, which we'll get to later. Here's the thing. Do you think at this point in time, even though they just signed a deal with Viacom, that maybe Vince is regretting signing that deal with Viacom already? I think he's regretting the exclusivity clause. Yes. Yep. But, I mean, yeah, Viacom's stupid. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no way he would compete against them head-to-head. -head. That would be, I mean, crazy. But, I mean, what am I to say? As we record this, I mean, NFL is going to have Monday Night Football going against head, head to head against each other on, on two different channels on the Disney networks. Oh, that's a little <laughs> different. Yeah, but still, you're 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 kind of taking some ratings away from one for the other, but it all adds up in the end, I guess. Right. And it's all in the same family and network, so I guess that it doesn't really matter, does it? Right. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that the, the Viacom thing is just crazy to me. But I mean. Vince acting brash and authoritarian, that doesn't surprise me at all. No. <laughs> I mean, that's Vince McMahon. What do you expect? <laughs> you know, and I'm sure those some of those folks at Turner hadn't dealt with anybody like him, even Ted. So, no. all right. So as it stands here, Bischoff still wants in, according to people who are in contact with him. But other sources say Bischoff is far from a shoe-in if the deal falls apart. It really appears to be anybody's guess what will have WCW over the next few weeks. It's possible that the WF deal falls through, that Turner and Zex aren't confident in having Eric Bischoff be one of their primary program suppliers. That they may end up simply drastically downsizing WCW to a low-budget production and try to garner 2.0 cable ratings, which are respectable, with a skeleton crew of a few dozen wrestlers with contracts in the $100,000 and $600,000 range. It's also possible Turner will close down WCW completely, write off all expenses before the OL deal is consummated, and then maybe eventually restart a promotion or pick up programming down the line from a new starter promotion if one surfaces. And that's the thing, you know, the, another thing that surprises me in all this was if that game in game with Brad Siegel and Stu Schneider, you know, was what it was. I mean, why did Brad just shut down WCW altogether before the AOL deal is done? That's a good question. Because clearly they wanted it off the books before the AOL deal was closed, if at all possible. 
I mean, well, no, I mean, we, well, wait, we're not thinking of the two things in, together. It's Vince can't make the deal, or at least with, at this point, the, they still want the shows on the networks. So Vince can't make the deal until that changes. Well, no. When, when, okay, so when is the, the AOL deal consummated? Uh, mid-January. Remember, same, de- same day that the uh, Fusion deal gets announced, so January 13th. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So if they don't have a preliminary deal with Fusion in their minds, or you're thinking that's going to happen, in January, does Brad Siegel shut down WCW and then sell all sell off all the all the IP to WWF? Yes. There you go. And the other thing to remember is Jamie Ke- Kellner's not in play yet. Nope. So no, no that's, so that's the thing. And there's no poison pill in the fusion contract. So there is no reason to think they would have any desire to cancel the TV shows. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like people there who even who didn't like wrestling ever had any issue with carrying the TV shows is that they were embarrassed to have it as part of the company. Yes. Again, that's another notch in the belt for the Jamie Kellner. I mean, this the, we're here we are talking about this in October as being a possible option that definitely could have happened before he was even involved. You know? But anyway. Uh, WCW workers didn't know who to kiss up to over the last week or two. They went from being worried about their past dealings with Bischoff to worrying about what McMahon thought of them. Not a possibility is this. They'll be sending out resumes and calling around looking for entirely new jobs. Uh, poor Terry Taylor. Ain't <laughs> <laughs> even only one. <laughs> the cable trade journals are covering the status of WCW as a major story, but for the most part have been a week behind on the facts and rumors circulating. They reported on sticky points and negotiations, including the WF wanting to assume forthcoming revenues from past reviews, while Turner wanted to keep revenues earned but not yet received. This is something we haven't talked about. You know, if that's true, if that's true, which Dave says might not be true, um, I totally understand where, where uh, Turner's coming from. Why should we give you that money? You weren't involved with WCW at that time. Why should you reap the benefits? I mean, they're right. Yeah, why should you reap the benefits? You you had no dealings with us at this time. After a deal's made, yes, that's different. So, yeah, I totally get where they're coming from on that regard. If that was a, a, a big issue, which we don't know. We've heard different things on that. Right, they're desperately trying to... I mean, well, here's the other thing, too. I just realized it right as I started to say that. Not all the pay-per-view revenue goes to WCW proper anyway. It goes to Turner Home Entertainment. Exactly. <laughs> they want their money. Yeah. <laughs> and, okay. So, let's think about this. It, let's say WF buys WCW and they still want to run pay-per-views. Would that be going through Turner Home Entertainment? That's an interesting question. <laughs> because they're doing the TV through Turner. Mm. Would they would Turner Home Entertainment be supplying the pay per view stuff? That's another thing. How how do you work around that one? Hmm. So I don't know. To hear this entire show, support between the sheets on Patreon for just five dollars per month. Go to patreon.com/slash between the sheets.